The Coco Nation show is an unscripted live and interactive broadcast. Anything can and will happen. The views and opinions expressed by members of the panel and the live audience are their own and not necessarily those of the Coco Nation show, its sponsors, affiliates, or subsidiaries. Open minds are encouraged and a sense of humor is recommended. Thank you for being a part of the Coco Nation. Radio Shack. Okay. What? The 80s called. Welcome to the Coco Nation. The world's first live and interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer and its hardware cousins. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Coco Nation episode 340. Amazing how well things work if I push the right buttons. <laughs> All right, let's see. Uh, today we have some special guests on uh, our show. Um, let's start with some panel introductions here. Uh, boy, I forgot all kinds of stuff this morning. We need that button. I'll do another one later. Um... Top corner, we got yours truly. And next up, Patrick Euland. Howdy, y'all. And Marco. Hello. Glad to be here. Yes, Loopy Malibu. Greetings. And Ron Delvo. Hello. Welcome to the show. Okay, and we got L. Curtis Boyle. Welcome to the show, everyone. Okay, uh, Ken Waters. Yeah, that's me. Uh, and Brian Weasler. As soon as he admits. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome all. Welcome okay. to the show. And we got Jason. Hello, hello, hello. And I'd like to introduce the faux wood paneling behind me. Okay. And Nick Morentes. Hi, everyone from the bottom of the world. Hey, Nick. You moved okay. to South America? Or to the Antarctica. Antarctica. Sorry. Yep. Right, right. <laughs> Almost. Well, yeah, but he's a little off to one side. It's not the bottom. So, and I'd introduce <laughs> Bob Emery, but it doesn't look like he's ready to talk yet. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stuck on here. Left on the right hey. here. And... Hey, Bob, how's it going? Oh, it's going all right. <laughs> Even with that electric field behind you. Solar storm. He's just and, very far north. It's the northern lights, right? And next up, we have uh, Frederick Sagard. Hello. And we'll be hearing more from uh, Frederick later. And our special guest interviewees today, we got Joe. Joe. Oh. <laughs> I don't want. I don't want to butcher your name. I'm sorry. It's it's Ahern. Ahern. Okay. And then we got uh, David uh, McNally. 
Hello. All right. Yeah, you can pronounce uh, that one because it's like the roadmaps. I see, but yeah. <laughs> then again, then again, then again, Mark B can butch butcher the last name Smith. It, it's happened. That, that, that is one <laughs> it's thing. It's a talent I do he has. Well. <laughs> yes, I, it's I, it's a special skill. I do that well. So, um, okay, um, let's see. First up, uh, Curtis. Okay, so welcome to all of our guests today. We have the main interview with David and Joe, who are the creators of a magazine back in 1987 that was originally called TRS-80 Computing. And I think it was the last year you guys changed it to Color Computing. Is that correct? And I'll ask you a bit about the, the title change there and also the original title. Um, but the first thing I want to start off with is that you guys were friends in school even before you got into the magazine, even before we got into the computers and stuff. So how did the two of you meet and how old were you when you did? It was uh, kindergarten. Uh, we both, Dave and I, attended the same elementary school. We actually lived very close to each other um, location-wise. And so kindergarten is when we um, actually met. We were, so we were five. Okay, did you guys become fast friends, or did you guys just kind of know each other on the periphery at that point? No, I think we connected pretty quickly. I, I remember we were both in the same kindergarten class, first grade class. Uh, I, by second grade, they had to separate us. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> uh, and then I don't think we were in the same class again through elementary school. I, I, third grade, we were. Um, and then, yeah, fourth Fourth and fifth, we were separate classes. <laughs> I think we were, we were chatting too much. <laughs> and, and David, what was the common interests or things that you know kind of bonded the two of you together at that young age? We, we live close together, so it was really easy just to like ride our bike down the street or something and, and catch up. So um, we both had, I don't think we had developed the interest for computers yet at that point. It wasn't until third grade when we were introduced to the computers, but, um, you know, we became friends pretty quickly because we were in the same classes. We were interacting together all the time. So I think that's where it started. Okay. And then to step into the computer side. So uh, I believe the first computers the two of you used were ones in school. The, your families did not have any at that time, or is that uh, correct? Yeah, my family had no idea what a computer was, basically, because <laughs> none of them really were were into technology. My dad had an old bullseye game, and then later we got the Atari 2600, so I, I was early on the gaming side of things. But uh, computers in general, uh, I think it started for Joe and I both when our elementary school got grants through uh, Radio Shack to get labs of the color computers. So I think that's where it all started. Yeah, and, and, was... and Joe, did you have any experience with computers with your family or anything before, or a video game system for that matter? No, no. Um, I played the Atari at Dave's house. I played it at a, a friend's house uh, that lived up the street from me. Um, but I never actually had like a, a gaming system per se. I didn't even have the Nintendo. Um, it was the it was the Coco. I mean, that pretty much that was my my gaming system. Once we had that introduction in fourth grade. Um, I believe it was a couple of years later uh, when um, we actually received received the computer for as gifts. I think Dave was first at Christmas, and then it was mine followed on my birthday. Okay. 
Um, now, one thing you guys had mentioned, we kind of did our pre-call uh, that I didn't know before, is that uh, the, the grant that you guys got from Radio Shack actually included a Network 2 controller. So you actually had one with all the Cocos all hooked up together with a master one the teacher would control. Um, what was your experience with those? Because I think you guys had mentioned you guys kind of knew more than the teachers did, which I think is probably a common theme for a lot of us. But <laughs> well, at the time, there was only one there was one lab for the whole school. So, and there was only one teacher that got the grant and kind of got trained on it. And he had to share his time between three elementary schools. So that was, that was interesting. Um, so it was a, a, a about maybe 12 or about 12 Cocos attached to the network two controller. And at the time we didn't know so much about it as far as what it was or what it did. All we would, we were just really happy that we had access to the computer like once a month uh, in which they were running logo. Cause that was about the only thing anyone knew how to do was put in the, the, the program packs and turn it on. So that's, that's where it began. And uh, I think Joe and I took a interest in it really, really fast and, the teachers would just say, have it draw this, have it draw that. And they couldn't keep up the worksheets quick enough because we were just completing them. And <laughs> always the ones completing them. And they were like, okay, try these, try these. And they're like, we can't slow you guys down. <laughs> now, that was an experience I had too, because, uh, you know, they teach the computer class you know, at a certain pace. And then uh, I would find where the manuals and stuff were, and I'd be like chapters and chapters ahead type thing. So did you guys do the same thing? Did you guys have access to the color logo actual manuals that came with the program packs or or were you kind of more restricted with the curriculum that they were giving you yeah it was it was the curriculum that they were giving us um, yeah, what manuals, <laughs> manuals. No. Um, and then when we got into middle school so that would have been uh, so co the coco lab was uh grade four so two years later grade six seven and eight was is middle school uh we had computers that was the class and it was in the in a lab of um, TRS-80 model three and fours. Uh, and so we were learned, that's when we learned basic. And that started sixth grade right through eighth grade. And it was the same teacher who came down to the elementary school while we were in elementary school and taught us logo. So we went from logo then to basic. And did now, you guys ever go back to logo later or, or did you, or was that just part of the early part and then you went on? Yeah. Um, so when we were juniors in high school, so that would have been fast forward now to 90, 1991. Uh, that's when we went into our, uh, we went into a third grade classroom taught by our former first grade teacher. And we taught logo to a third grade class. And that actually carried on for five years. And so this teacher actually had a mini lab of 12 uh, TRS-80 color computer twos with, they were connected to a network two controller. And so we, we were there, yeah, five years teaching. Yeah, and actually, I wanted to ask you about that because we talked about that a bit in the uh, the pre-call. And you guys had mentioned that you actually got special permission because you were still in high school doing this. And then you'd leave to go to the elementary school to teach the kids while your high school was actually running and still going with classes. So how did that arrangement come out? And and why did they, uh, you know, what what was their thinking of make, actually allowing this to happen? Because that's a pretty rare thing where you get to skip class on purpose and go teach mm -hmm. other kids when you're technically a kid yourself. Yeah, I remember it was at the end of the day. Um, I believe the high school let out around two o'clock and the elementary school went till uh, three. Uh, so we we actually only, I think it was only a half hour. I think we left maybe around 1.30 or so to get there by quarter to two, two o'clock. Um, and I think the principal recognized uh, that 
we were doing like community service, you know, in, in the, it was actually, um, it was all, you know, it was the guidance counselor at the high school that brought this to our attention because of the guidance counselor's wife as uh, the third grade teacher whose class we taught in. So I think that was the guidance counselor recommending to the principal that we be released. Um, and I think our schedules were okay. I think we had study halls at the end of the day anyway. Uh, so there really was no impact on our, um, you know, the courses we were taking. So they, uh, David, they they approached you on this. This wasn't something you guys kind of like, you know, mentioned. You, we, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't mind helping teach over there, you know. Yeah, they brought us both in together, and we thought we were in a lot of trouble. And they're like, <laughs> "You don't really work with that, the guidance teacher at the high school so much." And we're like, "What did we do?" He's like, "No, no, it's all good. It's all good." He's like, "We got all these old computers. It was sitting in the closet. You might have remembered them from when you were in third and fourth grade." Because I think I said third grade, but it was like the very end of third grade that they got them. We didn't really get access to them until fourth grade. Um, but um, we're like, we would really like to uh, have you guys like come over and show us how to use these things. They've been sitting in the closets. They're there. We have them hooked up. We're not sure what to do with them. And so we were just kind of. We're like, okay, but we're in school. We can't like do that. Like, how's that gonna work? Oh, we'll take care of that. And Joe and I were laughing at each other, like, oh, how are they gonna do that? They're never gonna let us like leave early. That's unheard of. But uh <laughs> it happened about a week later, I think. We got a call down to the vice principal's office, I think, at the time, and they're like, Well, you have to come to the office down here and sign out with me personally. And then when you get over there, you're going to sign in with the principal over there. So we know you're really not just skipping classes. <laughs> and then, uh, then once you sign in, we'll let you go up to the school, uh, to the classrooms in the school and, and work with the teacher. I think that that is my recollection of how it, how it all went down. And how far apart were these schools? Like what was the travel time to go between them? five minutes or so not even oh they're pretty close yeah and did they ask you to also like you mentioned that later on when you guys were in the younger grades there that you had a network three controller based model three four system did you guys do any teaching on that as well or did it was it strictly the coco and logo so that was the story from joe from the middle school and we got access to the model threes and fours of course joe and i like can you teach us how to run it because this is a network three controller and you have to log in and the os is coming from the server and all that so um that same teacher who had introduced us to the cocos also um, taught us how to log in and do the procedure on the network three controller and i think we had a 15 meg hard drive which was huge at the time and then we had this giant line printer i don't know that thing was enormous and it weighed a ton i forget which model it was but i i just remember it um when the the middle school got rid of that lab uh, I took that lab over and put it into the classroom next door to where the other teachers. So this was like the next year or two later. It wasn't right away. So the first year Joe and I started on the Cocos and we, we, we taught together in the same room, splitting the time. And Joe had one group of kids and I had another group of kids until this um, other lab became available as they were upgrading it. We're like, we can still teach how to program. We can still teach word processing. We can still teach graphics on it. I mean, in third grade, the kids are learning um, basic like algebra X plus 
you know, three equals five, what's X or um, so you could, and they also learn map skills, you know, plotting the coordinates on a map, which is exactly how plotting a coordinate on a pixel works. And the model three doesn't have um, a color on it. It's just on or off. So it perfectly worked into the curriculum. I'm like, oh, we can use all that to fit right in and teach them those skills. Even though these computers are older, they're perfectly fine. And one thing I wanted to ask both of you is, is you know, the, the thinking behind the teachers to get you to do this, teaching other kids who are just a few years younger than you, um, is they must have seen that you guys had good teaching skills. Because there's a lot of nerds when I was going to school, including myself, that, you know, knew the computers inside out, but we couldn't teach for no, nothing. You know, like we're speaking on a level above your average kid. But they must have seen something, the two of you, to actually encourage this. I was just wondering, did you guys have any sort of teaching or helping the teacher teach classes and anything else before that they recognize this from, or they just took a gamble and went for it? The uh, first grade teacher actually remembered that I had an interest in playing school because I would take home extra papers and then I would play school with my neighborhood friends. And this was like first, second grade. And she remembered that. And I think that, so our original um, trip over there was to help her troubleshoot. Um, and then once we got them up and running and working, that's when she said, Joe, I seem to recall you had an interest in teaching uh, way back at the time or playing school, whatever. <laughs> um, and, you know, would you be interested in teaching these children how to use these computers? And so, you know, it was a it was a career changer for me because I originally was going to go to school for computer programming. Uh, because at that time, it was the end of my junior year. So I was starting to think college, starting to think, uh, you know, career choice. And when I, after that first few months of that last junior year, and then that full senior year, I switched my major to elementary education. Um, so that that re it was a game changer. Okay. And, and uh, David, was it the same for you? Or was it a bit more different? As... I, I do re kind of remember it a little similar to what Joe said, but uh, as far as the teaching skills, I wasn't so much into teaching me personally. I was really into the programming. And I think I kind of dragged Joe along in some of my programming adventures and, and we worked on programming together. Eventually, I think um, I went to the programming and more technical route and Joe decided to be the teacher, but I never lost track of, of that teaching. But I, I remember both of us at the time were really shy. So there were no presentation skills. There were no classroom management skills. This was our, um, you know, we were pretty shy in high school. Uh, we would never be doing something like this even right now. Um, so I just remember that very first day and we walk into that classroom and the third graders are sitting there with their hands folded and the teacher's like, now this is Mr. Hearn and this is Mr. McNally and you're going to pay attention to, they're going to teach us the computers and you're going to pay attention. And, and, and I'm turning beet red and Joe is turning beet red. And I just remember, I'm like, they're all staring at us. Say something. And he's like, I don't know what to say. You say something. <laughs> I just remember that moment. Like, oh, that it really helped me. Um, it really helped me learn how to public speak, learn confidence, learn how to um, not be afraid to stand up in front of an audience and speak. And then later on, my career kind of took me in that path through through programming and working at hospitals and um, teaching and training a lot of 
um, evening school courses we taught in different towns. And, and I never lost sight of that teaching, but I, I went into it more um, in the technical professional world of training and training software and at different hospitals and different systems. And Joe went into actual public education. So kind of, uh, we never lost sight of our roots, Joe and I, uh, on that first day, it really taught us a lot. And um, we keep in touch and we talk about teaching and training and computers all the time. We're still pretty good friends. We don't live so far away that we can't catch up once in a while. And, and Joe, like, how, how did the students react? Like you mentioned, uh, David, David mentioned that, you know, they were sitting here like this and they were told to behave and listen and kind of stuff. But did they get as enthralled or did a fair number of the students get as enthralled as the two of you did first getting exposed to computers or were they like, were things getting already that computers were so commonplace? It's just like uh, another class type thing for the kids. No, they were, they were pretty engaged. I remember mm -hmm. uh, because uh, you know, that, that was at the time that the cocoa, unfortunately was starting to phase out uh, because it was, I believe 93 when the cocoa three was discontinued from Radio Shack. Uh, somewhere around there, 92, 93. So yeah. they, they, that computer was not as familiar to them uh, because of the fact it was, that was a time when there was transitioning, a transition to desktops was taking place and the Apple IIe was like the next thing. Um, so they, they were pretty engaged by what these, these older machines themselves, and then just the, the logo language with the turtle in the center of the screen waiting for commands. Um, and we didn't have much to go by other than that. I remember blue covered manual that came with it. Um, uh, but we did develop our own curriculum. In fact, I still have that. Um, I just, uh, actually still have mine too. Yeah. It's a binder <laughs> that I put together with lessons, uh, that we would follow and we used it for all that five years that we were there. And then, yeah, and I mean, if you're, you're teaching basic computer programming concepts like variables and like you mentioned, you know, grid for pixels and stuff, I mean, that has not changed that much. I mean, now you got texture maps and all kinds of stuff thrown in extra, but the basics are still there. So it still applies. And the kids were so excited that other teachers and other grades were like, can you do a lesson? Can you do a lesson? Can you do a lesson? So we started teaching with other teachers some were actually our former teachers some were teachers that were new to us at the school at the time so we started a little after school club and the third graders would come in one night and the fourth graders would come in another and the fifth graders and then actually it got so popular that we couldn't the some of the other schools heard about it our original <laughs> elementary school heard about it and they're like, can you come over here and do some? Uh, so it turned into a much bigger thing where Joe and I actually um, were brought into the summer school program that the, the town ran and we created a computers for kids summer camp. And um, that was quite a project. We, we, we were using the Macs and the Apple IIEs and, stuff like that at the time when you had we didn't have enough of them at those schools we had to run around to every single school and collect all of them and, and drop put them in the back of joe's van that he had at the time and uh drive them and make a lab so we could teach during the summer and um that summer computers for kids programs for um joe did grades uh what two and three and i did four through six ran for about 13 years. Uh, it was very, very popular. Remember, this was just before the internet too. Um, and it, it, it brought in so much funding that it not only funded the whole academic summer school program, 
um, we were able to buy about $10,000 in robotics equipment and we started teaching Lego robotics before that was even a thing. So it was, it turned into a much bigger uh, thing than Joe and I could ever had anticipated. And, and were you directly involved this entire 13 years or did some other people get involved that were helping to teach? Maybe even some of your former students that kind of did the same thing you did and kind of escalate to teaching themselves or? Yeah, I actually, um, I ran that, uh, I was part of that summer program from 92 to 97. Um, and then thereafter, I had gotten, a, I had started my full-time teaching job. And then Dave continued on for a few years, at least a few years after that, I think for, for maybe four or five, but mm -hmm. then it was transitioning over to other teachers. Um, and we were actually, I remember training one of them I remember before I kind of passed on the, passed the torch, so to speak. And and I trained uh, the person that was taking my place to run the computer kids program. So. Yeah, it was, it was really fun. We, we ran, it, it, the program got really big. At one point we had about 300 kids. Um, so we had to be creative on how we scheduled the classes. We had to bring in more teachers. I did full school assemblies for, uh, we started doing classes in like theme park science and, and movie making we had the little the little green screens and the and the webcams for the kids to do commercials and things and um someone came up with the idea of bridge building and you know we use software to help support all the lessons and it was always a computer-based camp even though we started to add additional things into it 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 was really fun and and towards the end um, another town contacted me. He's like, we want this. We'll pay for it, whatever. So I had to train more teachers <laughs> and, we, and we brought it to another town. Actually, the town that, that Joe had started working in as a teacher because um, he heard it through Joe and I that we were running. He's like, we want this summer program. So we actually ran it in two towns for, for some time. Um, it, it was pretty fun experience all all leading up from from that little cocoa lab that we started with it was really um our path was really unique really interesting and it 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 joe and i grew a lot from the experience that we had both as teachers as speakers uh, as friends we really um we got a lot from that experience Okay. Now, before I get to the magazine stuff, I've been notified by Mark that there's uh, multiple questions from the chat and probably some questions from the panel as well. So mm -hmm. I thought before we get off the teaching side of things here and onto the magazine side of things here, we'll we'll let Mark uh, get some of those questions out and anybody else in the panel too. Uh, starting with uh, Mark Siegel, who is a former Radio Shack. Uh, what was he? He was a high high level Radio Shack person, uh, production stuff. He was asking what version of logo were you using way back when you started? Third grade, I guess. Do you remember? It, yeah, blue. it was. Yeah, well, I remember it was called TRS eighty color logo. Yeah, that's it, the first one. It wasn't the super one. It wasn't the the next step up or advanced. It was the the original. I had the super logo cartridge, but that was the only one that existed. We had twenty or thirty of the regular logos because it was, it, um, it was all from a grant from Radio Shack. Actually, one of our teachers, uh tried to set up an appointment with some big shot at Radio Shack um, to show them the magazine. And, and we had a day and everything and that, that executive called in sick and, and that appointment actually never happened. But um, mm. he might, the teacher was so excited that Joe and I had been working on that magazine um, that he tried to set us up with somebody at Radio Shack to talk about it. 
Cool. Uh, Frederick Provencha has a question. He said, did they ever start paying you to do this? Talking about the, uh, the summer camps and well, the after school stuff. Uh, so it sounds like you put in a lot of time and effort uh, for doing this. Yeah, the, uh, the third grade classroom uh, during the day was volunteering, uh, but we were paid for the summer camp program. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because we weren't in the union and there was a lot of things involved, we were actually paid as outside contractors. So we actually got pretty good pay for, those, for that time. Um, and the other reason being we had to write the curriculum, we had to train the teacher, we had to set up the classrooms, we had to dismantle the classrooms, all in the summer school budget, which gets kind of frozen throughout the year. So they thought it was only fair, well, since we can't pay you for all those extra things that you do, um, then we'll pay you the top rate that we can pay you to kind of make up for it. So it, it did work out pretty well. Uh, and you know, like good said, for the resume. Yeah, yeah it too. really worked yeah. out really well. Um, and then Joe and I were doing some little off stuff too. We worked at a, a company called Future Kids doing some some kids training over there uh, once in a while. Uh, it was a chain out of California, I believe, that came over here for a bit in Massachusetts. Uh, we were doing some night courses at, at um, different schools in different towns. So we got we got paid for that stuff too. Uh, but all the stuff, the six years, five, six years we did at the elementary schools, that was all volunteer and we loved it and we didn't even want a cent for it. That experience alone was priceless. Cool. Mark, any more from the chat or? No, it's all for the chat so far. So, okay. Now, I think Ron, I think you had some questions. Anybody else in the panel yeah. have any questions too? Cue those up as well. Here, here's the first one. Um, the printer behind me is the uh, line printer one. Is that the big printer you were talking about? Weighs about 60 pounds. <laughs> don't think it, it's it? that one. It was wider than that one. It was huge. Oh, was, was that the big shuttle? Big shuttle line matrix one? I think it was. Oh, okay. yeah, it was a very wide printer. It was very heavy. I just remember. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, it had a, had a ribbon on it about an inch thick and about uh, three, two, two, three feet wide. I think it was that one. Yeah. And okay. the next thing uh, I need to ask you is you, this is the Coco nation. Okay. And you said something about in 93 that they were stopping the Coco line. I mean, we, we never knew that. And so you know, we're still celebrating the Coco here. <laughs> that's, <laughs> I think that's, that's what I get the message. <laughs> yeah. That's what's, pretty amazing is yeah, yeah. when Dave told me a year, if you told me a year or two ago, I think that's what I mean, motivated to scan all the 28 issues in. But when you said, Oh, they're, they're, they're alive they're they're growing, alive. and I'm on this list server and, and growing. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I couldn't believe it. And, it. and the Cocoa Fest is still going on. I said, what, really? I said, the one that started from the rainbow magazine. Like, yep. This, this, this year was the 40th anniversary of the first rainbow fest. So. And it's still going. That's it's awesome to be here and talk about it and and still have all these enthusiasts. It's really cool because I, I I've been kind of silently following the list servers. I get the emails. I read most of them. I'm fascinating with fascinated what everyone has really done with it and how you've all pushed the hardware and the software in different ways. Um, 
you know, I, I read everything and I, and I keep telling Joe, I'm like, it's alive. There's like, he's like, no, you can't be getting that much. I'm like, Joe, I must get like at least 10 or 15 emails a day easily, probably more off of that server. And I just read them all. And it's interesting. And he's like, come on. Like, and then I started showing him, he's like, well, maybe we should just scan in all these magazines. And, and that's <laughs> how that discussion happened. <laughs> and then yeah. finish the last issue. Well, not quite finish it, but put it out there because it never was out. It was never out there. That very last yeah. one. It was never released. No, no, it was never released. I Joe, just saw Sloopy ask a question. Why. Okay. <laughs> go, ahead, go ahead, Joe. We'll do that first, and then I'll let Sloopy ask his question. Joe, why, so explain why the, the last issue never really made it. <laughs> uh, well, that was the that was when we were graduate we were graduating from high school, and yeah, February well, February of ninety two is the was the one that never released. October 91 was the last published issue. Mm -hmm. And and then Joe kind of um, had a girlfriend too. So oh, that, yeah. was, that was taking up a lot more of his time than the magazine. <laughs> Hands and magazines. <laughs> hey, Slippy, you can unmute now. Uh, you have a question? Yeah. Um, as you're like going through with these... Uh, um using the the coco and beyond and teaching the students um what was what was your opinion and your, your thoughts of using the various different computers while you're teaching these students on how to use them because i mean the capabilities of the coco with uh extended color basic is significantly different than when you're using like the apple 2e or even going to the macintosh yeah, the it was it's it's really it's the the the, the thinking skills uh, is what is what the the, ch the children are going to benefit from when they're programming when they're programming whether it be in logo or, or basic at back at the time when we we switched over to the Apple IIe's and the Macs during the summer camps it really wasn't programming it was um, it was software that we purchased that was capable of of letting the kids say draw pictures and print them out um you know it, it, it they weren't really they weren't thinking in that 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 deep level of thinking that they do when they program and and i think that's why coding has made we call it coding now in the educational world has made a comeback um if you've heard of the hour of code uh code.org uh that um organization about 10 years ago brought it back in, in really in a sense because of the need in these schools for teaching programming and teaching coding. It just had kind of slipped away uh, in the late 90s through probably early 2010, 11. And then since then, it's been, there's been much more, it has much more of a face in the schools now. Yeah, because yeah, it kind of went it more to teaching just to be familiar with computers, how to interact with GUIs and that kind of thing, like to be a mm -hmm. user, but not to be a programmer. So we would write lessons, like write a story or uh, interact with like a play or something like that. And we would have them write out their scripts on the computer and then we would have them create their drawings on the computer or um, create commercials on the computer as the, the webcams and, and those kind of things became available. Um, so we moved... Um, other than the robotics, the robotics actually used PC logo that was modified. So not only was it a version of logo for the IBM, it 
had some commands to control the motors and the lights and the switches and the sensors on the on the robotics. So when we switched to that robotics, Lego robotics, it, it was still using a newer version of Logo. Um, but definitely at the time things have shifted. I did have access to the Apple IIe. I started learning the programming in that. And we, we did some simple programming classes on that. Um, I had access to a Commodore 64 that my friend had. So I was learning the programming on that. Uh, all variations of basic, but at different uh, levels of complexity as um, those computers could do more and more. It was pretty cool. Cool. Any more questions in the chat in the meantime there, Mark? Uh, no, I haven't seen any additional. Oh, Frederick Provencia says, my 14-year-old daughter is currently learning JavaScript and HTML in high school. That's nice. I was just thinking when you're talking about uh, schools bringing back um, programming and stuff, that was kind of the foundation of uh, the Raspberry Pi Foundations. I was just looking on the Wikipedia page. They started in 2009 to look about promoting computers. And I know when the Raspberry Pi 1 came out, it's like, I got one in 2012 and it's like, they're trying to say, we want to set this up so it's easy for kids to have at home, hook up an old keyboard, mouse, hook it to their TV and be able to learn basic programming like Python and stuff. I so tried to convince of Joe of that at the time. He didn't believe me until it actually caught up to him. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, you guys I was totally amazed that like the website for the Raspberry Pi one crashed and it took like two days before I could order one. I didn't get one until May. So it was like three months later. But anyway, it turns out a very popular platform and still is. Anyway. And it emulates cocoa now, right? Do we have a cocoa emulator for it? I think I've seen that. Oh yeah. There's yeah. there's a guy, Ron Ron Klein, uh, basically bundles a complete uh the X4 emulator and the uh, MAME emulator. And uh, yeah. And BCC, I think too, right? Mm -hmm. Or OVCC yeah. at least. Yeah, so he has a whole image you can download for a Raspberry Pi and just load up and do Cocos. And yeah, but you can emulate MC10s, Coco 123s, Dragon 3264s. So it's kind of the expanded, all the cousins we were talking about the intro of the show. So Yeah. Do you guys have kids? What was that, Ron? Do you guys have kids, children? And uh, do, you, do you still have your old uh, hardware at all? Yes, I have a um, uh, six, uh, he'll be, uh, Liam, he'll be six at the end of December. And then uh, my daughter Kaylee is four. Um, I do have a Coco 3 in the attic. Um, and uh, it's just a matter of getting it to uh, getting a, a, it to work with a monitor. But Dave, you said you ordered a piece of hardware that's going to get it to connect to a more modern. I'm getting there. I'm getting all my stuff back online. I ordered a lot of stuff. <laughs> okay. so if he's successful with that then i will i will plug that in because unfortunately i don't have a, a tv <laughs> well you guys are obviously still kids i do have a tv i do i have the floppy drive i have two coco twos and a three sitting here i think i at one point had all the cartridges um both joe and i's cartridges i think i had the whole collection probably about 25 or 30 of them uh, some of them got destroyed in a in an accident, though. So, but I still have a bunch of them. Uh, let's see. I did keep an old TV around, which it it it's an old analog TV. But I want to get it on the HD monitor. So I ordered the SCART cable 
the switcheroo, I think it is. I, I ordered a projector. I'm going to see if I can project the cocoa on my wall full screen and play around with it. <laughs> well, so, if Jason's still on the call, he's the guy who makes this card adapter. He's CocoMan.biz's his site. So if you have any questions for him, he's, he's right here. Well, thank you. I, you just sent it to me. I just got it in the mail. <laughs> okay, great. Any questions? Yep. You know who we are. Give yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> uh, well, it's good that you guys still have them and still have an interest to them. I, I'm kind of curious, since it sounds like your kids are still fairly young, if they're going to take an interest either on the, the computer side, you know, as far as learning a bit of programming or something like that, and maybe even bring up some of your older curriculum, see if it still works on, on kids nowadays. Well, my um, daughter's just six months old, so um, get, we yeah, have a bit of time. to go. <laughs> <laughs> so it be interesting to see how that, uh, how that follows through and, and see if that's still, as you mentioned, coding is kind of coming back now in the curriculum because it kind of dropped for a while and to see how they react to it too. So Joey, I guess you'll be up first to see if that still works on the younger kids of today. You get to teach the kids the cocoa, Joe. There you go. Who would have thought <laughs> all these years? Right? <laughs> well, I know one thing we've mentioned on the show many times when it comes up is that the, the cocoa basic documentations, particularly the cocoa ones, I think you guys started with cocoa twos, if I remember, mm -hmm. but that was one of the best starting manuals out of all the eight bit computers that came out of the time. It was, it was phenomenal. I was a woman that wrote it too. If I remember correctly, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but uh, she did an awesome job, honestly. Somewhere I still have that book. I have all the books that I could, I, I have them all somewhere. I think they're packed up from when I moved here, like what, 15 years ago now, but they're all packed up somewhere. They're still here. <laughs> it, the neat thing is that your machines will still work. Yep. They, yeah, they they're pretty slow. It, it was kind of lucky, actually. The Cocoa was one of the, the eight bits from that time period, you know, because it was a time period in the mid to late 80s. I think there was a lot of bad capacitors and stuff going around. It affected a lot of Amigas and some Macs and stuff too, where they would just self-destruct after a while. So if you pulled it out of the closet 30 years later, it's, you know, leaked acid onto the motherboard and destroyed pretty well a lot of it. But we got kind of lucky. We didn't really have that problem. So they generally tend to work. It You don't usually have to recap them or anything. In high school, my art department got an Amiga for doing the digitizing and the stuff. That was like, we had a black and white camera with different filters to do the colors and stuff. I remember that. So had a little exposure to the Amiga. Not too yeah. much. We did have digitizers in the Cocoa too. There was the DS69 A and B, which Ron has. Uh, Nick Marenti's uh, from Australia is actually on the panel. He created another one called Digiscan. Uh, and Rascan was a previous version, which same thing. You put the color filters, you know, and, and you know, do the red, green, blue, and then merge them together. Or you could just do the red and green and offset the camera and make 3D. Put the glasses uh, on and, and watch it too. So that was yeah. So um, now to kind of loop it back, <clears throat> go back in time a little bit again. So the... the you guys were doing the teaching. You guys were doing the learning on logo and stuff. What prompted the creation of the magazine and how did that start? That's Joe's idea. So you can take it from there, Joe. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I actually, at any point in time, I do have slides with visuals. Uh, whenever you, you know, yeah, totally up to you. It. Whenever it fits in with what you're talking about, you just start sharing and we'll, we'll show it. To see. Yeah. Okay. Why don't I, um, I think I have the capability to share my screen. Yes, I do. Yeah, we see your my drive. All right, perfect. All right, everyone see it okay? Yeah, mm -hmm. Tier City Computing, the bi-monthly magazine for cloud computer users. I'm reading it out loud because we do have audio listeners that listen to the podcast afterwards, so kind of give them a clue what we're looking at. Okay. Um, all right, so this, as you I'm sure all can recognize, is what got us into you know, connecting with the community because 
when we got that compute when we got the computer that when i received the computer i received the i received the extended color basic uh coco 2 i think dave's first one was a standard uh color basic so it was getting started with color basic but in any event this was a very well written manual and in 13 years of age i was able to follow it very easily and that this i believe i really think that this is what got me motivated to to start something that would share programs, original programs and tips and, and articles. Uh, this was it. I, this was the inspiration for that. And that, that was probably in 80, early part of 87 when I really started to get into programming in the basic language. And I also had purchased a DMP 105 printer. Um, so I had between the Coco to the uh, the cassette recorder, I know I got the CCR81 before I got the FD501 drive uh, and the printer and good old print number dash two commands. Uh, that was enough to, to, to get that first issue out, which to me, <laughs> now when I look back at this at 49 years of age, it's, it's kind of embarrassing. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it was, we were 13. Um, it was something that I had uh, just kind of scribbled out on in, in, on paper as a draft, showed it to Dave. And I said, what do you think? Do you want to get this? It was this just an idea. That issue was just an idea. It wasn't even hashed out at that point. Yeah. And and so the name TRS-80 Computing, um, I'll be honest, uh, came from Family Computing. Um, that's actually where the name uh, came from. That was a magazine that was out there back in the, uh, the eighties. Um, and, and they it, did list TRS-80 programs in it as one of the computers they supported. Right. I remember it was heavy with uh, PC, uh, like IBM PC junior. Uh, but I, you know, yeah, there were listings in there for the, for the Coco just, it didn't have much fanfare. So, um, so we decided that this was going to be, solely for mostly for the cocoa uh but then there would be some you know a little bit more with apples and commodores but in a sense it really wasn't it really was was mostly a a cocoa um magazine and so we were monthly for the first year from june through december of 87 it, it was every month we were in uh at that time we were in seventh grade seventh grade was a tough year there was a it was a high highly acad high uh, academic um pressure as far as uh, homework and projects. So it, it was a little rough, um, especially when school got started in September to, to keep this monthly. So we, we went on a little bit of hiatus. Um, you know, you can see here by the end of 87, it even starting, especially December of 87, okay, this is starting to look a little better now. You know, it's got a theme to it. It's got a, um, a logo that was probably came from a print shop, um, but it's it's something other than, you know, pulling it out of a magazine or, or uh, my dad was a sign painter. So I do remember he did this for me right here. Hey, so was I. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 He was a, he was a sign painter for many years. Uh, did uh, so he helped me with uh, the logo on the October 87 issue. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, this is it by the end of 87, um, you know, we, it, it was clear that this was going to, we was going to go somewhere. Um, but we just couldn't keep up with monthly. Uh, we we decided that, you know, bi-monthly uh, is just going to be easier on us and it'll allow us to put um, more more time into it. Um, and you could see, you know, once uh, 1988, 1989, um, 90, uh, this is, you know, when um, 
it became, uh, you know, a thicker issue. Uh, there was more content inside. Um, and uh, we we did have to do some price increases. The original was 60 cents by December of 90. It was $1.75. Um, quick, 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 quick question for you on, on the title of Tier City Computing. Uh, you guys had mentioned you guys had a Model 3 lab that you guys had used when you were younger, too. Um, were you planning on expanding to Model 1, 3 coverage? And that's why you picked the title or or just? Um, I Yeah, you know, it, it, at the time, you know, it, it, it could have been that we were thinking, okay, we might we may include the model one, you know, two, three or four actually is what we were exposed to at the time. Um, but, you know, it clearly was just Coco. Um, in fact, I mean, it says right there, color computer users. And I think that's, you know, why we had, you know, switched to switch the name by that last year. I'm surprised we hadn't done that sooner. I think I was dabbling with the Apple IIe and the Commodore, and there was an issue or two in there where I did list some programs for them. Um, but then we kind of, the access I had to those computers were just a little bit limited and, and the time I had to to learn it and write other stuff and support it all was too much. So we kind of abandoned that idea. But the, I think there is an issue or two. Where we had some listings in there. Yeah, I do remember you'd, you'd mentioned the C64 and that you'd mentioned you were thinking about adding coverage in one of the earlier issues and you did publish some ads, you know, for C64 stuff, et cetera. But yeah, it, it didn't seem to really take off. Mm. Yeah, so first, first couple of years, I would say it, it was pretty local as far as who the community was. It was people we knew. Um, it was in 89 um, that we, put at uh, the end of 89, that we, uh, we put out our first uh, advertisement. It was a classified ad in Computer Shopper. We ran that uh, uh, through a couple of their issues. And we got 25, about 25 subscribers from each, each run of that advertisement. Um, and then in uh, 1990, uh, there was a magazine called Coco Clipboard. And there at last issue is March, April of 1990. We put a quarter page ad in there. And then this advertisement that you're seeing now was uh, oh, there was a thousand copies made by Coco Pro. And they did a direct mailing uh, and included our advertisement as well as several others in their mailing. And this really helped us with um, bringing up our subscriber base. I mean, by the time we got towards the end of publication, we, I would say we had at least 150 people that had, um, you know, been either had a trial issue or a, or a subscription. Um, so this was definitely the peak right here, early 91, um, where we, you know, had um, an artist uh, one of my uh, friends from from school was it, it was an artist, and he did he did a lot of our cover graphics, like the one that you see right here. Um, he, he was pretty impressive um, as far as you know getting uh, you know something getting the cover to have some uh, appeal to it there. Um, and then and I think he used an Apple II GS to do his artwork at the time. I think that's what he had at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we were publishing on um, eight and a half by 11 inch. And then that last year or so, we switched over to 11 by 17. It just made it easier for us to um, to print at our, our, there was a local copy center uh, nearby that we would run the issues on. 
Um, and I remember the 11 by 17s was just a lot easier to um, to staple. It was, we were literally using those long reach staplers and stapling right down the middle fold and then using like a, uh, you could see sometimes we put uh, some tape on there due to just hold it together. I think this was an 11 by 17 right here and this was an eight and a half by 11 inch. And I literally still have that stapler right over on <laughs> <my desk. laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, over the span of five years, I mean, that's, uh, those are actual printed copies. Um, there aren't many left, um, unless there's people out there that still have them. Um, I don't even have all of them. I mean, what I have is what you're seeing right there on that collage. Um, Dave has most of them. Um, but, uh, yeah, we would, when we would print one, I'd put my name on the top and his on the top and say, all right, at least we, we have a copy that we can, you know, hold on to there. So, um, that was our uh, our method of typesetting <laughs> uh, or layout. It was done using an old tracing board from the 70s. I'd uh, plug it in, flip the light on that light act. That picture actually was just taken a few days ago. I actually still have that tracing board. Um, and there's grid paper, graph paper behind it. So the graph paper would help us with lining up um, the text so that it would be, you know, it would look straight. Um, we did that for quite a while, um, and then we did have access to PageMaker in high school, um, which it gave, um, you know, this more um, clean look to it as opposed to a, a cut and paste. Um, so that really did help us out a lot there. And as, uh, in a side note, I did print a lot of the program listings on my TP10 printer. <laughs> yeah, so which, which it faded. was perfect for the <laughs> columns. It was absolutely perfect um, until we realized that a few years later, all the program listings kind of vanished. <laughs> yeah. I don't have paper. many pictures of the office uh, that we worked out of, but this is one of the two photographs that I, I came across here. It was in the basement of my childhood home. You can see that it was the 70s wooden, wooden paneling in the background there. Uh, you can see the, the the boxes that I kept from from all the accessory computers and accessories that I had. You can see the setup right here with the deluxe joysticks underneath. Um, ROM pack. We made this actually in high school. What you're seeing right there, we made it uh, in woodshop class uh, to hold the cartridges. I think it only held about 25 or 30 of them. Um, but that that was pretty much it right there. Um, and then my my desk over here that I worked out of, you can kind of see the color computing, TRS-80 computing. I had like calendars and information kind of all hung up around. So uh, that was, I think I took that right towards the end when we knew we weren't going to be um, continuing with it any any further. Um, and then we went back to logo. We we uh, this was the manual that helped us out with uh, teaching the students. And there I am, at the age of seventeen, uh, teaching third graders on a on a lab of of twelve Coco twos. Uh, so there was that. I believe the network two controller, and then there was just those standard joysticks. And then the cartridges they had were Scripsit and Logo. Uh, so that went on for about five years. We also um, had started a computer consulting firm on the side. So we were doing the volunteering in um, elementary school, the summer camp, and then we were on on in evenings, uh, weekends, we were doing um, consulting and um, also teaching uh, through evening school programs. So we, we were pretty active in the 90s. And at the same time, we were going to school, uh, college and starting, uh, starting out our careers. 
Uh, this is what it looks like now. I I went right. I went into education. Um, I taught in the classroom for ten years from uh, ninety seven to. 2007. And since that time, my, my role is a digital learning specialist. Uh, so I work with fourth and fifth graders at an uh, elementary school nearby. Um, and I teach uh, coding skills. I teach di digital citizenship. And I also teach um, Google Workspace, how to use docs and slides and sheets. Uh, but you can see these kids right here. They're coding on Chromebooks. Um, and they, the engagement for them is the coding robots. Uh, that are out there now. That's the Sphero robot. Uh, so they're you know programming that to knock over Cup Tower. Um, so that's kind of where it's come now. You know where I said coding's made a comeback, um, and that's that's what I'm doing. And and I'm glad I I'm doing what I'm doing now because that's really where my passion started. Um, so to just cycle right back to it and and keep it going, um, you know, it's it's pretty. Joe or, Joe or David, um, when you were um... Did, did you have a um, color computer club that you joined to? And then the other question I have is, you know, when you're teaching these kids, did you ever get one or two that kind of picked up on it and was really interested and kind of contributed to you guys? It To the magazine? No, well, just let's say, you know, he had a knack for it and did well and would keep in touch with you. I've, any of your students... Uh, you know, from back in the day, still communicate with you or? I don't think um, so. We've run into a few of them here and there on occasion. Um, one of them actually, I think, did become a teacher in the same school. Um, <laughs> some years later, our our student became a teacher. It was that was pretty cool. Um, I do remember back in those days, Joe. We thought that it was a boys thing. We really kind of had it in our heads, I think, that the boys would enjoy it more. But that definitely wasn't true. The girls were just as engaged. And, and in a lot of cases, I remember when I was teaching some summer school, I had entire classes of only girls and and they excelled at learning some of the, the logo and the the Lego logo skill set, um, even over some of the classes with the boys in it. I was really surprised. Um, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I, I didn't really think it that way. I thought, oh, this the boys would probably like this more. And then I created other courses that were more arts and crafts and drawing and, and adventures on the computers. And I thought that the girls would like that more. And it, it that actually, that whole idea just didn't work. And we had to it sometimes revisit how we were approaching it to, so that we can engage all of the learners and not just a certain, a certain subset. And did you have Ron's other question? Did you guys have a local color computer club that you guys joined to as well to get other ideas or. We were it. We were the club for the <laughs> kids. Like we were literally the only ones uh, that I know of other than that, that initial teacher that knew how to use them and knew what, could be done with them and I just remember a, a former teacher saying wow you guys have these things doing way more than even that first teacher ever showed any of us how to do um because we were the ones pioneering we were the ones learning it we were the ones reading the cocoa um the rainbow magazines and anything we could get our hands on I remember one day 
Joe and I drove into Boston. Actually, we took the train, I think, into Boston to pick up boxes full of these cocoa and and hot cocoa and magazines or whatever that some guy was selling as, as a moving sale that he saved for us. And the two of us are trying to lug all these boxes through the subway system to bring it all. That, that was an adventure. Um, but we, the internet didn't exist back then. It was very limited. I did have the 300 baud modem for the cocoa and I was able to occasionally connect to a bulletin board. And, and Joe, I think you had, um, CompuServe or something like that for a little bit. So we we were able to download and find some little things on there. But we were, it was it was all encompassing. We were learning it as we were creating the magazine, and we were using the magazine and our knowledge to to start sharing it with everyone else because there was just such a lack of resources. Do you guys notice uh, as time goes on? We started using the camera more. I mean, I I can't see. I don't have many pictures of when I first had my uh, first cocoa or second, you know, or um, having my kids, you know, using them or, you know, it, it just seems like back then we took pictures of when there was an event or we, you know, uh, family was over or, you know, but now we take pictures of the, you know, a flower in the front yard. You know? <laughs> it's a little different than it was back then. Actually, we had done a, there was a PTO, parent-teacher organization fundraiser fair, and I had gotten my first Kodak digital camera. It could do 320 by 480 or something resolution. <laughs> it could take eight pictures. This was outstanding. And I remember um, I got my hands on a laser printer that, that was a used one, and it, it had nothing to do with the cocoa, but... Um, just kind of on the lines of what you said at that craft fair, this was a thing, I kid you not, I would use that little camera to take the kid's picture and then it would save, um, I could upload it. And then later I had a camera, I think a couple of years later that could actually save to floppy disk directly. So you didn't put memory chips in, you put a three and a half inch floppy in the bottom of it. And then I would print those out and charge um, a dollar for the disc if you wanted the disc or um, 25 cents for the printout. And that was a thing. And I made a lot of money doing it because <laughs> no one had seen a digital camera at the time. It was really cool. Now, a quick question for for Joe, because you're kind of one that kind of spearheaded the starting of the magazine here. Did you intend that to be a, a, a regularly published magazine right off the start? Or was this originally going to be like a one shot just to try it out and something new to do? It was going to be something that I would print and give out to um, uh, relatives, friends, and teachers at my school. It was like a hobby. Um, it, it No, I did not um, envision that it would be something that would go on for five years with a subscriber base, um, over 100 in, in advertising and in other publications. No. I and I not. remember that day, Joe brought it into school one day. I'll, I'll tell this story because it's just a fun story but we would you know get off the buses and the buses would unload at the middle school and we'd all have to wait outside and it was I think it was a colder day but we were waiting outside the buses had arrived and we got off the bus and Joe's like hey look I did this like I don't know I guess it's a newsletter or a magazine I don't even know what I'm calling it yet it's just an idea and he had the whole first issue that he showed you kind of laid out it wasn't all there it was kind of just a draft of it but th there was substance in it 
Um, and he's like, oh, oh, I've been working on this. And I'm like, why? Like, what's it for? Like, he's like, I don't know. I, I just thought it was kind of cool as, as I was learning it. I was like documenting and, and kind of keeping track of writing what I was learning. And, and I thought it would be kind of cool to, to put something together. And I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, who's it going to, who's going to see this? Like, what, what, what are you going to do with this? He's like, well, I don't know. That's not the point. The point is I'm showing you and I'm wondering if you want to work on it with me. And I'm like, of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> I started as a hobby and then it, it, it always really was a hobby, but it became more, it became a business, which was, that was the unexpected part. <laughs> do you guys have a Lamborghini or a Ferrari or anything like some of our friends in the business have been fairly successful? <laughs> <laughs> No. There's quite a few. There's quite a few of us that have hot, nice Hot Wheels collections. I think, right? <laughs> Maybe Matchbox. Yeah. Well, Maybe I mean, have one of these groovy staplers, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we need to see the big stapler. The big stapler. Oh, I have to go get it. It's across. Hang on. Give me a sec. I'll grab it. <laughs> you want to see? <laughs> okay. Sure. Why not? Let's compare. Does his swing line like my swing line? <laughs> Did you guys find our show? Because um, I think we all. Is... Um, I actually, I think I saw, I found uh, the Glenside Coco Club yes. group. That's old stapler. Old geek saddle staplers approved. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's 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 cool. You still got all the the. the from the time there too that's uh why throw awesome. them away might might do a magazine again someday you yeah, never what's, know. yeah what's what's the new name new name of what the new magazine <laughs> oh, oh you're committed now it's, it's it's called the giant stapler <laughs> and and what's funny is what joe is showing you you saw how he was drawing it. He was hand drawing it. Sometimes he would cut things out of other magazines to to use the original the meaning of cut and paste. Like that's like the old that way of doing things. Yeah, that yeah ransom we didn't have look, a right? processor. We were using print number dash two, and when we made a mistake, we do it again and again until we got Ooh. them right. Um, you can see the progression as we went through some of that stuff, and as we got a little older and in high school. Um, they got labs of the Max, and we got our first scanner, and it was a $1,200 scanner, and it took an act of God for any student to touch it. And, and, and Joe and I had to be carefully monitored that we didn't break it when we used it. It was that kind of, that kind of environment. But we got access to the, to the Max and PageMaker, and we started using that to create the logos and some of the, the uh, articles. So you can see over the years – uh, how it improved. But when we were doing kind of how it worked is Joe would do that rough draft and he'd tape it all down. And then um, he would type something and sometimes he would have to white it out. And then he was sometimes using a typewriter. Sometimes he was running it through the printer and it had a lot of marks, a lot of strays on it. So then the next process we would do is we would photocopy the whole thing and sit there with a jar of white out and clean it all up. And then we'd photocopy it again. Those are all the copies that I have is those first sets of copies where Joe had all the originals. I had all the, the, the sets of the clean copies uh, during that process. But towards the end, I think, Joe, we did almost all of it on a, on a 
desktop publisher. So yeah. you guys didn't it, use it, like Telewriter or, or um, Cocomax for, you know, some of the graphic stuff or? We had Coco Max, but yeah. I'm not the artist. Our friend was doing it, I believe, on an Apple IIGS that he had, and then he was bringing it in, and we were just using the layouts, I think, is how we did some of the cover the cover art, if I'm not mistaken, Joe. Yeah, I think so. I mean, this this was definitely, like, hand-drawn for that. A lot of hand drawings for the first, first issue. Um, and then that final, like non-published issue you could see is just a lot more more cleaner looking where we had we had our kind of our, our artists that helped us out but we did use um there was i remember that coco max sounded very familiar for graphics mm. yeah. um if you look at that show that you just had held up on that last issue that that picture that joe put there um was actually a full eight and a half by 11 drawing that a friend of ours did that was supposed to go on that last issue. And it was literally supposed to be the full entire page. Uh, you Ooh. can see the box across the top where the, the logo was supposed to be pasted in, but Joe uh, grabbed it and put it in there so you guys could see it as that last issue of that picture never got released. But I, I remember my friend putting a lot of hours into that. It was a very, um, very intricate detailed drawing that he had done for that issue no i don't oh go ahead go rick i was just gonna say i saw you were using cardstock covers back then too so that would that would have been a really nice issue mm -hmm. yeah yeah we even uh uh one of the issues we uh <laughs> mimeographed I don't know if you can tell oh. <laughs> the old purple alcohol purple, smelling yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. our famous purple issue uh yeah that was the the purple issue there we even we even played around with uh, a color a color cover this was never uh, released to the public but uh we did because it's just the expense of it all um yeah. but we did do a you know a color cover there and then the actual the actual cover was just that's it it was just the black and white there so, so. did you ever have one of your parents check your spelling or anything <laughs> No, it was it was the artists and Joe and I double checking each other, and that was about as oh, we didn't spell check or anything. It was just so, so hopefully y'all misspelled different words, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I and to segue from Ron's comment, I was like, my next question for both of you was, what did your parents think of all this while it was going on, and did they actively support you on this or moral support, or were they going, "Geez, our kids are crazy." I, I think my parents did, um, but they didn't understand it. They had no idea. Like, why are you always on that silly computer? There's other things you could be doing in your life, but sitting in the chair in front of that screen and, and what are you going to accomplish? They do, like, they just completely didn't understand it. Um, I think it wasn't until just recently, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago that um, my mom realized that, hey, you can use a computer to like video chat now. And and when my sister moved to Switzerland for a couple of years, that's when my mom discovered computers. It was all <laughs> those years later before my parents actually understood what we were doing. But 
I think they they saw the work that we were putting in. I remember having them all, all the pages spread out in my living room because it was my job to staple them all. And my mom's sitting there like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm stapling my magazine together. We have to get these out by tomorrow. And Joe's going to mail them. And Joe had this whole process of yelling at the postal service to put the metered mail on it because we didn't want a hundred million stamps on it and the postal service didn't want to meter them all and joe is like you gotta meter them all i have it just this little box the stamps aren't gonna fit and, da, da, da. <laughs> <It> was- <laughs> and, and joe was your experience with your parents the same or were they a bit more savvy on the computer side of things or how did that work uh yeah no they weren't uh you know as far as being savvy on the computers not, not at all uh my mother was a uh nurse um, and I know towards the end of her career, when they started bringing um, computers in for document documenting, she just became like nervous. Um, and then my, my dad being the sign painter, it was all hand lettered signs. It was yeah. no, um, it was no graphic, uh, computerized graphics that he was doing at all. Everything was hand lettered, including the art, the art that he did. Um, so, uh, they were, they were supportive of it. Uh, my dad gave me half that basement. Uh, we had a finished basement. It was a, um, a split level, uh, home from the built in the early seventies. And, uh, he gave me half the basement and said, here you go. You know, this is your, you can use this as your office. Cause we needed a workspace. And we started in a, in a closet space under the stairs, uh, in that house. Cause it being a split level, uh, see so, you know, where you walk in the front door, one set of stairs goes up, the other goes down. There's like a, there's a storage area right underneath that landing when you walk in. And that's where it was originally. And there was no way we could, we, we needed to. We literally had to go. crawl to get into that space. <laughs> and we somehow squeezed a little desk in there. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Were, were your parents concerned about the money spent on like, you had to get the paper and the mailing and everything else here, or was it pretty well, you know, self-sustaining on its own? So it wasn't really a concern for them or did you have to borrow off them at any point? Uh, we did uh, the, at the beginning. Um, I, you know, I had some savings, uh, but I do remember, you know, having them uh, help, help me out with uh, buying the equipment because that really was the expense. Um, the printing and the mailing, uh, I don't remember that being all that expensive, especially at the beginning, because we didn't circulate that many issues. Um, but once we started printing 50 to 100 copies, uh, we had, I, I actually kept the budget book. I was showing it to Dave the other day um, that I used to uh, keep track of um, expenditures and income. Um, and uh, there was really no loss. Um, you know, there was there was always enough to to, 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 to cover our costs. Um, and we, I remember our profit, I remember writing profit down $10 at the end of every month. We just, yeah. And then, and then Joe just showed me that book last week over dinner when we met up to kind of discuss the show here and what we were going to kind of talk about. And, um, I realized there was still a balance. I'm like, wait a minute, where's my half? <laughs> Let that go. So I'm guessing who bought dinner that day then, eh? Right. Get a couple burgers out of this somehow. <laughs> you guys still live close together? Or? About, yeah. about 30 minutes away. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So I think we meet up every few weeks just to catch up. Um, we're still really good, good friends, so. Did you ever yeah. get to go to a, a Cocoa Fest or a Rainbow Fest? No, it's always been on my list, but I never had the, the means to do it. What would have been the closest one to you? The Princeton one? 
Uh, I'm not sure actually. Probably, yeah, I'd probably, probably say the Princeton, New Jersey. Then, yeah. yeah, if it's New, it, yeah, it was New Jersey is the closest to Matt. Yeah, be, that was the closest one to Massachusetts. Then, yes. Yeah. Who knows? No, we, I, might, we might get to one now that we know that they're still going. No, they'll, they'll, keep, they'll keep going. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> it's always um, the last one, but <laughs> yeah, that's kind of an in joke at this point. Um, now, as a PhD's progressed, like you originally started, you were covering basic programming, like you on those first issues you were showing there, Joe. Uh, but then eventually you started covering stuff like C and you started covering stuff like OS9 and all kinds of things. And now uh, we had our little uh, test call. You were mentioning, David, that that wasn't something you guys were actively learning everything yourself. By this time, you already had outside writers contributing. And there's some pretty big names that published for Rainbow and stuff like Bob Vanderpool. So how did those relationships start? Um, I believe that was the computer shopper ad um, that had, you know, where we started to build up our subscriber base with people that were outside of our network, so to speak, which were like, you know, local friends and relatives and, and teachers. Uh, so we branched out with the um, with the with the advertising that we did in the in, in those publications. And I think that's how we garnered attention. I didn't even know about the Rainbow Magazine until probably 1989, um, because I always remember that magazine being thin. Um, and whenever I saw some of their earlier issues from like 83 and how thick they yeah. were. When almost 350 pages, yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I couldn't believe it. Um, so uh, we, you know, once we, I believe that once we got that magazine, then there were, there were connections to um, people there. So we made our connections through the rainbow as well. Um, so that's probably where some of those big names were. I think we reached out to them um, and then they learned about us. And then, yeah, they, it, we didn't, I didn't know C or assembly or, or, or uh, any OS nine. Um, we, it, I relied on the, the outside writers to bring it in. So those programs, those listings, they were never vetted. They were never tested. We didn't even know how to do them. We were trusting them and we were publishing them because um, we, we were just welcoming the content in some of the, um, the writings. I, I recently recently realized that um as i was going through some old issues of some of the other magazines hot cocoa and stuff i, I have a few lingering ones i don't even have any um collection of them but i i remember specifically seeing snake in the grass that game and i was looking through it i'm like i thought we published something like that game somewhere in one of our issues because someone submitted it as a game and, and I'll be honest with you, I started going through the code and the only thing different was the name that's the person that submitted it to us. So, <laughs> um, so I apologize up front if we've stepped on anyone's copyrights. We we were young. We didn't know about that stuff at the time. Um, but you you definitely will find a little of it in there as we uh, as we move through it because we weren't necessarily going through it and trying it all on our own. I mean, what we could run, we would run, we would play, we would try that way, but um, that's kind of where it stopped. Did you guys use um, cassettes and floppies for the medium? Um, and, mm -hmm. and were you asked about having, you know, maybe a, a floppy sent away or, you know. Like saving people of, from typing the programs the in kind of like rainbow yeah. on tape, I think. Yeah. yeah did you did. ever do that? We did. Yeah. Yep, TRS-80 computing on disk, I think it was called. And it was in some of the later issues. It was it was an option for people who didn't want to 
type. And do you still have copies of those to upload to the archive as well? They might have got lost. I'm going to look um, because we didn't tell you what actually ended up happening to those computer labs. But uh -oh. <laughs> when Joe and I left and um, after we, we continued to teach through college and when we left, um, the principal was kind of done with having all those computers and they were looking to make room in the classrooms. Um, they were shifting to kind of getting small clusters of computers in their rooms and they, they needed to start clearing things out. And we arrived one day as guest speakers to do a lesson uh, some few years later and all the computers had been thrown out. And it was a shame because all of it worked. So the network two controllers, the network three controllers, the, the 15 meg hard drive, everything, everything worked and it was just gone. They didn't even try to just sell it because well, I guess they may not have known about the wider you know, retro hobby type thing, especially back then. And even the teachers were not aware that um, the custodians were ordered over the summer during the clean out just to remove everything um, because they started needing the space to create these new clusters of things and anything that wasn't necessary uh, was going. And because no one knew how to use those computers beyond us and um the teachers that we had worked on only had a year or two left and they were retiring. So they just, um, we, they walked into a surprise too, because everything in their room was gone. Oh, wow. Which I was so upset because I wanted that, that stuff, <laughs> but it didn't belong to me. And I would have took it if I, um, especially if they just pitched it, like they didn't even try to resell it or put it in a you know flea market or something to get a little bit of money off of it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They I didn't stay on the work that it had because at that point it was retro computing yeah it went to school surpluses you know being in the education field now and if a school surpluses anything that they have in their possession it goes to this uh, citizens first so we technically were citizens in that town um and i mean right. i don't know we could have claimed it because we were um but my parents could because the parents were the homeowners so they could have said you know we want to take that but no there was no opportunity to and i think dave's TRS-80 computing on disk collection somehow or other was in A that. lot of my cartridges were there and some of my disks were there. And I think some of that was in that, that we lost. Um, I think I have about two boxes of floppies with some of my work on it. Um, so I, I did want to announce here on this show for the first time, um, you haven't heard the last of us though, because <laughs> what we do intend on doing is trying to get to that. So that's why I've been ramping up my cocoa. And what I would like to do for the community is take whatever I can find that I actually wrote and share it for free with the archives for all of you. So um, I do have my uh, cocoa gradebook software, my cocoa um, deluxe music machine software, uh, I think I have the Coco Font Pro that lets you edit um, the H print fonts and stuff. So I have those discs. I have not tried them yet, but if it all works, I, I'll. Uh, I would like to proceed with creating images and, and, and sharing what we do have with you. That was ours. There was um, we did a, towards the end a Coco Club. We basically we put a whole bunch of programs together and put them on a disc. Uh, it had all kinds of stuff. Admittedly, again, um, 
it was stuff that got shared with us. So it might've been copyrighted. Uh, <laughs> it was other people's work, including my own work. And I created menus around it to make it really easy to access. Um, so not, you know, still being young and not knowing about the copyright stuff. I apologize to anyone in advance. Um, but if I can find some of that stuff on this, um, I will share it with you guys. If you want, we can maybe put a, a feeler out there for people too in the audience. Like if there's some stuff that you don't have the listings for anymore on disc or save the tape or whatever, that we can maybe get some community people to type them in. Because we've had a few people actually typing in some stuff from the old Australian Rainbow and Soft Gold, which is another Australian magazine. Because, mm -hmm. you know, none of us up here saw those. And uh, there's a few, quite a few interesting game stuff. And I know a few people, Brian Palmer being one, has actually typed in three or four of those listings down. Then he gets help, you know, trying to debug his typing, et cetera, from other people. So that's another way we might be able to fill in the gaps that you, you may not have on actual storage. I, I, think I don't think of it as a copyright violation. Think of it as a distributed backup. Yeah, that's what we call yes. it. Okay. All right. well, <laughs> Offsite backup. At the time, I, I admit, at the time, we were just trying to, you know, share things. We we sold it for some little money. And to be truthfully, I think I only sold about five or six of them. So, um, but there was a lot of content on those discs uh, and a lot of cool things i know shortly after joe and i stopped publishing our magazine i kind of joined i think it was the osk or magazine which kind of yeah. started right after we were finishing and i did write some articles and there one one of my favorite ones i had fun with was um i wrote a utility kind of like a norton's utility that would um it would scan each sector of a floppy and, and test it for a IO error. And then it would mark it bad on the, on the fat table. Uh, so you could kind of go around discs with errors. And I kind of use that method on my Coco font pro to, um, to mark all the free space on the disc as bad so that you couldn't save to the disc afterwards. You had to use a separate disc. <laughs> <laughs> Now, speaking of advertisers, like I know in the very early issues, you guys basically cut and pasted like, you know, Radio Shack ads for cartridges on sale type thing. I'm going to guess you didn't get permission from Radio Shack to do that. Or, or did you have a local Radio Shack that you actually. OK, I don't even know where Joe got it, to tell you the truth. You found <laughs> it in one of the catalogs or something, and we just used it to fill space. It, it, we yeah. had nothing. It was our first try. We didn't know anything about the magazine, about copyrights. We didn't really know anything about um where to go for those resources we were literally just making it up as we went so um later we realized it and we tried to pull back from that but then at that same time we really were having contributions and meaningful contributions uh, from the community so we no longer really needed to go that route which worked um yeah. and i think joe if i'm not mistaken that's kind of why we we decided at the end to change the name um, because TRS-80 was copyrighted and we wanted to avoid anything. And that's, I think, actually why we decided to change the name. Am I right on that, Joe? Yeah, I. well, that was part of the fact that we originally thought we would be, you know, be um, publishing for the TRS-80 Model 3 and 4, as well as the color computer. And when it just came strictly color computer, then what's the point of keeping that trade? And it was, yeah, because it was trademarked. Uh, yeah, with Radio Shack, and I, I know we we credited them in the in the table of contents. I do remember it, you know, a line there. Yes, you'd it, say like Tier City is a registered trademark of Tandy Corporation, yeah. whatever type thing. The yeah. only time we ever got 
um, something in the mail from a revenue, uh, the Department of Revenue was uh, revenues. <laughs> yeah, it was Florida. Um, I remember getting something in the mail from them about. Um, I remember that. Um, and then my uh, dad had a connection with um, a tax attorney, and he said, "Oh, just, just this is what you need to tell them, and they, they'll go away." Like because they, they, they once they find out that it's it's like a high school hobby. It, <laughs> That's it. And I never heard from them again. I sent them a response because I had to respond. Um, And then that was the end of it. And they're like, it was some number of cents per issue. And I'm like, we literally sold like three issues to the state of Florida. So why don't you just send them seven pennies in that envelope? (laughs) (laughs) Because you'd have to keep sending them. (laughs) I'll tell you, making a a magazine, you know, I, I, um, few years ago i i tried making a new rainbow you know and and i set it up and did a bunch of artwork and and some people contributed a little bit and then i thought to myself it's exhausting it's uh, (laughs) nowadays (laughs) and um i just let it go because it was just too hard to do i mean you have um so many different things you have to think of and then there's spelling and and making everything align up and print out well and color and it's tough so, and then we went to those 11 by 17 and the we did that partly because we could copy four pages for the cost of one but getting you know right. one sheet of paper bigger but the layout you know you, oh page two is across from page 16 and you're trying to lay it all out <laughs> that's a lot of work <laughs> yeah yes sir yes sir so you for advertising, I mean, you were just mentioned that uh, you had your own software. You started kind of created your own company that you were selling software through the magazine for some of your original larger stuff that wouldn't be a listing. And then you also had some third party ones. I noticed like Sundog Systems and some of the, you know, the big Cocoa Game Makers. I'm presuming they came through you either through your advertisements in the computer shopper as well, or maybe some of the columnists you'd had by that time. Okay, kind of hinted, well, maybe you should be advertising these guys magazine. How did how did those come about? And some was a trade, I think. We traded, you write for us, and we give you an ad. Some of it, I think, might have been that too, right, Joe? Yeah, that that does sound totally. right. Yes, yes, I do remember, um, you know, yeah, that approach. Yeah. So we, did you guys didn't know about Rainbow so that you didn't advertise in there as a um, no, source for early. I mean, later we knew about, I had a copy, my first copy, I think was December of 1987 that someone at Radio Shack gave me. He's like, did you know there's a magazine? And I had that one issue for a long time, but I don't think we knew where to get it or had the funding to find uh, uh, buy it or I don't know what it was, why we didn't get more. I can tell you, um, I did go on to write one review, the Digitizer 3 Plus um, that did get published in the rainbow. So I forget what issue it is, but somewhere I have some copies of it uh, was the time that I actually submitted and, and wrote to the rainbow myself. I don't know, Joe, what was your introduction over there? Uh, well, I know we didn't advertise in there. Um, no. I remember contacting, I think it was Fallsoft, yeah. I think it was the company, um, and um, getting their um, rates for advertising. <laughs> <laughs> We, we've had some controversy with rates. We've talked to some other guests, like some of the bigger companies, and there was definitely a favoritism uh, between Lonnie and certain people that he'd give really good deals and other people that were kind of outside of that inner circle got, you know, to pay twice as much for the exact same ad type thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, they can get quite expensive. 
Digitizer 3 Plus. I think I read that review and probably and I purchased it probably based on your review. Oh, maybe I'm glad I could help you. I, I ended <laughs> up writing to the author and he um he let me keep that copy of it. I actually wrote to him and said, I'll I'll get rid of it or um I'd like to keep it and then further do a review. I think we ended up I think Joe ended up reviewing it in our magazine uh, like a month later. And for those that don't know what that program is, that was an audio digitizer for the Coco 3 that recorded through the joystick port, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, and it was 6-bit. It was pretty good quality. And then um, to, to further elaborate on that, I ended up creating um, two discs that I sold based on that model called the the, uh, the Sound Library. So there were two volumes, uh, volume one and volume two. I think it's included in what I have here. Um where I recorded some digital songs and then I got permission from the author to use his, his playback because the interesting thing is it could semi multitask. So you could run a basic program while it was playing the song or the sound, but there was small tidbits. So it didn't overload anything too much, but you could run a program while the audio was playing um, so I got permission from him to use his player, and then I ended up creating two discs um, of different little sound tidbits that I I don't think I actually sold any, but I, I think I still have the discs. That'd be cool, especially if it runs in the background, probably tied with the FRQ or something. You have to take a look. But Yeah, it's pretty cool. It was it was a great program, actually. And the quality at the time was it was really good. It was on it was on par with the quality. Um, where Sundog Systems created that um, soundtracks, the, that soundtracks program, it was on par of that quality. Cool. What do you guys think of Nick Morenti's uh, programs? He's really done super, you know. If, if on... you've seen them at all, <laughs> yeah, I don't think I have. No, well, you got that to see in the Nitrous Nine too. Mm. I mean, it's amazing. Thanks, Ron. I didn't even have to pay you for that one. It's all right. You know <laughs> what? Really I'm something. looking. I'm looking to fire up drive wire. I've got my cables. I'm going to, you know, I've been out of the community for a while. Like I said, I've been following it. Um, I've been reading everything. Uh, fascinating stuff. My, I, I was telling Joe, Joe, I can't believe it. The the Knight Rider. Knight Rider was using audio spectrum analyzer on a Coco. Like, I didn't <laughs> yeah. know that. That's so cool. Though, because I it's love Revenge of the Nerds <laughs> movie, too. Yeah. Uh, David? Yeah. David, uh, July... July 1991, Rainbow Magazine is your review. Ah, thank you. Thanks, Brian. That's, I, our, I that's our crack research department there. I don't think I have yeah. a magazine. I just have the photocopies. Okay, I've, I've only got two broad questions myself left, and then we'll get some last questions from the chat and, and the, everybody else, too. Um, so you both are kind of getting interested in getting back into the Coco, you know, somewhat, you know, you know, you already scanned and put up all the magazines. You're talking about getting some of the software back up and uploaded. You're also, you know, getting, you know, scarred adapters and stuff here to get things fired up. Do either of you have any interest of actually becoming active developers again, just as a little side hobby type thing? Or is it more just the making sure that everything you guys created back when you were younger is available to everyone? I think it's, for me, it's priority. Number one is to share what we did. We did a lot of work. We had a lot of fun. Um, I think it would be selfish of me not to share 
at this point, um, what we had done in the past and, and some of it good and some of it bad and some of it very simple. Remember every time we came out with something, it was a learning experience for us. So uh, you can kind of see in our older stuff versus our newest stuff, that progression that we made as we yeah. started learning it from, and we just, the goal was always once we figured it out, um, we didn't know it at the time, but later looking back on it and we figured it out, the goal was always to share what, what our knowledge was to as many people that were willing to listen to us. Um, with that being said, um, one of the articles somewhere I read on one of the things is about chat GPT being able to do some cocoa programming and I've been playing around with that. And I'm really interested to see what that can generate and, and have it do some things that, uh, uh, I want to type back into the cocoa and try or something like that. Uh, so I'm not out of the game, but I, I don't know where it's going to go. My my time is extremely limited having a new baby. Um, yeah. So I don't know, Joe, how you feel. The random color and sound on the screen might entertain the baby for a bit, but yeah. Oh, yeah, she loves it. <laughs> Anyway, Joe, what, what's what's your situation? Obviously, you did all the scanning and, and getting things uploaded here too, as well. You know, providing that. But uh, do you have any further plans to go further? Or? Um, I mean, I think just you know, kind of like going back to what I had done in the past, and maybe just you know, showing some of, of what that computer can do to my kids. Um, I don't see myself really going into development or anything like that. Um, I never really was like the programmer. Uh, that was Dave. Um, I always handled the article and the business end of it. Um, uh, so, um, and I teach it, I teach it in, uh, in school now, but it's, it's block-based coding um, and it's, you know, uh, simple, simple uh, Python commands, uh, but that's all it really, you know, really is now. Um, I, yeah, you just never know. I mean, I want to say no, but, um, you know, I definitely have, have uh, regained interest. Yeah. You know, just. Well, these, you don't have to mess with floppies anymore. The SDC is great. Yeah, or emulators, if you if you don't have the room to set everything back up. I mean, the emulators have gotten really good now. So, and I you may you. want to reconsider. You're 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 passing up the opportunity to to earn tens of dollars. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I told Joe, do you realize we can just play MP3 files from our phones into the cassette ports if you have the right cable, like? like oh that's true yeah, like wow like the technology has just come so far i mean the watch that we wear or the smartphones that we have is so even more powerful than than those computers but i think the love of it um you know the the memories of it it's it, the the fun of it the simplicity of it is what brings all of us back to want to do more with those yep. computers and like just that whole sd dc thing um you know and and the fact that you guys are 3d printing the cartridges now and now we have cartridges that you can actually save in a race and directly put games on on the, those cartridge packs and just things that you know no one probably would have even thought of at that time it, it just wasn't or if if so that the the hardware the technology hadn't advanced enough at that time to do some of that um to, I really admire all the work that all of you guys have done on um, bringing the old computers into the next generation. And, and, and thank you. That's exciting. That's a lot of fun. I, I can't wait to explore yeah. some of that as I get back into it. Well, one of the appeals of retro, we actually, uh, it was discussed on Frederick's stream, which we'll get into later on the show. 
after the interview is done, but basically one of the questions that came up is like, why did you stick with retro computers type thing? Or why did you come back to them? And one of the things brought up was that though back then the 8-bit machines are complex enough. You can still do useful things with them, but they're simple enough that you can actually understand the whole thing. You can understand an entire OS. Whereas if you try to do Windows or Linux or Mac now, you have no idea what's going on under the hood. It's some library written on another library, you know, that you have no clue. It could be buggy as heck as for all you know type thing. So that's one of the appeals for me as well, too, plus pushing I, the hardware. And I really miss those days where one person can sit down and yep. work really hard on writing a small piece of code. And, and you had to optimize the code back then to get some of that to work. It wasn't just letting the compilers do it. I mean, you could, there was writing a program and then there was writing the program where you, you made it, um, you know, efficient and small and compact, but you could literally sit there and learn it and do it yourself. And in today's technology, it takes huge corporations yeah. to produce one piece of software because it can be so complicated. And I, I miss those old days where you could just sit there and be a solo person and produce something that everyone would enjoy. Literally the kids in the basement, like you two were making the magazine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then my last uh, question, and this is, uh, I'll get each of you to answer it individually. Uh, do you have a favorite issue or article in the magazine that you remember, um, whether you authored it yourselves or not? It could have been something submitted because you guys were getting third-party submissions. And what is your favorite memory of putting them together? Start with Joe first, because I think you had a more hard out there. Um, I would say probably that um, I think it was the June 91 issue uh, was one of my favorites because that particular issue um had um let me just uh actually since i'm on the topic just to share my screen here okay yeah this issue right here um i would say this was probably you know as far as a favorite goes um it was this one uh, just because it, it really looked back at those um you know first few years uh four years i should say um and just kind of that progression from that uh, first issue that had part of family <laughs> computing's logo in it with a derby hat and a rose that's actually a pc thing um to uh you know this cover art that's actually looks 10 times better um i love putting this one together i think this is this is you know when you ask the question what is my uh you know, favorite issue. Um, and then what was the second part of your question? I'm sorry. Did you have a favorite article um, and your favorite memory of putting the magazine together? Um, I think I just, I loved the, um, I loved the actual, once we had everything that, you know, we were going to put into the issue uh, actually typed and printed, you know, that was that feeling of, okay, it's almost done. And then it was the cutting and pasting. I mean, as laborious as that was, I would say that that typesetting was mostly cutting and pasting uh, was probably my my favorite because it was it was the that hard work was just getting everything together and figuring out like the from what's going to be on that table of contents. Um, but once we had everything, it was just you know putting it together um, and saying, all right, here it is, it's done, it goes to press now. <clears throat> okay, and David, what's what's your your favorite uh, issue or article, and your favorite memory of putting the magazine together? 
Well, Joe did most of the putting together. I, like I said in earlier, um, I mean, I'm guessing you probably didn't like the sitting on your living room floor stapling everything. Well, it was part of it. I didn't mind because <laughs> that was it. Like we're getting this issue out. That's exciting. I, I, I didn't mind that part. Um, and, and Joe did a lot of that hard work. Um, I spent most of my hours writing the next program for the next issue. And I, I, I actually do have a disc somewhere in that box that says temporary programs because those are the ones I was always working on. And then I would give that disc of programs to Joe and then Joe would start printing them and laying them out and cutting them. And, and he's like, can you just TP10 it? And that was a word. Um, <laughs> it was a verb. <laughs> <laughs> because that would nicely lift it in the columns so we didn't have to do that layout work. That was some of my favorite memories. Um, but I was just always knee deep in, in the learning and the programming. I'm not sure I had a particular favorite, although um, I, I remember putting a lot of time into that 3D rotating box and, and trying to optimize that so that it would actually rotate and then in a later issue someone's like oh you should use the key rollover trick that will make it a little faster and then i go in and uh some of the issue i wrote an article on how to use the key rollover peek and poke and whatever it was back at the time so that you didn't have to use in key uh you could use that that hardware check and that's made it a lot faster i remember working on that one that was fun Okay, cool. I don't have any further questions myself. Uh, any Was there any further questions in the chat, Mark Overholzer? Or comments that we should pass on? I haven't seen too much. Uh, oh, there is a recommendation from Scott Cooper. Maybe they could do more magazines for fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I understand. Interesting. Um, in the gradebook program that I had, I had learned how to save the screens in assembly language. So, um, when you when I finally get that converted, when I figure out how to do all this and get it all converted, I'll let you guys know um, as as I get through that project. I, I don't have a time frame. It's just as I have some time, but I, I really want to work on it. Uh, I used a technique where you could save this, the text screens into these buffers using assembly language. So I can actually switch out the screens really quick. So when you have the drop down menus, it was saving the screen underneath and then drawing the new menu over it and, and then flipping it back, uh, which was pretty a pretty cool technique that I thought I was proud of for learning how to do at the time. Uh, that was um, kind of a big accomplishment for me. So, so one of our viewers, in a year from now, after you've caught up with all of our 340 episodes, mm -hmm. um, we'd like to see what you think about them. <laughs> like you, we started pretty, pretty rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I know you guys weren't doing it. I apologize. I haven't had the time to go through some of them, but uh, they're long. Well, too. Had, It'll take you. Well, don't worry. No one has the time. I don't the really, have the time. The really cool part is if you if you got to uh, read the rainbow magazine and you saw some of the famous people in there that you know um, made some of the program packs or the main programs and then us having um actually interviewed them is pretty cool it's pretty neat yeah i think we figured it out not too long ago that it, if you watched it continuously 24 hours a day it would take you about 60 days to run through our entire catalog of episodes and 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 it would uh, risk your sanity 
and your marriage. <laughs> Hi, Mark, uh, you, did you have any other uh, stuff? You, um, you were saying something there, so I don't, I'm assuming there's yeah. some chat. Yeah, about the only thing. Uh, Peter Willard, I guess, grew up in Framingham, Massachusetts. Is that how it's pronounced? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, that's yeah, like the next town over. Yeah, he says you should have come a few town over, few towns over to Framingham and gotten some input from our club. We had some great guys there. So oh, I'm hmm. in Framingham a lot. I have some friends up there. I used to work in Framingham. Uh, it was one of my big first jobs in the medical world. Uh, the office was up there, so uh, not too far, not too far from us. Yeah, I don't know ahead, if Rick. Peter Willard is still there or not, but you know, <laughs> back in the day. Back in the day. <laughs> It, it was fun. We learned a lot. We we had a fun journey and, uh, you know, Joe and I. And it launched your careers, basically. I mean, the teaching and mm -hmm. everything. And the mean, you're, you're the programming stuff, yeah. You know, Joe, uh, tell your dad I said hi. Oh, <laughs> he, he passed away. Uh, but oh. yeah, yeah, about uh, 20 years ago. Um, he actually, uh, he passed from myelofibrosis, which is a blood cancer. And the um, doctor, uh, the oncologist that, um, you know, uh, helped helped him out there towards the end said that, you know, that that's a that's a tough one. You know, it's it's uh, it just causes a lot of weakness, he said. Uh, but sometimes that can be caused from um, toxic toxins. Um, mm -hmm. And he ran a sign shop in Hyde Park, which is part of Boston for many years, and he did not ventilate his shop properly. I remember going in there and smelling turpentine. Oh yeah, we acid. we used uh, um, lead-based paint. Yeah, and and, and, yes. and uh, for me using it for fifty years, you know, I've had um, my teeth are bad. And, you know, I, I didn't use any protection back in the day. We were tough guys. You know, we we're out in the weather, and we had the stuff all over our hands, and yeah. you know, thinners and and lead it. paint. So. Yeah, that explains it. <laughs> <laughs> now, Rick, you're about to say something there, too? Uh, I no, no. I... I remember one day I was over at Joe's house, and, you know, I knew his dad. He was always there. He was a great guy. He was, he was, he was a fun-loving person. Um, and one day I was staying over uh, camping at Joe's house, and we were up late typing some program in the rainbow. We had spent all day. It was some really long program. And, and Joe's dad came in and he's like, okay, it's time to go to bed. It's like 1130 lights out. And he shuts oh. the light off. Lost you lost it. That happened to me too. <laughs> I remember that. Oh. He had no idea like, what oh. he was doing. Probably. Unfortunately, right. that that cocoa was plugged into a power strip that was plugged into the was, Yeah, right. I had the exact same problem once. And it was an original game. I was writing a sort of D&D &D text game. At the time, I had a 16K Cocoa, and I was just about done. I had a few other things to do, and then Dad did. my dad did the same thing. He said, oh, it's time for bed. And, and you know, I hadn't saved a cassette, not even an early copy. I'd been typing it all day, just like you guys were. And I don't think I ever did bother trying to figure out how to redo it. I was just so crushed. Uh, <laughs> the memories, the memories. It was, it was good. But... Um... You know, it was a lot of going over, even taking my bike over Joe's house in the rain. He was about a block away to say, we got to finish that issue. And my mom was like, it's pouring out. No, 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 I got to get there. <laughs> take me out, ride my bike. <laughs>
So we were really dedicated to the magazine and we were really dedicated to trying so hard to get those issues out. And then it all fell apart at that last issue. And and we had a lot of stuff lined up for that issue and we just gave yeah. up. And that was right when you guys had entered college. I think it was just like, it was just getting to be too busy. It was, uh, yeah, that was senior year. So that issue was supposed to be published in February of 92. We graduated in May of 92. So yeah, yeah, we were we were trying to finish up our senior year in high school. And once we got to, to college, there was no way. It Plus, was, you were distracted by a girlfriend, too, which is... I was. That's <laughs> cool. You guys are still friends. Yeah. Yeah. You know, after all this time. Yeah. it's. Uh, I'm thankful for that. Joe's a good friend. I've known him yeah. since kindergarten. He's known me since kindergarten. And, all, and, and, you know, you don't hear that kind of friendship too much these days. So I, oh. I really appreciate uh, friendship. Well, I want to give you guys an open invite. If you guys have anything announced, like if David, if you get some of those programs ready, if you want to come back on the show to do an announcement, or if you just want to come to hang out, I mean, you can come in. And if we have some interesting story, another interesting interview that you guys would like to ask questions, you've got the connection uh, credentials for Zoom now. Just feel free to pop on anytime. Yeah, we'd love to come back and and talk more about it. And uh, I think um, we were a chapter in Tandy's Little Wonder, um, Two Boys in a Cocoa, I think it was called, that section. Oh, so okay. oh really? Us, yeah, that was us. So if you want to. Is that the read- Frank Swaggart book? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, it's a blue yeah. cover on it. Yeah. Uh, so Two Boys in a yes. Cocoa, that I think I wrote that article. Uh, it was kind of my point of view at the time, which was, I wrote it, I think, in college shortly after we had stopped the magazine and he had followed up with us to to write up a story. So if you want to read a little bit about that, it's it's still in his latest edition. And I know, I believe he wrote it saying he tried to follow up to see what happened to us. And I believe um, he had called the old number, which was my parents' landline. And they're like, oh, no, he's not here anymore which I wasn't, but um, had I known, I would have- It didn't get passed up, up to you, yeah. Um, that that was what he, what was going on, but I think he wrote his second edition saying he couldn't find us, but um, he really did. He found my mom, but I, I never connected with him. Uh, he's still around, actually. He's not active in the Cocoa anymore. Like, he sold off most of Cocoa stuff, but uh, he used to come to Cocoa Festival time, and he published The World of Six to Eight Micros, a magazine he did himself for about five or six years, too, mm-hmm. in the late 90s, from about 95 to- close to 2000 somewhere but uh yeah, yeah he used to bring a, a, a portable cocoa to the show here which is like a wood panel case type thing with drives stuck in it a small screen and i think a car battery to power if i remember correctly because he used to bring it to the show oh and yeah, he's and on he the uh, mailing list oh huh. he was he one on the cocoa last... mailing list yeah no go ahead joe he was one of our last subscribers that subscriber list that i shared with you yep he was on, he was, yeah, looking at it right now, he was uh, 179 out of 181. So it was right toward the end. I think he wrote I, one article. Didn't he write an article in one of the issues too? I think he did. He was, it was Far, Farna Systems. Farna Systems, yep. Yeah, yeah, Frank Schweiger. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, he, had two, two, he had two passions. He had the cocoa as a hobby. <clears throat> and then what was the car he was really into? Ramblers. Yeah, because he had, he published a magazine on that too. Like he was doing kind of double duty there, and then it just got to be too much trying to pull. He came to the fest in a Rambler American one year. It was that's uh, Mopar now. Interesting. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Anyway, big thank you to both of you, um, Mark. Any last comments from the chat that we should pass on or?
questions? Um, nope. A lot of side chatter, but nothing directly other than just some side comments about, well, Grease Weasel backing up floppies and stuff. But Yeah, we <laughs> talked to David about that during the, uh, the pre-call, that if you can't recover those discs, that's an option that might be able to recover them anyway. I'll reach so. out to you guys. I Last I tried, maybe about six years ago, I think, a lot of the discs I had still worked. Um, so if I need any help, I'll reach out to you guys. Yeah. And clean the heads before you try again. If you haven't used the drive in a while, in case there's any gunk in there that might damage the disc, if you clean the head first, like a, even a Q-tip with some alcohol or something like that to swab the head. Okay. Yeah. Are, you, are you guys on Facebook at all? I'm on LinkedIn. I think Joe's on Facebook. You can oh, find if, if you're on Facebook, uh, you know, I have a, we have a bunch of uh, cocoa-related things on there. One is uh, show us your um, Tandy Color computer, and that's like for, you know, if you have pictures of when you were a kid, even that picture of the school with all the cocos, you know, you can throw one up there. Um, uh, and we have the regular Tandy Cocoa um I think about seventy five percent of those Facebook related cocoa groups were uh, created by Ron. By Ron, <laughs> yeah, his fault. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's it's good. It's all the most more cocoa stuff that gets put up, the better, as far as I can see. You know, yeah. um, and I'd love to share it all with you. I don't want to just keep it all here. Um, all that work just sitting here. I'd love to share it. So hopefully I'll get through that project really soon and I'll let you guys know. Um, yeah, even if you want to come on and like show it live on the show and then have it available for download afterwards, if you want to like highlight some certain things, feel free to come on and do that. Okay, I've already started scanning some of the manuals and so I have I have some of it. So um, I'll let you know. Cool. Okay. And you too, Joe. Like if you if you if you suddenly going through all this the scans and stuff, if you find something that really you know reminded you of something or really piqued your interest back in the day, if you want to come on and talk about it, feel free. Great. Sounds good. Thank you for having us. It was really fun uh, talking about it and sharing our story. And I don't know if we bored you or not, but uh, we did no, it. No, that, that, that's me on the news later. That's when I bored you. No, this, this, is a, this is probably the most interesting part of the show or the, right, this segment. We're, we're yeah. two hours in and everyone's still awake. It's a good thing. It's all downhill from here. Good, good, good. <laughs> I'll give you a sure. give you a give you a period here on the end of the sentence there. Then so two boys in a cocoa. Joe's Joe uh, Joseph Ahern and David McNally by uh, Joseph Ahern. It all began in fifth grade when we were introduced to the Coke or Radio Shack color computer. Uh, once a week, our class was allowed to go to the computer room and use the color logo. We soon uh, soon learned how to master all those impossible shapes. They had a straw. We had such a good time using these uh, computers that both of us talked our parents into getting one. <laughs> That's the first chapter, so or the first paragraph there. So, yeah, yeah. I was just reading. Yeah, it. that that book, by the way, is available on the Color Computer Archive too, uh, both the original edition and the second edition too. So, yeah, yeah, scrap it. Frank put them up publicly after he shut down his stuff. Yeah, I still got mine back on the shelf. Mine's a yellow cover because he made different color, just whatever he had. Yeah, I, I had a first edition yellow cover. I loaned it out to someone and never got it back. And it wasn't me. I, I bought it. It wasn't you. I knew who it was, but I never got it back. No, no one, no one that's ever been on this program. <laughs> I sent you a link too, David, to the to the Rainbow magazine. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah, I, I had had some photocopies that I'm like, I don't know what issue it was. I just have a photocopy. It was um, the article that I wrote. So, 
um so thank you guys get... it was great sharing with you um, yeah I, I believe you both have to go but i mean if you if you didn't feel free to hang yeah. around but or you can yeah. just catch it later when you if you want yeah, to catch we have show. to take off now but uh you know we'll we'll keep in touch yeah thank you thanks, thanks thank again you. joe thanks again david all right Bye. Thanks. thank you yeah. Hey, Everyone, it's your good buddy, your good pal, Amigo, and joined by that dastardly The Brent from ARG Presents. You're watching Coco Nation. I feel like that should have been longer. The Coco Nation Show would like to thank the following patrons Alex Gayer, Brendan Donahue, Brian Walsh, Brian Weasler, Kieran Anscombe. Coconut Bob, Daddy Burrito, Diego BF109, Don Barber, Eric Canales, Glenn Hewlett, Graham Wapke, Grant Leedy, Henry Strickland, Justin Larson, Ken Reichard, Kevin Holloway, Patrick Euland, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, R. Allen Murphy, Retro Tech Time, Rob Inman, Rocky Hill, Steve Batson, Terry Steege, TJB Chris, Tom C., Tom Gunderson, Tom S., and William A. Thing. Thank you so much, patrons. Welcome to everybody's favorite segment, Who's New to Discord? Hype says, Aloha. I am Joseph, a.k.a. Pipe. Currently into older computers, been on the hunt for an IBM 5100 for years if anyone has one for non-robbery prices. Found out about here through a friend and general surfing. Also want to know about any restoration type stuff if anyone does that sort of thing. TGTGTGTGTG says. Hey, I'm Mark. I had a Dragon 32 when I was a kid, and then a bunch of other machines as I grew up. I've been into retro computing for a while now and have built and restored a few 8 and 16-bit machines for myself and friends. I saw the invite to this channel on the WOD forums, and thought I'd try and join in with you all. Tarki says, your name? Tarki in most places, or if you're my wife, Steve. Your systems? Tandy. I'm a collector of the Z80 systems, so models 1, 2, 3, 4, 4P, 16A-16B, Video Genie, Professor 80, Genie 3, but also the portable computers, have them all. How do you retro? I love bringing together the TRS-80 addiction and learning electronics which are my two teenage hobbies. Where did you hear about us? Some of your members are on the Tandy Discord. Mark Audacity says, my name's Mark, more or less obviously. I'm into almost exclusively vintage portables, starting with a thrift TRS-80 model 100 in 2004. Recently I got my hands on a Model 4P luggable, 
which has gotten me into the Z80 TRS-80 machines. Heard about this server on the Tandy server. What I'm looking for is getting a feel for what's going on across all of retrocomputing, and cross-pollinating ideas and finding more ways to extend the life of these old machines with restored parts and upgrades. The previous bios were edited for time. Thanks to, Alex Geyer, Boysen, Glenside Computer Club, Paul Fiscarelli, Tandy Color Computer 3, and the Coco Nation patrons for boosting the server. Please consider joining Discord and visiting the welcome section to read these bios in full and see what the community has to offer. Just go to discord.thecoconation.com. See you on Discord! And we're back! Next up, I believe we have uh, uh, Frederick Sigard. Hello! And tell us what you got today. Well, uh, last uh, Wednesday, I had a live stream uh, with my guests, uh, Curtis, that was Boise, Mikey, and Sloopy. And uh, we talked about a bit about um, the 6809. It's something that I wasn't too familiar with. So I've asked a lot of questions, got a lot of answers. Uh, and especially I wanted to know about compatibility with software. So I got... Um, uh, some information about uh, OS 9, uh, Flex, and uh, Nitrous 9. And uh, Fusix. And Fusix, yeah, but that yeah. one I might skip. <laughs> <laughs> From what we discussed. Uh, my goal actually is to build a, um, a computer built, uh, based on the 6309, not the 6809, mainly because it's available today. I can actually, I actually bought some. Uh, I wasn't able to find any 6809 per se. Uh, well, at least valid copies if there weren't uh, uh, if they were if they weren't fakes. Um, but the idea is to make um, a system a bit like I have in the past. I built a um, 60. Well, it's not working. Sorry, I wanted to show you what I've been done before. But I've created a 60, uh, uh, 6502 system um, with a lot of little gadgets on it. I want to do the same thing, but with the 6809, 6309, sorry. And you've done a, a Z80 or Z80, uh, one that actually yeah. is a backplane-based one yeah, as well? Yeah, on a backplane version. Hmm. Um, so this one is a fairly simple design. And if I do another backplane, I've actually created a generic ISA backplane so that I could build it on that. Uh, it depends on the whim of the moment, I guess. First, I got to start making sure it's going to work with a CPU, ROM, and RAM, right? And then see if I can actually uh, implement some sort of OS on there. And then after that, well, can I use an SD card? Then after that, what what am I going to use as a graphics uh, display? Uh, first uh, first interface will be a serial port. Uh, am I going to mm. use uh, the uh, the graphics chip that's on the Coco uh, two, like the sixty five forty seven, I believe. Sixty eight forty seven, yeah. Sixty oh yeah, sixty eight forty seven. I won't be able to do a clone of the Coco three because, as we know, the gimme is going to be the big wild card mm -hmm. um 
I actually have one thing I forgot to mention on the show yeah. on, when we, on your stream, actually, the 6845, the 80 column card or 80 yes. column chip that Motorola did actually was a Cocoa product. It was called the Word Pack and Radio Shack themselves actually sold it. So that's another option. We have drivers for that already. The 6845? 45. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fine. Bought that too. I forgot so. to mention that on the stream. So, okay. That's good. So I have a, I got a series of the 6800 uh, chips. I also got, well, I got the 6850 for the serial port. I got the timer, the 6840. I got the PIA 6821. And what else did I, yeah, I got the 45 and the 47. So I got pretty much everything possible. I could not get the MMU, uh, impossible to find. I could not find the DMA, impossible to find. Uh, so if I'm going to do something, it's going to be, uh, for example, if, I, if I'm going to go above 64K, uh, I'm going to basically do uh, registers, uh, hardware register, and uh, simply address that and manually uh, send out uh, uh, a number, uh, a byte to the register, and that's going to select the, the bank number. So what happens to the... Uh... In, in the Coco, well, the Coco 2 even, we had the SAM chip so we could share memory between the video chip and the CPU. Mm. Are you going to handle that by some other means? Because the well, SAM is kind of also on Obtainium. You know, then it's, it's... in this particular case, if it, the Coco 2, you mean? Yeah, the, the Coco's always done that where the, Motorola's then, whole deal was the SAM chip, so they could yeah. they could share the RAM between the video and the CPU. I, I will mention and there are some workalikes being designed right now that you might be able to tap yeah. into too if you wanted to. Uh, Karen's but working on one. We'll cover in the news. Very oh, okay. easy to do, I suppose, depending on how it's done. But uh, I can get some dual ported RAM, so the video <clears> and the CPU can communicate directly to that specific RAM, depending on the quantity of RAM. Doesn't the same, uh, same also handle the refresh? Dynamic RAM refresh out. Yeah, yeah, so the CPU doesn't have to. No, I wouldn't. Well, well, yeah, because I'm going to use I'm going to use static RAM and not dynamic hmm. RAM, so it doesn't matter. The, the, so, like the Coco Three actually, run, the Cocos run their RAM twice as fast as the CPU, so that they can double dip, so to speak. And so, hmm. by doing so, drawing the video gets all the refresh out of the way, so the CPU half doesn't have to even worry about refresh. It's it's handled. Okay. So it's 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 it was a very efficient you know system, but you don't need it nowadays. You can use static RAM. You don't have to refresh anything. You know, so exactly. it's a whole lot easier. Just yeah. That's the base of the Gimme X's two point eight six megahertz mode. Actually, is it requires static RAM because it just basically takes all the cycles back to the CPU that were spent on refreshing before. So yeah, mm -hmm. I, the static RAM solves a lot of problems. Have you contacted um, Ed uh, Snyder about availability of the? Uh... Give me X chips. A lot of us have tried contacting Ed Snyder, and it's a hit or miss if anybody gets a response, period. Right. Okay. Some more that shots. Would... <laughs> 6309 computer built with the Gimme X. That would That'd be a Coco 4. That oh, would yeah, be slick, would be. yeah. I wonder if eventually it's going to become available again. But Yeah. Right. And if you I... are interested in following that route, Frederick, if you contact... Um, Gary Becker is actually active on our Discord. He's the person that did the programming for the Gimme X, and that's mm -hmm. based on his earlier Cocoa 3 FPGA project. And he has already stated that he is willing to do a port to a different CPLD or FPGA 
uh, if somebody wants to use it. So if you have a particular favorite you'd like to use for any of the functionality there, he might be able to help you out with uh, doing oh, the Gimme X type of thing for it. And that one hit takes care of the video, the SAMs, the MMUs. Interrupt everything. controller, a whole bunch of stuff, yeah. And yeah. you've got a computer which is actually compatible with something else yeah. rather than a computer that is, it's out there and probably no one will be interested in it really, to be honest. Yeah, it's true. It, it, I would like to make it as compatible as possible to an existing Coco, for example, uh, because if I well, the gimme the gimme does emulate the six eight four five, the SAM chip, plus a lot of extras. Six eight so, four seven, but yes. Yeah, you're getting everything in one chip then. Yeah. Yeah, and the gimme uh, X expands on that too because it's got support for you know the the two meg like the DAT stuff's already in there. Uh, the extended MMU. It's also got higher graphics modes, the extra speed burst if you're running right. a six three C or nine. Yeah. So yeah. it and would I would avoid having to when I port the OS to modify the OS to my system. Whereas if I get everything compatible to a Coco, for example, then it's going to be a straight straight port. Yeah. Hmm. The only thing I might not put in the BIOS would be uh, in the ROM would be uh, the basic. I'd probably put a, a bootloader for for the OS yeah. directly. Yeah, like which a real computer. Not just kidding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which would make it make it more interesting. I think. Well, you want it basic yeah. and load basic. <laughs> you also yeah. might do some things different, like a keyboard. You might use a more modern keyboard with an interrupt controller. Like when Frank Hogg yeah. did the TC9, he ditched the Coco. PIA based, you know, row column thing. And he actually just put an AT keyboard on it with a, a serial chip with interrupt handling on it. And uh, everything mm -hmm. was done through that. And I've still got the source for that. So, oh, interesting. So, so that's, oh. One thing, that's one thing about this uh, show is uh, feature creep. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Some people <laughs> Tell actually me about still it. use an A20, <clears throat> the microcontroller that's used on older XTs and ATs, the A20. <laughs> um, gate microcontroller yeah. and some people use that for the ps2 ports so. yeah well i, I bought a an 8242 chip for the for the usb not your ps2 mouse and keyboard i could use that i don't know maybe but then it would be uh, the problem with that is the availability will it be available for other people to use if they wanted to buy a to, it's going to be open source anyway, so if they wanted to do the uh, the, the computer itself, then I'm, I might as well probably do a microcontroller-based uh, PS2 mouse and keyboard. So that way, it's like, for example, the uh, uh, the uh, 328 from Atmega might be an, an interesting, uh, interesting selection, probably. Who knows? Yeah. So you're active on our Discord, so I mean you can ask us questions, and I think uh, maybe we should even set up a channel. I hey, I can't believe I'm saying this. Uh, maybe set up a channel on Discord <laughs> for this project that uh, people can ask well, you questions and vice versa. That's well, not something channel, you'll hear channel. out of my mouth very often. Create a new channel on a Discord. A channel, channel, new channel. We need a new. <laughs> and also, you've got your own YouTube channel where you did the live stream. I'm assuming you'll have some other streams based on that as well. I will. I'll uh, be doing this project will actually be uh, new. Well, new when I say new, I mean, I have other videos, but uh, uh, the channel is at micro hobbyist on YouTube. 
the new series is a step-by-step series. So I'm, I am going to do it, you know, piece by piece, trying to not necessarily, I, w- I won't be so bold as to say I'm going to teach people, but I'm going to show them how I'm doing it, uh, you know, one piece by piece. And uh, I'm going to show them the, the, uh, the schematic, uh, the, the wiring on breadboard, and eventually when things go, uh, it's going to be the programming, it's going to be uh, the PCB version, is it going to be on a, SB, a, a single board computer, or is it going to be on a, on a backplane, who knows, um, but it's going to be a progression uh, every, it's going to be more or less scripted, because when I'm doing it haphazardly, like, like I am right now, not as good, yeah, <laughs> Sorry, French Canadian. I do mess up sometimes. So um yeah, it's it's gonna be an interesting uh an interesting show, I believe. So uh tune in, subscribe, and you'll see. Yep, and for those uh, that are uh, watching, uh Sloopy just posted a link to your uh, YouTube page directly into the chat there, so you can view that afterwards. Hey Curtis, you. we already we already do have a hardware channel, second one in the category called 60X 6X09 SBC single board computer units. So yeah, but he hasn't decided if it's a single board computer yet. Backplane machine, would it be a single board computer? Uh, well, that the backplane machine, no, it's not a single well, board. Well, no, computer. yeah, you might put in extra CPU boards yeah. too. So there you go. What's interesting about the backplane I built, it's really uh, ISA compatibles and the uh, it actually can go uh, on a uh, standard ATX case. Uh, the holes are there. Oh, the ATX nice. power supply is made for it. Uh, the, the, the back, the, um, The the power lanes are exactly where they should be. So if you ever wanted to create something else, it's going to be like an 8088. Uh, It's going to be compatible. Not a problem. ITX power supply, ATX bus, right? Yeah. So so this is going to be uh, 4 megahertz, 6309? Uh, At least, yeah, uh, 4 megahertz, yeah. Okay, take my money. I want one. <laughs> if I can push it to five, I'll push it to five. All right. What you yeah. got? <laughs> I'd say over half the ones that I've I've seen people that have tested pushing the chip that far, more than half will make it to five. Mm-hmm. Uh if it's a three megahertz rated version, but almost all of them make it to four because they yeah, they kind of underspec the uh the rating sure. for some reason. As mm-hmm. they should. Yes. Yeah. And uh, anyways, uh, I noticed in the spec sheet that you can also add some weight states, so worst case scenario. The uh, chips that are too slow, I'll slow the, uh, I'll stretch the clock and uh, to get the response I need from, from those chips. But the the rest, I mean the memory, the static RAM, it's not going to be an issue. Uh, the ROM, I'm probably going to shadow shadow RAM it, shadow ROM it. So the depending on the ROM speed, who cares? Then in, in this particular case, um, also means you can patch it. What's that? Means you can also patch stuff too after the patch. yeah yeah exactly yeah, right. Sure. yeah. all right that was the key behind the Coco three because they just patched the microware Microsoft Basic so they didn't have to buy another Basic yeah so, yeah <laughs> yeah I I got a suggestion for the name of a channel if we did dedicate one we could call it Fred's Feature Creep and then uh, just everybody gives suggestions <laughs> of stuff to add well yeah we could just every week. <laughs> 
Here's all of their this, stuff that's going in. This <laughs> was a feature creep project. It's incredible. I mean, there was a four. There was actually four uh, uh, AY three eighty nine tens on it. Uh, Real sound time chips. Clock. There's a TMS nine nine one eight for the graphics chip. I mean, everything was almost on it. NVRAM. Uh, everything I can think of that could fit and cram it into that that board, I did. And all the best I, features of a computer forty years ago. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the incredible part is you can hold the board up and show it as a done thing. Yeah. Rather yeah, than, works. yeah. 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 And I, I've actually was... programmed some music onto it, and I'm not a musician. It took me two weeks to do to code an assembler and uh, an assembly, I should say. And uh, actually, it, it turns out to be very good music. I put the Mario theme and the, uh, what was it, Monkey Island theme. Two weeks each. Oof. I will need to program some sort of uh, software for playback instead of coding notes. Well, if you're using four AY chips, that's basically the Symphony 12 chip that speech basically. systems put on the 80s. So we already have some software, yeah, including a graphic editor for filling in the notes if you wanted to, that you could just borrow and just readjust wherever yours that's is. Good. Yeah, because that's what I need. I need some sort of tracker software for the music. Yeah. So, um, speaking of feature creep in this area, I mean, you know, around here, you're going to get feature creep like a, a bad indigestion. <laughs> and uh, along those lines, uh, in the chat, they're asking, uh, hey, maybe you should do a dual core 6309 system. Dual core. <laughs> Mod core. Okay. Yeah. Couple, yeah, couple yeah, four, eight CPUs. Yeah. yeah. Let's count. Yeah, that's gonna be yeah the TC9 bus, the the K bus, and that was supposed to allow multi multi six eight oh nines on the same master bus. Which, the which? Fujitsu, uh, that was a Frank Hogg. It was one of the Coco Four proposals. Um, okay. I actually have a, a single one here, but uh, that's the one that also had the AT keyboard. But the Fujitsu FM seventy seven in Japan was an OS nine system that actually did have dual six eight oh nines. One did the graphics, and one did the main core OS. And right. So and there's a version of that as that well. That I don't OS know if we have source for that one though. Ah, okay. But, you know, I've well, assembled the rest of OS 9. I mean, what's another one? This could go forever as long as you have one CPU sharing one phase of memory and another CPU sharing the other phase. Then you could swap again and have a third CPU sharing a phase. And now oh. you've got a half cycle latency. <laughs> oh, but yeah. you've got, yeah, and now you can put the video chip after that. <laughs> <laughs> This is beyond feature creep to feature molestation at this point. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> Indeed. <laughs> it's it's going to hey, become a bit slice computer, not a microcomputer. <laughs> yeah. you know, every slot has its own phase. And you just kind of plug in as many CPUs as you need. Rick, Rick concentrate on the I.O. card, please. <laughs> <laughs> the first BeoWiF cluster that uses 6809s or 6309. <laughs> on one board. <laughs> anyway, th thank you for having me, Boise, and Michael Furman all on your, your stream there where we're kind of discussing some of the hardware and software design stuff. That was very interesting. Thank conversation in general i'm really looking forward to seeing how your project goes and the fact you've done it several of these before but we've got some other people that proposed stuff but not aren't, aren't really hardware experts and can't build their own stuff they just like designing it and you know mm -hmm. kind of specking stuff out but you actually have the wherewithal to actually create it because you've done it on several other cpus already so yeah yeah and uh and speaking of feature creep i remember uh during my vacation this summer 
I was designing uh, the Z80. Uh, it shows that I'm Canadian, right? I'm saying Z80. Well, it shows uh, you're not American because everybody else calls it Z. <laughs> I was designing on uh, KiCad all the features. Yeah, I'm going to do this. No, I'm going to add that. Yeah. No, no, no. Scrap, redo another project, uh, GitHub it, and let's try something else. And then add this and add that. No, I've seen something else somewhere. I'm going to add that feature. I could not stick to a plan. I don't know what was going on during the summer, but it was constantly, you know, oh, this idea, oh, that idea, this has got to go into this, this has to go into that. No, I have to stick to a plan and uh, and make it so. <laughs> yeah, and right now you're at the planning stage, like you haven't got yeah. anything submitted. So. Exactly. I'm going to start writing things down and... Uh, going to try to stick to it without feature creeping it which is going to be really hard because i'm really good at that well, i was just going to suggest maybe we shouldn't make you a new channel because uh if, if i if we're in there talking to you we're going to feature creep you oh, to, the, to the sky <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah if, if you have any questions go right ahead i didn't check the chats but uh yeah, so this is an active project, I think, um, and asking for community involvement here. I think we should make a, a channel specifically for it rather than just the generic yeah, okay. single board computer <laughs> stuff. Because I think most of those projects, I haven't seen any updates for a while. Have you, Mark? I haven't. I mean, yeah, so I, I think it's worthwhile. Can't believe in saying this. You know, I think we should make a new channel. Uh, as I recall, <laughs> it was created when number 313. Uh, so, was that, what was that, Mark? Created uh, the, channel, the channel was created back when Stevie Stroh was working on a single board computer thing. So there have been some updates in here recently, strangely enough, like <laughs> October of this year, but uh, mm. I haven't caught up with it. So, well, there know. was <clears throat> there was an SBC that I think we was covering. Then I don't remember the gentleman's name, but it was a three point five. Um, megahertz 6309 board that had two uh, 6850s in it. Uh, one one was for the console I/O and one was for whatever the user wanted. Um, but I don't remember who did that board because yeah, I was still wanting that on my my wish list. I just don't remember who who had it so I could still get it. <laughs> Was it finished then, or was it uh, a work in progress, David? No, it was finished um, because he had it where you could put your own custom ROM into it for whatever you wanted. I just don't remember who it was because it's been a couple, three years, I think, now, I think. This uh, The... Um... Speaking of serial cards, this is my feature creep uh, serial card. It's got four serial uh, serial cards, <laughs> two uh, RS-232 and two USB. There you go. <laughs> so USB-A, USB-B, and uh, two, one uh, DTE and one DCE uh, RS-232. <laughs> That's a 8-bit ISA? ISA, yeah. Oh, so you can plug it in the Coco. Nice. <laughs> Actually, you should be able to plug the Burke and Burke directly into it too, then, because that's basically adapting it. So you could skip the outside adapter. The, the, the what? That, 
We we had an XT based <clears throat> hard drive system for the Coco that basically borrowed PC XT hard drive controllers, and mm-hmm. uh, Burke and Burke made a little adapter to go into the Coco's eight bit bus. Yeah, and then wrote all the drivers and stuff too, so we could run all the RL on them from hard drives from back in the day. So, but since you've already got the bus, you just cram a Western Digital thousand four in, and it's good to go. Okay. <laughs> so, that's yeah. funny. Well, from what I understand, doing an IDE interface is actually quite simple. Yeah, uh, we have one of those too. Right. <laughs> but I, I do have some chips for floppies, uh, floppy controller that I bought. And I actually bought some uh, new old stock uh, floppies and new old stock IDE drives. It was brand new, well, brand old, new. But mm-hmm. uh, so eventually I might do that. I'm not sure if I'm going to use floppies or probably I'm going to stick to SD. Yeah, that Aww. that'd be my recommendation. I mean, you know, well, yeah. it'll it'll crush David, but uh, <laughs> um, it's well, I I have real floppies here. The only thing I use them for is if I'm trying to pull stuff off my old backups that well, I haven't if, transferred if over to, already. If you wanted to provide like a legacy port where someone could plug a a game cartridge into the adapter that would go into your bus plane, then yeah, you could put the floppy there if you really wanted to play with a floppy. You know, it, it wouldn't yeah. require any work on your part. Yeah, if you have a backplane Just, version you know, of it, then you you could eventually add them in if David pays you enough money to make them. So uh, there you go. Oh. <laughs> a little, a little <laughs> under the table, this could happen, David. <laughs> Look, David, maybe he'll make you a high density controller. Oh, I already have those, sir. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a high creepy controller, that's for sure. Oh, I can even provide more of that if you like. (laughs) No, that's fine. The word creep comes to mind there. (laughs) Yeah, that's a different kind of feature creep. I had a Um, question, though, about the gimme chip, about the graphics display. You said it was uh, emulating the 6847 plus something else? Yeah, the the 6847 is the old Coco 1 and 2 compatible stuff from the 1978 VDG chip. The Gimme adds a whole bunch of new modes like 320 by 200 and 320 by 225, 640, a bunch of other resolutions. It also has a 64-color palette with uh, up to 16 colors uh, on a screen at once. It's got two 4 and 16-color modes. And then the Gimme X takes it all past that with, you know, 512-color palette and 256-color modes and a bunch of other things as well. And it uh, supplies RGB analog output as well. That was the other thing it has. So their key jam was they they went with the 64K for the CPU, 64K for the graphics rather than 64K for everything. And so it's just how much more can you get in that last 32K of RAM for your graphics space? That's what the gimme adds with the... Yeah. The other nice thing about the gimme is it lets you point to where your graphics display on the screen is coming from from anywhere in the 512K. It doesn't even have to be mapped in for the CPU to see at that time. Whatever's displayed there just goes out to the display. You move your window around. Yeah. Right. That's interesting. So you can can page your video and just tuk 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 and switch it around. Yeah, you can literally vertically scroll just by changing the offset as where it's going. You know, and you'll make a screen that's like 128K long and then just smooth scroll it up and down. It also has horizontal scroll registers and stuff that are a bit coarser, but there's a bunch of things. If you want to get into the gimme stuff, we'll, we'll have, definitely have to get some experts there to talk to you about yeah. that stuff because there's a lot of stuff in the gimme. Yeah, I'd be really interested in uh, getting in touch with that person that does the... Uh... Yeah, contact Gary Becker um, on our on our Discord because he's the one who did the program for the Gimme X, which emulates all of the old Gimme and then adds a whole bunch of new stuff on top of that. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, probably the best place to start. And he's gone through this design twice with the Coco 3 FPJ and the okay. Gimme X, so he really knows it inside and out. So we've even got some. Uh, we even got some photos of the dies. 
uh, available. Yeah, they oh, give yeah, me the. That was fun. <laughs> they did the acid bath thing, you know, a sheet at a time type thing to gradually wear it down. They've got the complete wiring they give me if you want to see it. <laughs> wow. What else should I be considering when I'm designing this to be as compatible as possible for the uh, Coco 3 besides the Gimme chip? Real that would be clock. most of it, that's, I think. That's it. Yeah. They didn't really change anything else other than more yeah, these RAM same and PIAs the and that that allowed. Yeah. Otherwise, it's the same thing. Real time clock. A, I've, yeah. I've put in a real time clock. I would like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's easy enough to do. Yeah. Is there? Um, I was trying to look for the um, the schematic of the Coco Three. I couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, well, I didn't look that oh, much. Well, there's there's several oh. copies up on the archive. Yeah. Plus, Rocky okay. Hill has a nice interactive. Uh, um, uh, it's for his bomb, but it has a, a schematic with the the stuff. I believe if if I remember right. Rocky also found some issues with some of the ones in the archive, and so his should be the most up to date. So since he recreated okay. the circuit board, I would he go fixed to him all as an of those. Okay. Yeah. Yes, okay. I'd call him the expert. Go ask him. But you can okay. get the service manuals and everything else uh, up on the on the archive. Okay. Yeah, colorcomputerarchive.com okay. if you haven't been there yet. Okay. Cool. Interesting. The um, uh, the interface. Um, the multi-pack, I was thinking, because well, I'm doing a backplane version, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I Sloopy was talking to me that it really wasn't just a backplane. There was some intelligence into there, I believe. A little bit. Yeah, uh, a little bit. And um, I suppose I can find the design on that, on the archive also. Yeah, manuals, schematics. And, and also, uh, Jim Brain has done a eight port uh, MPI prototype design that can be chained together to actually make a 16 port one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. There and is then, a... Yeah. If you're David Ladd, you'll really like that. Almost nobody else is going to go that far. Right. So I wouldn't worry too much about 16 um, slots. I can't think of the exact link, but Cuban Coffee is the handle. Um, on GitHub, he has a multi-pack complete with the uh, the logic, the CUPL for it, all the different signals that the multi-pack supports. So you don't have to try to work your way back from Radio Shack's manuals. You can just look at okay, <laughs> actual yeah. equations. Basically, you have it. four bits that you, uh, you have two sets of four bits. One will control where you know the hardware mapping is coming from to actively map it in. The other one controls the ROMs, if I remember. And I can't remember. Right. The, it's SCS, and I can't remember the name. And of CTS. CTS, yeah. yeah. So it, it interrupts, interrupts. It's designed also. to handle up to 16 slots, much to David's ever-loving joy. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, the practicality of the cost of making it something that big. But, uh, yeah, it's 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 a bit more than just plugging in a card. But you can actually, you know, have stuff ghosting, it, or not ghosting, but running at the same address. But you can control... Which slot is actually the current one? So you could actually have cards that are would normally roll over, you know, run over right. top of each other. Which should be the floppy controller. <sighs> yeah, like the SDC and the floppy. I'm at the same time. It does that, you know, where you have to control it by the slot. So okay, and the but, rest of it is just bus buffers. Right? Is there that many devices that can go on six to to, to have uh, to make use of sixteen uh, cards? David, you're the expert on that. Go for it. Um. Well, like any. Uh, 74 LS chips, each chip does 
pull a certain amount of current. So that's where, yes, you would need buffers in the case of some of the Coco's peripherals. I think, what was it, three? If you was using a Y cable, the max was three cards that you could chain on together without buffers. And then any more would start overloading the bus. Um, yeah. So that's why the MPI is nice. And of course, I've been kind of cheating. I've got one of Jim Brain's little devices that lets you plug two devices into it. And I got one of those in the MPI. <laughs> so <laughs> so it gives me an extra slot right there. No, but I think his question more, uh, David, was what, what kind of cards are available that you would need this many slots? Um. Well, let's see here. Um, anything that's ghosted on the uh, M the uh, floppy controller right. ports, um, the Disto Super controllers, where I believe the hard drive controller was mapped into the floppy floppy space. The Coco SDC is another one because if you wanted to use it with a real floppy controller, because those both use the exact same addresses. And then, of course, there's my case where you have a regular floppy controller, the high-density floppy controller, and the Coco SDC. So, right. Right there, so I think I think the Coco had like 16 bytes of I.O. For, for disk controllers. So you had to switch back and forth as to what you had there. Plus, any card with a ROM in it laid on yeah. top of any other card with a ROM in it. So you could very easily, every controller has a ROM. You got to figure out which one of these is the active boot controller in addition to which ones are active hardware controllers with the boot ROM being ignored, it, you know, it covered a lot of ground for what it, what it did. Mm -hmm. You know, and you yeah. had speech, speech sound pack, you had your orchestra 90. Those would have ROMs um, in them or not. Pack, yeah. 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 Separate hard drive controllers and floppy controllers. You had 80 column cards um, for the Coco one and two in the multi-pack more so than the Coco three, obviously. R32 packs, uh, modem packs, which is basically an R32 with an actual 300-baud modem built into it. Um, there, if you go to less stuff like uh, A bus, there was like dozens of different hardware controllers for doing, you know, controlling motors and sensors and all kinds of stuff. So there's quite a bit of stuff. There's a lot of hardware hackery uh, going on. A lot of the magazines that stuff you you know here build your own board. And you can like monitor a, I don't know, a temperature Koala monitor. Station, uh, yeah. Koala pad, the X10. So yeah, graphics too. tablet. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there was a lot of stuff. Hmm. Probably similar to like an Apple II, like where you had so many different cards, you know, that kind of. Well, the, the thing about the Apple II is its but its slots were addressable, but the Coco didn't really have that, yeah. so the multipack had to sort of invent that after the fact, and it shows sometimes, but it the makes sense if you. Yeah, the Apple II is smart in that each of the slots had a dedicated area of 256 bytes that could be ROM on the card. And then any one of those cards could then take over a common area that was another 2K. So when you're active, actually active, when you're actually accessing the card, it could then have more ROM. Yeah. So, which made it real smart in that aspect. Yeah. Not the weird stuff happens on the Coco. Smart, but limiting if you want to be able yes. to swap right. things around. Yeah. The one, thing exactly. I would, the one thing I would add to a multi-pack or a multi-slot design would be a, a proper interrupt controller for it. Because one uh, flaw in the Coco's one is that uh, if an interrupt comes in on a slot that's not currently selected, it doesn't actually make it to the Coco unless you modify the multi-pack and strap the lines together. Right. 
So mm-hmm. ideally, you'd rather have an interrupt controller just says, you know, slot four generated the interrupt. So a general interrupt right. goes to the Coco, and then you read a memory location, go, oh, it was slot four. So it was this R33 pack or this disk right. drive or whatever. That would Which be is... one thing I would add. Yeah, right, because at, at this point, we've got, what, a half a dozen things on the motherboard drawn interrupts that you have to pull to figure out what happened. Yeah. And then whatever you hang on the bus, you also have to pull individually to figure out what happened. And yeah, it takes forever. It, Two megahertz. Yeah. <laughs> it's fairly in, easy enough to do an interrupt controller uh, without yeah. a, a true interrupt controller. And you can do it with, a, with an EPLD or the uh, 74 LS uh, 148. And you just read the register from there and, okay, I'm going to yeah. go to that device. I mean, that's it. Yeah. Instead of pulling everything. Tuk, 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 all, all. Ed Snyder on the, uh, the Mega Mini MPI, which is his uh, kind of enhanced duplicate of a four-slot MPI, does add that functionality where you can actually monitor where what slot generated the interrupt. And he's got some other internal hardware he added, too. He's got dual 16550s and a, an OPL3 sound chip built in there, too. And they have their own interrupts that also could present. But you can just read the location, and you immediately know which one of the devices did it. So, yeah, yeah that definitely, definitely helps. Oh, yeah. When Tandy originally introduced it, I think they were thinking more people were going to put like four game cartridges in there and you'd pick which game you want to pick by flipping the oh, right. ROM select switch. <laughs> and that's pretty well what they thought people would be using it for. And people are going, no, I want like graphics tablets and hard drives and scanners and, you know, whatever else. Apple so, II Envy. Right. Yeah, they, they never met me. <laughs> no. I wasn't aware that there was a, any hard drives for the Coco, though. Oh, lots. We had ID, SCSI, SASE, MFM, RLL. There's one. ST225 plugged into a I remember that. I had one on my PC. This is actually a Western Digital PC controller. I wish I could get the cover. That's what I was telling you about the Burke and Burke. But it does a little adapter to fit the Coco bus into a PC controller into a ST225. There's your hard drive. In fact, Tandy themselves had a hard drive kit for the Coco. Yeah, it was astronomically priced, but it, they had yeah. one. I think they also they different developers, but had a great pounds, key on it. But... Yeah, it just had a little adapter board that uh, connected their standard uh, primary yeah. controller. It was weird because Tandy kind of did the same trick that Commodore did with their floppies on their hard drive, and that there was a single board computer in the first hard drive of that set. And so the, the host adapter talked to the single board computer, which presented the data back in a manner where the, the three, the four, the Coco, everybody could read it. Yeah, it's like um, the Western Digital 1010, I think it was. Was it? It's, and I know it's it's got a big old honking CPU in the middle of it. And uh, yeah, I don't have it up handy anywhere. But yeah, it's pretty impressive what's in that first controller case. Well, we don't want that sort of thing nowadays. No, 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 no. No, no I just thought it was really cool. <laughs> I didn't want way. it back in the day. I remember Bill Noble and I went down. And I, I bought a Burke and Burke at Rainbow Fest on Friday night. And then he bought the, the Tandy one. And then he went back to his room. And then we started talking to C. Bjork and others who had the, you know, those things because they were given to him by Tandy Fest developers. Mm-hmm. And then you find out that this is just the adapter. You still need the control. And you have to buy the primary drive from Tandy. And those were a couple thousand bucks back at that time. My Burke and Burke one, I could hook up a drive for like 300 bucks, 400 bucks for a smaller one. So Bill went the next day, went back to the Radio Shack booth, sold it back to them, like basically returned it, and then went and bought a, a different one. <laughs> the only thing now that I'm uh, still debating, on, and probably I can try all, all the major ones, and I'd like to know what your uh, favorite is, is the operating system. 
you know, OS nine, black. I'm too biased, so I'll have to nitrous. step out of this discussion. But <laughs> I, I'm sure. Yeah, nitrous OS nine. Nitrous nine. <laughs> nitrous nine. <laughs> Whatever I can play Neutroid with. <laughs> uh, that's a bug not a feature um <laughs> well in fact by the coco 3 tandy declared that all of their games would be os9 all of their software would be OS9. except they weren't anything they, they sold weren't the but they declared but... that so yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was so basically nine. what i'm hearing is the majority is nitrous nitrous nine not yeah, just I mean, honestly, if you're going to put a six or you want and you want to fully utilize the power, it's the only one that actually has been fully updated to, to okay. match. There's nothing stopping a flex port to the six three nine or Fusic. Right. Fusic does Fusic use six three nine? I don't even remember. Yeah, I don't know. We'd have to talk yeah, to Fusic. Uh, Brett. I think he's just doing six. I don't know the last I heard, but I haven't really kept up with him lately, so that might have changed. I don't know. But do you want to get? You want an OS that has some momentum at least. I mean, yeah, right. I think that would be you can always write to the code. You know, there's nothing special about 6809 assembly that you have to do anything for that. But Nitrous 9, you know, okay, we've got to meet a certain standard there. Yeah. And there's and, languages already done for it. So there's like a, you know, 6309 right. optimized RMA assembler and C compiler and base 9 and and you can still get stuff like fourth and lisp and all kinds of things. So <laughs> there. There's a bike for... bring your software. The hardware wasn't enough. Right. Tom <laughs> Eric Gunderson says uh Dragon DOS. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Mike Miller way... suggested Uniflex, which we did discuss briefly on the show, oh. but I don't think we have source for that. That at least that I remember. Mike Mikey can correct me if I'm wrong, because I think he's still in the chat or he was earlier anyway. It it's a really cool project. I'm, I'm glad you invited us on. That was a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to see what you come up with if we don't keep creeping into the point where it never actually happens. Well, you can ignore <laughs> everything we say. Build what you want. We'll still play with it. Right, there's there's one more thing, though. Is it an obligation to have the screen background green? No. <laughs> really uh, bright, searing green. <laughs> It's too calming. It is. <laughs> Green is the most relaxing color. It is required. Well, it is I'd say if you were emulating a Cocoa 1 or 2, that yes, it probably should be by default. But on a Cocoa 3, honestly, most mm -hmm. of us had modified ROMs that booted up in 80 column with, you know, white right. on dark blue or black text or something. Yeah. We didn't. Yeah. <laughs> what brand is your mic? Our, uh, Road. Oh, oh, root. Road. Road. R O D E, yeah, yeah, it's it's cool looking. It's an Australian uh, brand. Oh. That's why Nick knows it. That's oh, right. Mike. So I fucking understand him. He's <laughs> <laughs> using the proper mic. That's right. <laughs> Even with the French accent added on. That's right. We <laughs> <Oui, oui. laughs> we. Really we stuff. should have a break pretty soon. We mm. we. Oui, oui. All we right. should also jump to uh, yeah. Now, Bob. now that we've done all the extra interview stuff, we can get on to the regular show. For three well, hours. we should talk to Bob oh, and see how his Coco Three is going. Since we're talking hardware, computers, and stuff, uh, we can do a break first, though. Um, oh yeah, after the break, I mean, yeah. So I think okay. he got it running, didn't he? All right, Bill, you will see after the break. <laughs> okay.
Hello, this is Mark Siegel, product manager for the Color Computer product line and designer of the Tandy Color Computer 3. And I'm proud to be a citizen of the Coco Nation. Making games for the Coco for over 35 years. Go to my Coco Games website at www.nickmarentes.com for information and pricing of my later games as well as downloads of many of my older games. Coco 2's got personality, lots of practicality, fun, it's sensational, learn, it's educational. Coco 2's expandable, so easily commandable. It's programmable, so term exam grammable. Just you and Coco 2 do what you want to do. Coco 2, the color computer with personality from Radio Shack. Sale price for Christmas giving from $149.95. Radio Shack's Coco 2, do what you want to do. Just you and Coco 2. And we are back. So, uh, Bob, how uh, how you, how you doing with that uh, Coco Three? Oh, let me see here. Is my mic on? Yes. Yep. yep. All right. Well, uh, <clears throat> no significant uh, progress lately, but I do have my. You can uh, highlight them there, Mark. Or... Turn this thing. Oh on yeah, I suppose I ought to do that. <laughs> virtual background. Okay, so looking I do good. have the Athena board in an actual case. I don't know why it looks blue in this camera. White balance board out. Yeah. Now you had a video last week that showed what the issue uh, issue was you were having with it. Um, I haven't finished watching these, watching it though. So basically after I got it all soldered together, yeah, I had, uh, 
I was getting good uh, composite and RF output, but the RGB was not working. And uh, let's see, there was... I had no composite there for a while. Yeah, there was no composite initially, and I did. I was able to figure that out. So basically, in the board itself, in uh, Rocky's board, the 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 TO ninety two transistor pads that he used, and there's like five of them on here. Um, but they're just very narrowly uh, spaced, real real close together, mm. and there was actually uh, not just that, but um, the transistors that I used, that was that was the first major problem. He's using a 2SC945, and I think I used a KSC945, and the pinout is not quite the same. Oh, yeah, I hate so that. I the, the collector and base reversed on all five of them. Oh, so oh, wow. once I fixed that, I just uh, removed them, I put a little insulation on the base and twisted them around no problem and then the composite started and i still didn't have any rgb uh even though i fixed those three well first i i did the composite made sure that was working and then i uh sorted out those three transistors but i still wasn't getting a rgb i was only getting r um, so I uh, turn the computer on and I'd get a black screen and the cursor would flash like red and maybe I don't know any color that contained red the cursor would flash on and then pretty much nothing else so I took the board back out and on those three RGB driver transistors basically I uh, found a lack of continuity from between the output pins here, they go down to these three resistors and then up to the transistors. There was just a little uh, continuity issue. I had to add two quarter inch long bodges and now the RGB works perfectly. Posits working perfectly. Everything works just about perfectly. Uh, got one weird thing that I can't figure out with my keyboard connector here. On Rick's keyboard, uh, column 12 doesn't work on the on the Keyfix 3 keyboard, but in its own machine, it still works fine, and the original keyboard works in here. It's, it's just a weird connection. Huh. I have a, a theory because this is a dual wipe uh, socket. I, I suspect if I flip it around, it might possibly work. That seems like a lot of trouble to <laughs> test that theory, though. Right. Hmm. But overall, and aside from that, I still have not. Uh, I've tried putting the Gimme X in here a few times, and it just will not boot. Sometimes it gives me semi graphics garbage. Sometimes it gives me P mode garbage. But then once it's been on for a few seconds, it generally just gives me a solid green screen with nothing on it. Mm. So in, in light of hoping to diagnose that, I have acquired one of these little babies, the Zotec uh, multimeter and oscilloscope. 
and just getting myself familiar with this. It's actually working pretty well. I like it. Oscilloscopes hmm. are always handy. Well, a oscilloscope that looks like a multimeter is super handy. <laughs> I want one already, and I don't even and know what all it does. It has a consistent ground, and then not bouncing around on me all over the place is quite handy. It's even handier. <laughs> does that have a signal generator anywhere on it? Uh, this one does not, but I do have a signal generator on my desk. Well, it has a probe calibration. It does. That's a signal so, generator. Other, other than the Gimme X, you've basically got <laughs> everything that? working. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, uh, Sweet. every game I've tried plays. So, um, this is the one machine I will say that I, I think I've uh, mentioned on other occasions on my Coco 3P when I play uh, Jumpin' Joey, and that's the only game that does it too, uh, just every once in a while. During gameplay, the, the screen will just kind of flash, just glitch out for a split second and then comes back. And this Athena board does kind of the same thing, but not quite as bad. So the RGB bodges, are those Athena board problems or is that just rework issues? Where um, I think it was... Um, a combination because Rocky used those super narrow uh, TO92 pads. Right. And when I took the train reposition the legs, I think that's probably what did it. Mm. And I mentioned that to him. He said when he does another rework, he's going to use uh, uh, heavier pads for those or wider spacing or something. It's the stupidest thing that I've ever seen in electronics. ABC, ECB. Pick one. Yeah, <laughs> like some transistor salesman somewhere, right? Right <laughs> now, these are better because, yeah, this is RCA. Yeah, that's, that's the thing about standards, everybody has one, right? Right, but they make them the same. Okay, we got a flat side, we got three leads in a row, but there are different orders, and there's no way to tell the difference yeah. unless you look up the number and look up the data sheet, and then you can yeah. tell. Same thing with uh, TO220 uh, regulators. I mean, sometimes pin one is the input and sometimes it's pin three. Mm -hmm. Right? Same thing. That's, that's just, we sell a lot of parts this way. Oh, yeah. See, y'all are explaining to me why I stick with software. <laughs> oh, no, it happens there too. This version right? of the library changed the, how the function call works, blah, blah, blah. Well, I try not to do that, but. <laughs> yeah, but everyone else does it wrong. Backwards yeah. compatibility, man. So I guess there is actually one other uh, issue here that I uh, discovered recently uh, while playing games with it. Looks like my... Okay, I'm worried about my internet connection. It's been a little sketchy today, but um, the DAC board here doesn't seem to be calibrated properly for the joysticks. They're um, like I have an Atari adapter that is you know 47k top and bottom and it's centering at about 41 instead of 32 so <clears throat> i think rocky said that there's some resistors on here that could be calibrated or something so we'll, we'll okay. figure that out 
but it still works for some games and some games not so much like uh, Nick's Pac-Man. I was able to score 30,000 using this machine. But Popstar Pilot, it, as soon as it starts going, he's diving down and to the right. And so makes it a little tricky. But do you have a deluxe joystick where you can try cramming um, the I, centers yeah, over? I, I do have one of those. I haven't seen if it has enough uh, range in it to calibrate that out. Right, there's but there's I'll, not I'll a whole lot of control out. authority there, but you can yeah. fix some things. Yeah, but I think you would want to try to fix it at the hardware level so it's not offset yeah, by yeah. 10. It just let you know exactly how bad it is. And say the solution is to go buy a deluxe joystick. <laughs> <laughs> if you could, yeah. Right. Yeah, Rick sells them, so I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't mind. Well, well no, I don't. <laughs> I can't find them anymore. Yeah, no, they're gone. Because you're converting well, all those IBM PC or Tandy ones uh, over. Yeah, what what happened when they when they blew up the retro computer warehouse in Dallas? A lot of PC Junior stuff ended up on the market flooded at once. Unfortunately, I didn't have enough money to soak up hmm. as much as I would have liked. So, yeah. One other neat little thing I did on this board, since I don't have it in a permanent case or anything, but I have to have a power LED on everything. There you got to have an LED. <laughs> of course. Stuck it in the unused memory chip there. Got one of the, one of the sockets from the 128K. Yeah, just plug it in there. <laughs> so like it's it. like ninety nine point nine percent there. It's just a few little like Gimme X. Just, you know, obviously yeah. has some sort of timing issue, and then you also That's, the joysticks are a little off. Yeah, the main thing I would really want to do is get the Gimme X working with it, and that's basically right. the the proof of concept of an entirely brand new color computer made from scratch. You know, right? Once you can put the Gimme X in and it runs, you don't need anything, right? From the Coco. Yeah, and then maybe really, that'll drive the eBay prices back down a bit because they're just getting yeah, stupid exactly. now. Right. People right. who want to run it can buy one again. That would be it nice. does do so, you know, it does produce a square green screen. So that's encouraging. And calming. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. yes, it's very calming. <laughs> so I think what my plan is, I'm going to use this uh, scope and I can't really, you know, test connections between the two boards while it's all plugged together. There's no access. But I'll I'll try scoping out, you know, the top of the board while it's running in the working machine. And then I'll put it in here and try the same tests and see if I can figure out what's different. I just want to mention, Bob, we got a couple of comments in the chat here from Mike Miller and Kieran both. They said uh Mike says the DAC ladder is knackered by the sounds of it. And then Kieran <laughs> says, Yeah, kind of weird. Uh, the DAC, yeah, what Mike said, it's just a comparator against the DAC output at the end of the day and halfway through it too. All right. Uh, worst case scenario, you can put a potentiometer to manually calibrate it. Yeah, might be a little tricky on that surface mount board, but I'll I'll try it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm game. <laughs> cool. Well, it, it, you made a lot of progress because I mean, the the first time you yeah, went through, you weren't getting output at all. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Now you got to, you know, I you can play next games on it means that it's a complete computer to me. Yeah. I guess so the one a... flaw besides the, the Gimme X and the joystick is the fact it still plays Neutroid. I would have put a special stop <laughs> to that. <laughs> a built in firewall. Yeah. Exactly. You're on port 6312. <laughs> you're done. <laughs> if it's Gunstar, let it go and run it at double speed or something. But yeah. 
Cool. Well, uh, keep us up to date if you figure out what's going on with the joysticks and the Gimme X, because I'm kind of curious exactly. It's It sounds like pretty minor timing issues or something, basically. it's Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, you know, it has to boil down to, you know, some odd choice of capacitor that I made rather than maybe what Rocky spec'd or I don't know. Yeah, though I don't think Rocky actually has a Gimme X to try himself, so he, no, exactly. if he does have something slide off, he wouldn't know either. Right, he wouldn't be able to. Could even be a little incompatibility with the socket. Right, because you got a homemade socket versus not quite the Tandy socket that the homemade socket was made to fit. And yeah, there could be all kinds the of difference problems. in tolerance really? on today's sockets versus the, the 80s two socket. But the, the stock gimme works pretty well, so I don't know. Yeah. Right. Cool. Anyway, let's shift to something completely different now and uh Oh, Talk about game on challenge and and the games of the week and the new game for next week. Okay. And Ken actually will have a bit of a shorter segment because we didn't have a live game stream this past Thursday because uh, of American holidays on a regular Thursdays we call it. And uh, yeah, then you go close the border on us. Well, you guys drove across and flew through the air in a car and blew it up. That's not our fault. <laughs> and Canadian terrorists. <laughs> this American terrorist, that was the problem. Oh no. my. And worse uh, yet, they were just trying to go to a KISS concert that got canceled or something. It's just ridiculous. Wow. Okay. High score challenge. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the Coco Nation Game On Challenge of the Week. This week we played Montezuma's Dungeons. We had a total of 13 players. We had Ed Rose with 1,500, Coconut Bob with 2,250, Canadian Retro Things, 2,550, David Ladd, 3,150, Mr. Dave, 6309, 4150. Jim Rye, 5500. Rich N, 7750. Nerf Herder, 9850. Tasman, 12950. L. Curtis Boyle, 13900. Buck Owens, 15900. Derek, 17650. And this week's number one score belongs to... Shenley with 45,200. Thanks, everybody that played, and we'll see you again next week. That's a pretty large leap to first place, Ken. Yeah, that, that, that was a fair-sized uh, leap. He, Shenley <laughs> must have just definitely been uh, milking the score a bit. So, um, yeah, this was uh, Montezuma's Dungeons, a game based on Venture from the... Uh, uh, arcade, ColecoVision. Yeah, know, Arcade, ColecoVision. As a matter of fact, uh, got the uh, ColecoVision cartridge right here. Let me blow you up. Hey, come on. Yeah, make me Blow them up real good. <laughs> so... <laughs> I done blew them up. The original game was by Exidy. And uh, 
It was only actually in the arcade ColecoVision and Atari 2600 and in, or no, in television. So uh, this was obviously a cloned version uh, that was from TND in the uh, magazine stuff. Uh, let me see here. So. So the August 1984 TND subscription software. It's the last one on the uh, there on the uh, list. And the little write up that they have on here is just basically the instructions on how to load it and play it. So I couldn't find any actual reviews of the game, but. Yeah, it was pretty rare that TND or Chromoset programs got reviewed per se, unless yeah. somebody did it way, way after the fact, but the magazines generally didn't because that was their competitor. <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, definitely a passable version of Venture. So um, we did discuss last week a couple of the things about it, like uh, you definitely go a lot faster if you move diagonally and it would be have been nice if you could have sh shot the uh, witch when she was coming after you because she moved really fast and yeah. So yeah, I don't have anybody... any gameplay tips that I discovered since last week either. So. Yeah. I guess Shenley Except would be do the whatever Shenley that... did. Yeah. <laughs> and I would uh, guess probably the easiest thing to do if you wanted to milk it for a score would be you go in, you kill the bad guys in a room and then you leave right away without taking the treasure and then just go back in. And keep doing that on the first level because uh, nothing's ever going to get faster and you can keep going in and killing the stuff until you get the treasure. Once you get the treasure, you don't get points for it anymore. Oh, that's the trick. Yeah, that's not the but, way I play the game, yeah. even if it did help my score. No, just me neither. I, I want to see how far I can get. Yeah, and I want to see what the new treasures are because they change every time you finish a round of six rooms. Yeah. So. I think the bad guys change too, or is just the treasure? Oh, I can't remember now. I'm going to confuse it with the other venture clone we have in the yeah. code. Um, yeah, actually, I think the monsters do change, except the witch. Yeah, but I'm, I can't remember for sure. Uh yeah. So I don't know. Not much else to say about that game because we did talk about it uh, most of the tips and tricks unless anybody else playing had uh, come up with anything this week either in chat or on on the panel it's too bad we can't uh, kill the uh, monsters in the actual main screen well you couldn't do that in the original game either so yeah that was part of the challenge you had to like sneak around them to get into rooms However, in the original game, you didn't have near as many monsters out in the room or in the uh, tunnels, so you could uh, escape them a lot easier. Mm. And, uh, yeah, the other big difference that uh, I did mention last week is when the witch comes after you in, like, the ColecoVision or the arcade version, if you shoot them, they stop for a second. So gives you a chance to get away, but... Yeah, here, the shooting, it does nothing. I don't know. I've never actually managed to hit the witch. I have. She, moves she just fast. ignores it and keeps pile driving after you at hyperspeed. That's what happens. Perfect. <laughs> in, this this game, 
in this version, you're a dot on the uh, on that first screen uh, that moves around all the uh, corridors and things. Is that how the arcade one is as well? Uh, yes, it is. Um, right. Just a second here. I believe I have... So this is... Uh... That's inside a room, yeah? Yeah, that's inside of a room. Let's see, do they show... Oh, I guess this doesn't show. This doesn't show, yeah. But I did. I played this game a lot on the uh, ColecoVision, and yeah, you're just a dot on it. Right. Yeah, both so. Coca versions, you're just a dot on the outside hall, hall yeah. section. I guess it's better to play with a joystick than on a keyboard, I suppose, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's always like better. If you want a real challenge, you can use two paddles. <laughs> Actually, some games are easier via keyboard. It's just dependent on uh, the game. Uh, yeah, I didn't have a. Yeah, but it's it's harder to sit back and relax when you have the keyboard there. It's easier to do it with the joystick. I'm just going to share a screen here. This is from Clob.com, and uh, here you can see the yeah, hall okay. monsters. And you can see you're just this little red dot, so it's the same on the arcade game. Yeah. Now, the arcade game had more varied rooms. Like, you had these moving walls coming in. You had to dodge and stuff, too, to get, get the treasure, not just shooting. And you had traps. Uh, yeah. Certain things that uh, once you got into a certain spot in the room, then new monsters would form. Uh, there was disappearing walls that you had to find the spot to walk across to make the walls disappear so you could get to the treasure. Yeah, so this is one thing the Coco uh, version, uh, both versions on the Coco actually missed. They basically just did the basic premise of the game, you know, the hall monsters type thing on the outside, and then your individual rooms with monsters to kill don't take too long because the, the the faster one comes after you type thing, but we didn't get any of the fancier stuff. Now, I'm presuming, I haven't played the ClicoVision so long, I don't remember, did it have the, uh, I think it did have the uh, moving walls and all the extra bits there. Oh yeah, definitely, did. and it had the three different levels with uh, that each had different rooms in them. Yeah. And it had different varying monsters. Like there's one, uh, I think you're fighting Cyclopses in one room where they will disappear and then reappear somewhere else. Yeah. I always like their font too. They actually did a, not your standard arcade font that almost every other game at the time did. Mm hmm. I anyway, mean, yep. That's, uh, that's the arcade one there. I don't know if I ever actually played it in the arcade or did I always just play it on my ColecoVision and in television now? I have played in the arcade, but it's been probably 35 years since I last did. Because it wasn't it wasn't a very common game, at least not in the no, arcades here. I'm just trying to remember if I ever actually saw it in the arcade because it was one of the uh, early games that I got from my ColecoVision back in the day. And Because at that I'm time, when it was released, I was really into Dungeons and Dragons. There was two games that I tried to play in the arcade at that time and then that were kind of along that line. Space Dungeon, which is also very rare. You don't see too often. And then Venture. Well, when I was going through my Dungeons and Dragons phase, it was definitely Venture and Gateway to Apshai on my ColecoVision. <laughs> yeah. Now, when Gauntlet and Gauntlet 2 came out you know, in the mid-80s, that I, I worshipped at that machine pretty well. Oh, yeah, I played that a lot in the arcade. <laughs> And man, was it expensive. Yep. And what was the other game, Ken? Uh, the other game that we played this week was... Um... Mm. 
Um, yeah, you know that other game. <laughs> uh, Gla- Glaxons. I thought it was and... Glax off. <laughs> nope, Glaxon. <sighs> Glaxons plural, I believe, actually. But yeah, Glaxons. Yeah. Uh, so that's a uh, Galaga style game, and um, I guess with one some thing noticeable did... notable changes that I know, like uh, Nick had mentioned, he does not like yeah. the play mechanic. Because it's too hard, or it it doesn't just make sense. Well, blows up your missile before it hits anything. If you if you launch another missile, your old one blows up. Yeah, that did that in a lot of games. Um, yeah, Gorf is a rather famous one that does that. Gorf, yeah, I, like I think I I think actually the original, um, not Galaga, but the one that came before it, uh, Galaxian. Galaxian. I think Galaxian, or no, Galaxian. No, it did. It just had single uh, shot, but it. Uh, it had it, single shot, so you couldn't shoot again until it got off the screen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but Gorf, I remember, famously had that same mechanic where you, you hit the button again, your old shot disappears and your new one takes over. Which, if you get used to it, is handy because you can see all that's right. not going to hit anything. You can abort it and do another one. But on the other hand, if you're used to like Twitch firing a, an arcade game, well, you're screwed because you can only hit stuff right in front of you. <laughs> Which is uh, one of the one of the fun things about this. It uh, so the people that like to use like um, auto fires and stuff, they're screwed. <laughs> yeah, and us yeah. old guys have an advantage because yeah, we can pause and think. Well, we're going to pause and think whether we want to or not. So we'll know whether yeah, to I shoot can, again or my not. My thumb can keep up to the shots. <laughs> <laughs> And the other unique thing about this one versus Gallagher Glaxon is that you actually have some vertical movement too, so you can yeah. go up and down to help dodge or you know get a shot off quicker or whatever. And a unique thing is if you're playing two players um, on the same computer at the same time, each player can pick their own skill level, which yeah. is quite rare, I think. I don't recall too many games doing that. That's cool. Little brother mode. Yep, literally. <laughs> Well, I technically you could do that on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred because you just set one of the controllers to easy and one to hard. Oh yeah, you could back then because you had switches. Yeah. yeah, this was a bit more nuanced because I think there's what seven or eight skill levels, and you can pick you know three for me and zero for little brother or one or whatever it was. Well, you don't pick zero because that means not play. Oh right, that's a demo, isn't it, or something? Yeah, demo. If you pick skill level zero, it just plays for itself. Um, or if you hit oh. player. I yeah. thought you gave little your little brother the controller that wasn't hooked up. Take zero. So it's like Neutroid. It just plays itself. There you go. <laughs> Actually, so Nick, you should enjoy this game. <laughs> now, has anybody played uh, Glaxons enough? I didn't I notice there is some scores in the high score uh, game on Challenge Channel on Discord. Has anybody got any tips or tricks for Glaxons so far? I, I don't have any. I had a chance to play it get, uh, yet, and I haven't played it in years, so I don't really remember anything. Don't die. <laughs> shut off your auto fire controller. I guess that's yeah. Fine. Shut off the auto fire. <laughs> the auto no, no fire. No. no, that's when you turn on the auto auto uh, uh, halt line modes. That way you can slow down the game. Well, you or you can just pick an easier skill level. Yeah. Oh, what is the skill level that you're recommending for the challenge? Uh, I had said one. I just forgot to write it in there. 
Okay. Oh, you're right. I'm because... player two, honest, running at the maximum hardest skill. I'm not player zero running at skill one. <laughs> I mean, visually, it's... it's a nice looking game. It's probably one of the better, graphically wise, one of the better Galaxian style games. That actually, the ships are well drawn. They're well detailed. They look like they're fine detail too. They're not just using the, you know, Pimo three as an alternate color set for artifact graphics, where you're basically having your your horizontal resolution just to make it easier to program. But they actually, you know, like Donkey King does, they actually do the finer shapes as well. Um, I remember the sounds, not bad. It's not exceptional or anything, but not bad. Um, but yeah, the the firing mechanic. If you have not played a Gorf style game before, it's going to take a bit of getting used to. Especially for Nick, apparently. <laughs> and it's not and we don't have any gameplay footage because uh, there was no uh, live game challenge. There was talk, Ken, originally of seeing if some of us Canucks and Aussies might have got together on Discord. Did anybody show up, do you know, or did you even have time uh, to look yourself? As far I never had time to look myself. I was busy uh, catching well, up I on looked. some other stuff. Nobody else showed up. So what did you score? Mark, you could have had the high score for the whole evening if you just yeah, yeah I, you could I have just gone one just, player. If you had jumped have. in, then probably somebody other people would have jumped in with you. I was for a little bit. Oh. Just to... I missed that. I did I checked around I think about two hours after it would have normally started and I didn't see anybody, so Yeah, I was I was there right at the uh, eight o'clock and actually could have could have run a show if there were if people were there, but they oh well. And you could have been the high stuff. score holder for a whole day. Level yeah. zero, level zero, level zero, level zero. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah you could work. have just sat at the level zero and walked away. <laughs> and just and walked away play. and had lunch or something. <laughs> I, I opted to work on my other project back there. So, <laughs> What, the Christmas tree? Uh, that too. Cleaning up cat vomit? No, I a, there's a PC on the that desk there behind me. Yeah, so far looking in the channel, I think there's only one video that's in the Game On Challenge for Galaxons. Um, is is that David Ladd's video? Yeah, I um, think so. I don't know, maybe. But he's got <laughs> such a potty mouth, we never want to play that oh, one yeah. on the air. Yeah. I mean, he's he's playing Predator, Predator again or something. <laughs> yeah, play that. I'm uh, not Predator, I mean... What <laughs> <laughs> yeah, insane... <laughs> so uh yeah like we said there's no game on this week but there will be one again next week right sloopy absolutely when when uh, is that sloopy that will be thursday at 8 p.m eastern standard time join us on the coco nation game on challenge live where we'll be playing Glaxons again, and we'll also be playing another great Coco game. I think Sloopy's just... been practicing. That was very well presented. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the other one? That's now, what happens when you go game, to rehearsal. Well, I'm no. glad you asked. This is actually a brand new game, one that I've been kind of waiting for the uh, versions to come out. And um, they came out this week. If anybody pays any attention to the Inufuto games. Kazoon I'm going to guess that nobody but uh, Curtis will know the name of this game. <laughs> I just wait until I see it on the news so that I know that they've been released. 
So this is uh how do you pronounce that? Udo, Udow? I'm not even sure. I would I would pronounce it Udo. Okay. So and I hope we have a link to download it. I will it will be in the news and he can post it even ahead of time. So I will post the uh disc image that Curtis made up, or you could go right to the Infuto website and download the cassette image if you want to play it off tape, then should free. mention as well, there's a Coco 3 version, a Coco 1 and 2 version, and an MC10 version. So if you have an MC10, well, you, you can That's play it on that That's just what I was about to say. <laughs> so you can play this uh, one, a Coco 1, 2, or 3, or an MC10. Or an Alice. This, or this an is one of those interpretive games. Yeah. So the idea of this game, uh, just let me bring the screen up again that had the... <laughs> 60 says, I gave it a try earlier, and I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> so like this uh, you're the you're the little white guy there and you're guiding the car around the field and you have to make it uh collect all the flags and you do that by when you're standing in a spot you hit the space bar to drop an arrow and then whatever direction you move in it'll create an arrow for that direction and when the car hits it it'll move that way uh <laughs> i guess we'll figure it out so you're like running ahead of your old Model yeah. T with the flag. Yeah, yeah the old basically. Yes. You're, 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 you're coming this way. The car is moving along and you're dropping signs to tell it which way to turn. So it's following you around. And yeah. so and if you what? don't drop something out of it, it'll hit and destroy a wall. And if it gets outside of the screen, you die. Yeah. So but basically, if, if you, you just let it run back and forth, it'll punch through walls in either direction until it goes outside the screen. And then the game's pretty well over. Or at least you've lost mm. the man. So you have to get ahead of him in time and then drop the flag to steer it around. And then get the heck out of the way and let him... So this is kind of sounding a bit like Neutroid. (laughs) God, no, please. No, no, no. It makes a lot... Once once you start playing it, it makes a lot more sense than Neutroid. Okay. (laughs) I mean, it's like, you're not controlling the thing, the, the... The thing, yeah, you're doing some other thing thing that will control the thing. If you control the thing, it controls the thing. So it's an RT. Yeah, but you can make the car turn right around. It can go um, in the opposite direction if you want it to. Yeah. Now, the other thing, too, is that you'll see there's a boulder on there. So some obstacles that you don't want the car to hit because it'll die. You've also got a little monster that's chasing you around that can actually injure you, the guy that's leaving the arrows. And you can also uh, reroute the car so it hits that. So once again, it's kind of similar to Neutroid. This is kind of scaring me, Ken. <laughs> is that boulder? Is that a bouncing boulder? No, no it's, it's, a de- it's a deadly it's a, boulder. It's a ball boulder. Yeah. And of course, every time you complete a screen, you get a new maze. And maybe in later levels, you new stuff. I've only played the first two myself so far. Yeah, me too. So it, the, it's it, it takes a little bit to figure it out. But once you figure it out, it's pretty it's self-explanatory. Hard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. just like Neutroid. The yeah. big thing is no, that, that never got explained properly. But uh... <laughs> the thing that took me the longest to figure out was uh, when you're dropping the arrows, you drop the arrow first, and then you move in a direction, and that's the direction of the arrow that you've dropped. Oh, okay. Yeah, that confused me at the beginning too. I kept trying to make it so that it was the direction I was facing, and yeah, no. that never worked. I've done ruined this. Game. I will mention too when 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 Ken posts up the uh, disc image that I made, I didn't bother trying to patch it to run a cassette based game because it's got all the graphics map basically over top discs. So you'll get little things running in the background from the uh, disc timer, motor timer, and eventually it might even crash. So I would recommend I put ROM L on that image, and whether you're running Coco one, two, or three, just load them ROM L first, 
And then it, when you exec that, it'll prompt for the name of the program and you pick the Cocoa 1 and 2 or the Cocoa 3 version and type in that file name, no extension. And then it'll load it and give you some you know technical information. Just hit a key to get past that and then it'll play without glitching up. Uh, yes. So it's complicated to load, let alone play. No, it's if you're running off cassette, it's not complicated to load. It's just a clone M and exec. It's just that it was designed for cassette only. So you didn't. They, or if you you're two guys have not figured out disk stuff yet. If you're running it off of RawML, you just have to run RawML and then type in the name of the program that you're running. So rather than load, you run RawML and then type in the name. That's too complicated. I'll stick to Neutroid. <laughs> I I don't know how to make it any simpler. I know you're an Atari guy, Sloopy, but <laughs> yeah. Are you saying the brain damage is already set in? Is that what you're saying, Ken? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Do you get your own Panzer division with that? With your Rommel? Oh, no, no. Uh, mm -hmm. What the thing I would recommend is uh, if you come to the game on challenge on Thursday at eight, as Eastern as Sloopy has mentioned. Uh, Ken and I can demonstrate it and kind of show if anybody's still a bit confused about it. Like if you have with no instructions, because there's no instructions on the website for Inafuto, Um, I was a bit confused of it too. And then I watched the video because I have a couple of videos. We'll, we'll be showing those later on actually in the, in the game on news here. So you guys get, will get a bit of a feel for it. Um, but once you actually get used to the controls, as Ken says, it's actually not that difficult. It's more of a puzzle, mazy game type thing at yeah. that point. Yeah, you didn't say that about Neutroid. <laughs> I didn't say it was much improved <laughs> 40 years after the fact, but still. Yes, be there at the beginning mm -hmm. of the show Thursday, and I will show you how to load it properly. You'll show us. Okay. Yes. <laughs> like I said, I could go through and actually patch it. So, you know, add a little preloader that disables the disk ROM and the disk IR or uh, timeout timer and all that stuff. But Rommel is just so much easier. <laughs> Are you lazy farts can type eight characters? <laughs> yeah, I'll buy that. Just rename the file to one character, then you only have to type one character. You in could Rommel. do that. You could literally do that. Runstar. Yeah, that's familiar. Yeah. The MC10 one is cassette, though, so that you'll have to go grab and, and load it in yourself as a WAV. And because the, the MC10 doesn't have arrow keys, right? So I think that's where you have to use the IJKM or whatever it is. Uh, it has arrow keys. It's the it's the WASX, I think, on the MC10. Oh, right, right, right. Because there's a couple alternate keys on the Cocoa version. You can use the IJKM, I think it is, which is basically like the Apple II, you know, ed basic editor keys, or the arrow keys. And then the space bar or shift key mm -hmm. can be used to drop the arrows, so. Wow, a lot of different keys. Yeah. Now, you have a couple options. No joystick, the though. Software patch it for WASD. <laughs> yeah, you could. Right. I'm yes. not going to do it, but you could. <laughs> Get that glitch going. Yeah. That's your job. You want to learn about the 68, uh, 6809, 6309? You can start by patching it so that you don't need to use the Rommel and that you can use WASD on it. You're volunteering, right, Slippy? No, no. Go for it. Yeah, right. that, that's, that's too much like a D chord. I can't play that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
Uh, actually, Sloopy, honestly, I think uh, once you get into it and kind of figure out how it plays, I think you'll actually like it because it is somewhat scarily a bit like Neutroid. So you you might even be a high score ranking champion or something. Uh, not if it's IJKM. Use the arrow keys. Use the arrow keys. I prefer IJKL. Or just use the arrow keys. Yeah. And then you can, you can run out of Coca One or two to have your separate arrow keys for two handed control. Or, or you if you're running it on an emulator, then you'll crimp like, up your fingers like this to play on the diamond. Or you're, if you have uh, a key fix like you should have, then you can oh, yeah, there your Coco you to get you the two-handed left and right. Or yes. if you're running it on an emulator, then the uh, key layout on your uh, PC keyboard is just like using the IJKL keys. Oh, you can remap them? Yep. On a name and a VCC and a few others. I think VCC you can remap, can't you? Or you're just using the arrow keys. I mean, most arrow keys on the uh, on a PC are the um, uh, the, the, the pyramid T, yeah, yeah. inverted yeah. T. Honestly, I'm like Rick though. If you're going to play a four arrow key game, it's it's better having them separated. I know modern people don't think that, but I will right. take you on in any Coca one or two right. game that has left arrow hand keys up and, and down, right butt. hand, left and right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because you you can control much more precise when you've got two hands, you know, controlling them rather than trying to cram it all in one hand. Okay, let's do that. I choose we play Neutroid and do that. I would do you better play, on that. Hey, you than, can play Neutroid uh, if you want. I might have to patch it a bit first, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, patch it for a uh, skill level zero <laughs> for autoplay, where I'm pretending I'm doing it, but the computer's actually just doing all the winning moves on its own. Yeah, so <laughs> skill level zero. <laughs> You're lucky that uh, takes more effort than I'm willing to give. <laughs> you want to send me the source, Nick? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's yeah. That's it. What's uh uh I keep telling people on Thursdays, except for this past Thursday, about how great it is to do your um to tune into the show so that they can hear their high score list, which we have to listen to. So what is that wonderful thing that we all want to know the new game for the next two weeks? That's what we, we just, just, just announced. About just that we were just talking about it. Yes. Oh man. I was hoping for something good. <laughs> <laughs> and picks the most Neutroid style game that the rest of us might be able to stand and that's still not good enough for Sloopy yes but the, what's not fair is that Ken already played them and he's going to beat us all I played it very little yeah. I just played I, it to be honest to the, game. The, the MC10, Coco 1, 2 and Coco 3 versions were just released between November 21st and 23rd so neither of us have had much time to play it ahead of yeah. you guys like literally they just came out this week uh First time I tried it was last night. And for those of you that have other machines, I mean, they're still coming out with ones. There's still others still coming out, you know, in the future yet, because they usually take about a month to do all the ports because they do like 70 or 80 of them. But there's a bunch there's... of other ones. If you want to play C64 and Apple II and a bunch of others, those are there too if you want to try them. ColecoVision, Atari. There you go, Sloopy. You can play it on the Atari. There you go. <laughs> no, the, 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 the arrow keys on the Atari are even worse. I want to see. I want to see Sloopy play it on the Atari 400 membrane keyboard with the arrow keys. Go for there it. There you go. 
There's a keyboard. Only if you can get a brand new one. Yeah, they work Would for that a couple weeks. <laughs> huh? They, would would that really help that much? Even a new one? I, I just I never did like cherry those memories. Yeah, they what? no a brand new one. They yeah the the um the keys on them were much more touch sensitive back in the day. Because I actually I don't remember that from when yeah. I used it back in the day, but maybe there was right, an no, older. I think he's pointing out the fact that the membrane keyboard on the Atari four hundred worked for several weeks just fine. Yeah, <laughs> back in the day, they actually worked much better than they do now. I mean, I have I have some I have a couple of them now, and they're much more difficult to use than they were back in the day. I mean, they weren't too bad back in the day. But now they're just like hit yeah. with a hammer. Yeah, I think I think what the Taking problem is, is that the 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 uh, film layer on them has hardened has like stiffened over time. So you, it requires more push to make them uh, actuate. Because, I mean, it used to be that you'd be able to put your finger on it and just swipe across, and it would do ASD all the way across, and you can't do that now. No, or you can just that... get an Atari 800 or a XL or XC right. or all these other ones that have real keyboards. Yeah. Yes. That, little raised edge, that little raised edge on the Atari actually made it work a little better than your average membrane. Right. Yeah, but, the Atari yeah. 400, I will say, was better than, say, a, a ZX80 or 81, for sure. Right, right. Hey, why didn't you guys tell me the cat was in the Christmas tree? Because oh. we were getting entertained by it, so I was hoping <laughs> it was going to go flying on the floor there and watch Mark panic. <laughs> I thought you would just assume you have a Christmas tree, you have a cat. Have a cat, that's going to happen. You <laughs> said something if it was on fire. That's, That's like for. algebra. A plus B equals C. It's like cat plus tree equals chaos. It's just a <laughs> formula. Cats are the proof that the the earth is not flat. That was it knocked everything <laughs> off of it by now. Yeah. <laughs> I agreed. Okay, we're done talking about Neutroid. What's next? <laughs> Well, uh, join us on Thursday, like like you said, yeah. Slippy Guy. Uh, if you guys need a bit of tips on playing this game, it's not that hard to figure out. Ken described it quite well, I think. But uh, it, it's a bit easier to see live play. I will show some video of live play, but there won't be, you know, I can't you know, show you changing a direction or something like that. Whatever the player did on the video is what you'll get. Yeah. And it is a puzzle game, essentially, once you get down to it, some arcade cool. elements. Cool. We need this game on Turbo Loader for tape. It yeah, takes it's like 45 seconds to load the Coco 3 version, about 30 seconds to load the Coco 2 version. What do you need? Yeah, they're not that big. They both start at 2000 hex. One ends at 3E something or other, and the other start ends at like 460. I can't remember the exact details, but they're not they're not huge. That's a lot of typing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, here's data statements. We'll just get you to type it all in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, they, well, I, I, I'm thinking about doing what that one of these times is picking a game out of a, a magazine and say, okay, the first thing you have to do is type it in. Yeah, the first week of playing it will be debugging it so it actually runs properly. And then the second <laughs> week you'll actually play the game. Yeah, time, time involved in how long you, get, you go from uh, starting to type it in until you have a working game. I yep. will warn you, though, Ken, because people will be typing it in having to debug it. They'll also figure out how it works, and then they could cheat like mad. Well, no, no. Like Sloopy said, though, the, the actual thing is how long it takes you to type in the game and have it to a working state okay but how about a working cheating state because that's what i would do 
Well, that doesn't matter. You can play it. <laughs> it's just, is it working? It took it took four days and three hours to get it working. There you go. That's your time. I got one oh. or two words for you. OCR scanning. Four, four days. That's a no, lot no, no. of time I want to, to see live footage. to disassemble oh. it and uh, cheat. I want to see live footage of you typing the entire thing in, and I will watch every. <laughs> we should do that because I would like to see Ken try to keep up with like fifteen people spending three days typing something in. He's got to like watch every second of footage to make sure they didn't cheat. <laughs> oh, that that would just make entertainment. Yes, just when mm. you thought the news. Boy, I don't know what happened to Jason. Yeah, he must be on the road uh, or something. He's silent. Usually when he starts falling asleep before the news starts, there he goes out on a drive to try to wake himself up with a cold air like blowing in his face in a convertible or something. But that's <laughs> it, yes, exactly. I think if you thought the news was boring, watching someone key in a basic program and data statements, that's just going to be excitement. Actually, the Amigos did do that. That was one of the categories on the ARG Presents uh, one time, and they, they picked Coco games by coincidence. One was a gopher thing for the Coco 3. I can't remember what the other one was, but they were basic type-ins, and they actually did. Now, they picked short programs that were like you know 4K or 5K or something like that, but uh, yeah, that was the challenge, and neither of them really liked the experience. 4K. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> Yet we did it when we were young. I remember typing in 32K games and nine pages of data statements for a semi-language listing. And then it not working. Right. Yeah. Before they had that line sum checker thing. So Yeah, when rainbow check, check a rainbow check was added, and then Hot Cocoa had an equivalent of that too, where you type in just a few lines and then you you hit the up arrow with this little machine language thing in the background would add up all the bytes you typed in and go, here's what the total should be. And if it was wrong, you would know, okay, I have to correct something, but you didn't have to type the whole thing in. You could do little chunks and then make sure it's all right, you know, with six lines of code and then the next six lines, et cetera. Um, or as was mentioned in a video I watched this morning, you could sometimes type in those programs and it's the magazine that's wrong and you have right. to wait until next month yeah. for the fix. Yeah. Three months okay. later, well, we have a correction here. Yeah, the misprint <laughs> is in line 1004. Um, I have to wait two I months to find out what that. the misprint <laughs> was. Yeah. And then sometimes the original author would write in six months later, oh, I had a bug in the version I sent you. I sent you an older version off the wrong disc. Right. <laughs> so here's the seven <laughs> lines you got to change. <clears throat> I remember managing to figure out the bug in this, uh, way back when on a Byte magazine. That cool. Was, yep. Like, um, hmm, nice. I got it. Right, <laughs> right. And that was Byte. That wasn't no little, you know, well, Honestly, Commodore typing in stuff was one of the best ways to learn programming because you had to figure out how the program worked and you had to know how basic worked or whatever language you were using yep. and then mm -hmm. figure it out. So I learned more doing that and writing my own stuff than, you know, just looking at a listing by itself. That's how yeah. I used to teach myself basic. Yeah. Figure out ways to cheat in the games that I just typed in. <laughs> that too. <laughs> Unlimited men and well, that's yep. when they got to the whole game's head, go sub here, go sub there, go sub back over here, go sub over there, and they tried to hide the logic. Yeah. And uh that was an interesting game in itself. Yeah. Some people claim that that was just basic that made you hide the logic on purpose because the whole language is not supposed to use go tells because but no, that was just I, I actually <clears throat> read an article about how to write programs for a magazine so that the people who type them in can't solve the program by typing it in. And that's where a lot of that crap came from. And yeah, it's a mess. It really makes it hard to get it done properly. 
forget hey you gotta you gotta tell that to tell that to my uh grade nine computer teacher because he always said that i used way too many go to and go sub statements and no, I'm being I was hiding clever. the logic, yeah, I was hiding yeah. the logic <laughs> from him. Spaghetti code. That that's my uh, code hacking uh, protection feature. There you go. Time. Okay. Uh, what else could you do with game on news next? Uh, which I've only got a very few, so we might as well do that before another break, and then we'll have a break, and then go into the regular news. Actually, why don't we uh, have a little discussion on Coco Tech? Oh, you want to do that first? Okay, sure. Yep. Update on Coco Tech. <clears throat> Take it away, Mark. Update on Coco Tech. Hey there. So uh, we had another Coco Tech this week. Um, <laughs> and a cat. <laughs> you got to zoom this up, Mark, here. Get that cat in there. <laughs> well, we know what your cat thinks of Coco Tech. <laughs> yes. Some of us have cat problems. <laughs> I have no cat problems. Coco Tech smelled like cat butt. <laughs> your cat was just like, you're talking about Coco Tech? Kiss my butt. <laughs> Give me a zoom up, okay. Mark. Mark. <laughs> okay. If I could find it. <laughs> yeah, the cat's gone. It's safe. Which mouse am I on here? <laughs> <laughs> Only in our professional show will you see things like that happening. <laughs> yeah, our love of cats. Anyway, Mark, oh, gone. you're a bit red faced. I think. <laughs> the white balance. At least it wasn't a rotoscope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Coco Tech. We had a Coco Tech this week. Uh, it was all about G Shell, uh, which um, G Shell wasn't put on OS nine, was it? Was a Nitrous nine thing? No, it was an OS9 thing, but it was sold separately oh, by Tandy separate about a year after uh, OS9 came Gotcha. Up. Gotcha. Okay. So anyway, it's a graphic shell that you can run from the command line. Anyway, so history of G Shell. So Rick Euland and Curtis Boyle all uh, basically presented uh, two and a half hours on G Shell and all its iterations over the years and all the improvements and all the design choices and why it looks like what it does now today. And you'll find that on our regular channel, uh, just Find us on the Coco Nation channel and scroll back a half a week, and you'll find uh, episode uh, 004, which is uh, G Shell for the uh, OS9 Nitrous 9. Um, let's see. Um, we actually had quite a few views on that. It's over 200 views on that, which is pretty cool. Uh, and I know we're over 200 views on the, uh, the DriveWire one as well. Uh, I don't have anything scheduled for next week, but maybe Sloopy will want to step up and do something. Uh, and then I do have something scheduled two weeks out, and this will be uh, basically a Grease Weasel and uh, um, the one that Paul Fitzgerald has. I can't remember the name offhand. And uh, David Ladd talking about floppies. Yay! And I'm okay. getting an interest in uh, DOS ROMs uh, for the, uh, for the uh, color computer, so I've been collecting various ones and looking into Yaw-DOS specifically. So I might bring up something about that just because. Anyway, uh, that's what we have for Coco Tech so far. Probably won't have anything for the rest of December just because it's kind of busy for everybody. Um, but, uh, oh, yes, also I should plug here since it's kind of related. Um, I see about getting some people maybe signed up at the end of January for a virtual Coco, basically Coco Fest type of thing, uh, sponsored by uh, the Glenside Group and, of course, the Coco Nation here, and bring you presentations uh, from people who probably won't make it to Coco Fest or BCF Midwest but who would like to present something on the cocoa or the dragon. Anyway, this will probably be something that'll be earlier in the day on a Saturday or a Sunday uh, for the most of the world. So it'll be a little bit easier for people, especially in Europe to see. 
And um, did I miss anything? I think it's everything for the moment. Uh, okay. Yeah, I've got a couple things for Coco Tech. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I've gotten a uh, couple. Uh, I got a uh, oscilloscope for the oscilloscope th uh, episode. And I got something else that's um, supposedly a oscilloscope. And I'll figure it out before then. Uh, but yeah, I do have someone uh, sent in an MC10. And we're going to see what's what its issue is and what we can do with it. Um, it's going to be sometime on the week of the 11th to 15th of December. And um, when we get closer to then, we'll, I will uh, give a more specific date, but it will be between the 11th and 15th of December. Um, as for the uh, oscilloscope uh, thing, uh, if uh, episode, if you have anything that you're interested in specifically seeing or seeing, um, my computer is listening to me because it just brought up a thing saying, hey, set up your calendar so then you can see where you need to be. <laughs> my computer is spying on me. <laughs> um, if you have anything uh, specific that you uh, would like covered, um, send me a message on the on the Coco Tech uh, channel, the Discord, or you can uh, email it, which is below in the description on uh, YouTube. Uh, I'm not sure if it's on Twitch. Yeah, it should be on Twitch also, but I'm not 100%. Um, and I do believe that's it. Okay. Cool. And now for the Game on News. Okay. Yeah, I don't think I've seen uh, a mention of Mark uh, Siegel in chat. Yeah, he's, he's been in the, Facebook. Yeah, he's been in the chat. He's on YouTube. He's on today. YouTube. Oh, he's on YouTube now. Okay, might be a non-issue then, because I think he's one of the last people using the Facebook feed. Okay. Well, okay. Just, just kind of wondering because we've had trouble with it. Hey, my screen share working. Yeah. Hopefully, it'll keep working, like on the Coco Tech. <laughs> Another computer archive. Yep. So first thing I wanted to say, uh, I uploaded the uh, 609 and 609 optimized versions of Paper Root by DICOM to the computer archive last week, and they are on there now. So you can go download them. You can see them on the top. And you can compare them with the original ones, which are also available down a little bit lower. There's even some patches for running double speed on the Coco 3 and RGB patches, etc. And the manual is up there, too. If you've never played Paperboy in the arcade, which is what it's clone of, you can actually go check that out. So you can get that off of the Color Computer Archive. Uh, next up, Yu uh, Dao, Yu Do, whatever we're calling it. <clears throat> you can see here uh, on the far right is the release dates. So you can see the Coke 3 version came out November 23rd. And the Coke 1 and 2 one came out on the 22nd. The MC10, I'd have to scroll. I can't remember what direction it is, but basically it's there. Uh, I think it was the first one actually released out of the out of the three this time. Um, but you can actually play it, and let's see how YouTube's going to be doing on all the old commercial thing here. But And that cheats. It loads it way faster than a real Coco would do.
So you're the little white guy with the blue shirt, and you're running around and dropping these arrows to steer the car. The car will follow the arrows or just keep going the same direction if there's no arrows. And the object, as Ken said, is to get all the flags. I, I don't really know, Ken. Do you know what the different colored flags mean? If, is that different points or something? Okay, so you're really programming a robot to follow a, your prescribed route. Pretty, pretty close. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the game, once you get the hang of it, isn't that bad. The controls will take a tiny bit of time getting used to. Um, but the play mechanics fairly simple, and then after that, it runs it runs really decent. And like I said, if you have other micros you want to try it on, they're constantly updating this list here. Like here's the Vic Twenty version. If you want to try, if you have one of those, Tari Eight Hundred for Sloopy, um, the Oric. You know, there's there's tons of them. Just like normal, they normally bring it up for about seventy platforms, and they're only about half done so far. So there's more coming. And on the right hand side, if you want to go download the WAV to actually play it on a cassette based Coco. Uh, you know, you know, it's in Japanese, but you can see .wav, and that's the actual pro program itself to download if you want to do it that way. Oh, I had a full screen version of this. Whoops. Now, this is the Coco 3 we just looked at, so I'll do the zoomed up Coco 1 and 2 versions so you can see the difference of the graphics because it's in P mode 3. And the MC10 is the equivalent of P mode 1, so it'll be a little bit lower res, but it'll look pretty well identical to this color-wise. And this is a bit more zoomed in, so you can probably see it better, too. Yeah, I still don't understand what the different colored flags, if that's just, just to make it look different. I don't see any point difference. And like I said, if, if you don't put an arrow and the car hits a wall, it'll destroy the wall, then ricochet back. So eventually it'll break out of the maze, and then you're... You die. And you get, you know, a bonus uh, if, if you complete within a certain time limit. Uh, next up, uh, the John Hancock page on YouTube, which is actually a fairly large one, 131,000 subscribers, uh, decided to do some coverage of uh, Robocop. So he's done a series before on Robocop, all the games based on Robocop. But then he did this particular episode, which is oddball Robocop games you might have missed. And one of the last ones he mentions is the Coco 3 one. And he's actually done videos on the Coco before. In fact, I might have covered them because it kind of sounded familiar. But I'll just play a little tiny clip of him playing uh, Robocop on the Coco 3 and his initial thoughts. About my Tandy Color computer collection. And there was a Robocop release for that. Here's a clip from what I said. Oh, yeah, Laryngitis too. Robocop this time too. is kind of an interesting game. Robocop. It was released late and it was a 128K game. And, you know, I just think it definitely showed kind of the age of the color computer. You know, it was really starting to get long in a tooth by the time this came out. Not known to be the best version of Robocop, but it's a game that I still enjoy playing, even though it's not the best version. If you're a fan of the series, definitely check out Robocop. Some of the games I shared with you. So he does a lot of comparisons of uh, video games on various platforms or, you know, covering a series, uh, you know, games that have had, you know, multiple iterations over the years. So 
uh, if you're into gaming in general, it's a pretty fun channel to, to follow. And occasionally, you know, if they cover a game that has Coco stuff, it usually covers that too. So it's kind of fun to do the comparisons. And then the last one here, the Amigos had their annual Thanks for Giving special. And this is kind of a thank you to all the people that watch their shows. And they usually do a marathon. I've noticed they've been cutting it down as the years progress here. It used to be a 24-hour marathon. Now it's down to eight. So it's, you know, just about <laughs> down the length of our show. Um, <laughs> this year, they decided to do it a little bit different because Boat wasn't there. He's actually in uh, England right now because he's going to be attending uh, one of the Amiga get-togethers get there. And also at Neil's Cave, I believe he's... Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember what's Neil's... RMC, I think is what he's calling the channel now. He had to rename it for some reason a few years back. But anyway, he's going to be doing some live stuff out down there um, this weekend. So he flew in earlier, so he wasn't around for the Thanksgiving. But basically what they uh, Brent did a little bit different this year is he created some random categories. Um, some, I think, were suggested by people that have written in and some were just made up by Brent. So they'd pick a, like a, a platform or a game type or a, a something special about a game. So one of the things they picked here was dinosaur-based games. And you can see the uh, Sinclair ZX81 screen. They were trying to play 3D Monster Maze where the dinosaur cheats, you know, chases you down the maze. But they couldn't get it to work on the Mister because they basically just have joystick controls type thing and they didn't know how the keyboard mapping was, so they kind of had to abort it. So Aaron had a backup plan, which is a game, which is one of the uh, earliest games on the Coco 1 and 2 from 1980, late 1980, early 81, I think was when it was released, of... Uh, one that I really like and one that uh, quite a few people, this is one of those uh, no gray area games here. Pe people love it or they hate it. Can you guys guess what that game might be? Dino Wars. Dino Wars. <laughs> yeah. I will mention, uh, I, I, it's been pronounced both ways, but from the original author himself, it's actually Dino Wars. It's not Dino. So just, you know, but they have fun with it. Dinosaur games you got in mind, Aaron? I mean, Dino, you know, Dino, Dino was Flintstone's pet. Yeah. I don't know what's being so uh, contrary here. Okay, hold on. I got a backup plan. I got plans. What do you do? Listen, <laughs> we just played another dinosaur game. That's the plan. What do you think of my plan so far? Well, we'll see how well you pull it off. They're almost as unrehearsed as we are. It's awesome. I don't think we have access to Super uh, to uh, Primal Rage STB. So like Dino Wars, there it is. And I think we can reboot, and then it'll it'll start. I like their Thanksgiving spread there. Yeah, I'm getting hungry I'm watching it. Set up. All right, right, left, down, up, button. No. Hey, I like that. You turn. Yes, we'll do that one too, Weedster. Is anybody here got a mister okay. that they play some of these games on, or do you guys First usually stick with emulators game. or real Cocos? Here we go. You're the blue one. Emulator. <laughs> that's Unfortunately, you have no control. Oh, good. That's to make it easy to bite. <laughs> <laughs> I do have... What did you do? I thought you had no control. I can't move left or right, but I can hit the button. Hey, as I commented a little bit later, the scaling is one of the things that set this game apart from many other games at this time period, like 1980-81. Because uh, the world is wider than the screen. It actually wraps around after a while, but you can walk and see new cactuses and stuff showing up. And the dinosaurs scale as they come closer to the player, 
they get much larger. And if you go off in the distance, they get much smaller. So it's a a bit of a programming feat for that time period, to be honest. Most other computers weren't even trying to do stuff like that. So first hey, person that's biter. The... What's that? First person biter. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> I especially like the fact that uh, when they were configuring the Mr. Brent uh, misconfigured it so he could only do the, the biting button thing. And he still managed to hit Aaron first before Aaron got him. <laughs> that was awesome. Anyway, that's all the gaming news I have. So did you want to do a break before we hit the regular news, which I do have a fair bit more to, uh, to go on? Okay, we can do this one. Hi, this is Rick Adams, author of Temple of Rom and Shanghai, and I, like you, am a citizen of the Coco Nation. This is not the Joey Serial Switch. This is the Joey Serial Switch. Control up to three serial devices. Order yours today at cocoman.biz. The music is back. has reigned throughout the realm. In the forest, nothing but ruins of an ancient fortress remain to fuel the myth of the evil wizard. Tales of your ancestors' quest are met with laughter. Mockery follows your warnings. But you know what awaits.
Okay, so first up, uh, we're going to cover the cover a couple of announcements here. Some of are new, some are, are existing of uh, upcoming interviews. So we had the one today, of course, thanks to Joe and David. Uh, the next one we have scheduled here is December the 9th with Mike Snyder, who wrote a bunch of games for TND Magazine for both Coco 1 and 2 and the Coco 3 for about four years between 1987 and 1991 when TND shut down. And he's got his own webpage here if you want to kind of go through and see. He's got disc images of all the stuff he made that you can download at www.cocoquest.com. He's even got a little random selection of uh, screenshots and left here. You can kind of get an idea for some of the stuff that he did. You can see uh, like Blasters, looks like a Coco 3 games, Earth Troopers, a Coco uh, 1 and 2 game. Um, but a bunch here, and he's got some you know details on some specific games too. But there's a whole bunch of stuff you can download here and give a try out. We might have to include some of these in the game on challenge at some point. So he's our guest on December the 9th. And I'm also finally proud to announce that we've finally got a, a firm date for Glenn Dahlgren and Doug Maston to come on to talk about the writing of Contras. For those of you that are at Coco Fest this past uh, April, Doug was actually there showing off some of the original sketches and stuff that he did for designing the graphics, etc. And this is a game that is based somewhat on the Nintendo version of Contras, not the arcade one per se, but he also did his own original levels and stuff on the later levels of the uh, game itself. Now, this is a game that had a, a bit of a controversy because Doug was just a high school student at the time, and he, this is a huge project to take on. Like, it's got excellent sound, some of the best sound on the Coco 3 game, and music track as well, and hardware scrolling, and it's huge and takes 512K, et cetera, and he kind of burned himself out, and then it ended up being taken over by the person that authored Photon and Graphics Express, um, Jeff Steidel, and uh, so, you know, it, it took two years to come out from the original announcement because of all that. And we'll be getting into some of that. But Glenn Dahlgren of Sundog Systems will be coming on to help co-author it. Now, I will mention Glenn has got a new book coming out. Uh, we're not going to talk about it except for maybe a brief mention on this one. Uh, I think later in January, we'll have him on to come, and to come on and talk about that. It's the actual wrap-up of the series that he's been doing. And I know a lot of you have been actually getting the books up till now of that series, the Chaos series. So uh, we'll have him in to talk about that. Maybe see if he can remember a few other Coco stories he hasn't told before at the same time. But uh, look forward to this interview. This will be on January the 6th. So it'll be our first interview in the new year. We're probably not going to be booking anymore in December just because of holidays and everything else like Mark mentioned before. So anyway, if you have any questions about that, if you guys were at the fest and got a chance to see Doug's booth with his uh, sample graphics and stuff and notes from programming the game, and if you have any questions for him, get them ready by January 6th, and we'll ask him live along with Glenn. Uh, next up, I know Ron knows about this, but uh, Erico Montero is actually at the SC Retro Computer Show in Brazil, which is happening right now. Um, or maybe it's just ending now. I'm not sure what time it's on, but uh, it's still on, evidently. It's still on. Okay. Yeah. I know that people have mentioned that he was having bad bandwidth. So we won't be able to do a live like we were hoping. Uh, we talked about this yesterday. But he did take a couple of photos I got here. So they can see this particular one here. You can actually see uh, CP400 with, I think, the later version of the keyboard running, and he's actually running Cashman, the Coco game, because the CP400 was a Coco clone. Um, and then you can see a bunch of other games, too. It actually looks like it's pretty pretty good sizes here, too. This looks larger than I remembered seeing last year. If you go to the um, Coco group on Facebook, he's got uh, or, uh, Luciano Scharf is from Brazil, and he yep. um, he got some pictures of uh, all of his Coco setup, and he's got a little video and said that over 700 uh, 
710 people have attended so far. Truly great day. And he's got 700. All kinds of, Holy crow. That's way, got, way larger yeah, than last year. He's got all kinds of cocoa set up. Uh, he's got a, you know, even a um, TDP 100 and yeah, he's got some of Ed's uh, keyboards attached to cocoa threes. And yeah, what you're seeing here is minimal compared to what he's got set up. Yeah, this this kind of gives you a broader view of the show. He's got a short clip on uh, the, the Coco Group. Since it's, you guys uh, can actually have it handy and load it up there, Ron, I can just cut the screen sharing for me for a sec if you want to share that. Because yeah, what I'm going to try to do is get either Eric or or, or Sharf or, or anybody that was there maybe to come on next week and actually kind of go through the things in detail. All right, but I don't want to do that today because we're going to have a long right. show as it is. All right, well, I can just let it go if you want. Yeah, I'll stop sharing and I'll let you share just so you can at least share the video. So I'm kind of curious to see it myself. I've not seen these yet. Okay, I got to see. Share screen. Which one is it? 700 people. That's that's awesome. That's, yeah. Am I up? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see all the Coco okay. keyboard picks. Okay, where is it? I'm, uh, I want to go to beginning come on <laughs> hit the button ron <laughs> it's not showing it why hmm. by clicking overview does that bring it back or there hmm. okay should be right not showing up why let's see let's hit refresh there it is and look look who's showing up <laughs> <laughs> that's why you find it <laughs> <laughs> anyway here's the little video let's play it hit the big button oh, it's, it's 11 seconds <laughs> wow that yeah. is that's busy that's good I don't know if it, can you hear it no. 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 Maxi screen. It's just sound of people. Let's yeah, we don't need any sound just to view a crowd, but yeah, that's that's pretty full. It's a nice show. Size venue. Yeah. We could use a hall like that. It looks like a Quonset hut. Yeah, yeah or but, a yeah. airplane, airplane terminal or something. Or, yeah. All right. It's the shuttle bay from the Enterprise. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That looks like an awesome show. We'll have to get see if we can get both of them on. Or there was a third person we had on last year when they had the show. I know that came and talked about it afterwards. But I'd love to get their their input on it. So hopefully we can get uh, one, two, or three of them on next week, and then actually go in detail with the pictures because there's no interviews next week. So it would, you know it'll restrict the show to six hours instead of you know eight. Anyway, thanks for showing that, Ron, because I did not get a chance to see those yet. But that looks that's that's better attendance than I was expecting, to be honest. Hey, next up, uh, World of Commodore 2023 is coming up on December 2nd and 3rd, and you're probably wondering why the heck am I showing that on our show? Uh, two reasons. One, it's a name. kind of a thank you to Frank. Franklin Harris, of course, is from Retro Rewind, and uh, he's a sponsor of the show, and this is you know his, his bread and butter platform. But also, he's going to be having show special selling, uh, selling Cocoa hardware there as well, including the Cocoa STC. So if you're in the Mississauga, Ontario uh, area next weekend, 
and you want to get a Cocoa SDC for cheaper than normal, uh, this is the per perfect place to go. I think he's going to have some other hardware there too, like maybe the Cocoa Diagnostic cartridge and a few other things too, maybe some of the cap kits, et cetera. I'm not sure what all he's going to be bringing because he's bringing all of his Amiga and C64 stuff too, but uh, definitely there will be Cocoa SDCs for sale at this show. So if you want to pick one up uh, without having to pay the shipping and also getting a discount from even his normal discounted rates, uh, go check out the show. And if you're, of course, a general retro enthusiast, you probably wouldn't mind going to a general you know, Commodore show because this covers Amigas and Pets and Vic-20s and C64s and a whole bunch of stuff. So, cool. so we're a pet pet. Yeah. I found out something, too. This is the 40th anniversary of the World of Commodore uh, show that they've been holding there. So their first show was in 1983. Now, if you go to Chicago Cocoa Fest, that is a continuation of Chicago Rainbow Fest. And that started the same year. So both of our shows are 40 <laughs> years old. And because ours, we did ours earlier in the year. Actually, ours is older than theirs. Right. We win. <laughs> yeah, that's the way I view it anyway. No competition, though, right? <clears throat> No, not at all. <laughs> and the next up, uh, kind of a reminder of three other shows that are coming up. So the first one is VCF Southern California, February 17th, 18th in Orange, California at the Hotel Fair Event Center. And that's, you know, generic, uh, everything retro type thing. Uh, so you can hit their website at www.vcfsocal.com for details on that. Get your tickets, book your room at the hotel, et cetera. And of course, we've got Cocoa Fest, which we were just talking about, the 32nd annual last Chicago Cocoa Fest. And uh, <clears throat> that's on, excuse me, <laughs> that's on May 4th to 5th at Carroll Stream, Illinois, near Chicago at the Holiday Inn and Suites, which is the same venue we had last year. And um, looking forward to this one. It's going to be a good show, I think. I know some stuff that's going to be in the auction because I'm bringing it. And uh, sounds like there might be some other stuff there. There's possibly, actually, I'm pretty sure there's going to be some really special stuff showing up. There'll be some stuff here that nobody here has seen before. Um, oh, back to your last story. Is this the appropriate been there, got the T-shirt? Yeah. Yeah, you got the Chicago <laughs> Coca-Fest 1992, the inaugural one, which I actually didn't make it to. I made it to the second one. I made that it to the last Rainbow Fest and the, and the second Cocoa Fest, but I missed the first one. This was the first Cocoa T-shirt I ever bought. So good timing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, afraid we didn't see that. Hang on a second. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I, I'm still sharing uh, something. Uh, I'm uh, going to uh, zoom them up there. You got to hit the right buttons. Yep. This doesn't entirely fit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, none of mine do either. I can, back then. I can sort of drape it, but you'll notice uh, body on both sides. So, yeah. <laughs> I think I was a little skinnier back then. But yeah, this was the first Cocoa Fest that wasn't a Rainbow Fest, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Rainbow Fest was 91, and I have the 91 Rainbow Fest t-shirt still. Right. So. so so this was the first last. Yeah. But they never stopped, and they never will. <laughs> <laughs> Not creepy at all. <laughs> well, you know, we got to balance out David a little bit. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, looking for this one, like I said, there's going to be some unique stuff that has never been seen before, and there's some rare stuff. And then, of course, the, the regular things, there's seminars, there's the auction. I'm bringing some stuff to the auction myself. 
Um, but yeah, there's some unique items and one or two people on the panel know a bit about this, but we're sworn to secrecy because we want to make be a bit of a surprise later on. It will be advertised quite a bit earlier on because we want to entice people to come out to see these very, very rare items. But um, we're going to keep you in the dark a little bit more, probably until the new year. So, but if you are already getting ready to book or you're on the fence about possibly going to the show, this one will be a bit special. You might want to come out to this one. There's some pretty amazing stuff there. So how's that for a tease? Mm -hmm. mm. And then last up, we've got Boat Fest 3, June 14th to 16th, 2024. Uh, this is at the social event space in Hurricane, West Virginia. It's literally within a couple blocks of the uh, place it was last year. This is a general gaming event. Uh, covering both home computers and home consoles. The Coco is well represented because, of course, Brent and Aaron grew up with one, and uh, Ken and I have been down there as well. And uh, it's a lot of fun. If you like playing games, this is definitely a fun place. But there's also people doing hardware repairs like Frank and a few others, and other people are doing you know, hardware upgrades, et cetera, and showing you like, how different hardware, rare hardware worked. Um, 48K Rams one I know that does uh, something unique every, every year. Last year, he brought out his Model 100s, and we played a bunch of arcade games on them. I didn't even know the Model 100 had arcade games. But we got to play like Asteroids and Bosconian and a bunch of other clones on there. So that was pretty cool. So that's in uh, June. And we'll, we'll we'll get some more specific details on some other ones. I did see the official announcement that VCF, uh, is it South south or Southeast or whatever they call the one in Texas? Southwest maybe? I can't remember. It's going to be Southwest, yeah. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's a go Southwest. for this next year. And I've seen in the TRS-80 Discord, a lot of the TRS-80 guys are planning on coming out. They're going to try to get a bunch of the guests that actually worked at Tandy back in the day or helped do the designs on some of the computers we use. So they're going to try to get all them out. I know Mark Siegel went there last year as well, but it looks like they're definitely gearing up. And the fact that the City guys are saying we need more tables because they couldn't display everything they wanted to display. So that'll be a pretty good one, too, if you're a Tandy fan, because it's, of course, it's right in their backyard. So that's that's it for the announcements. So I will stop that share, kill that window, and then we'll get on to the actual news news. Cool. So now you can bring out your pillows and get ready for a rest. Okay. So first of all, Kokotan has returned. And as he mentioned in his previous video, he was having some issues with MAME and the way it was handling some of the timing and the interrupts. So he's actually delving into the MAME code itself. So those of you who've been scared off by the sheer size of MAME, and I'm surprised he wasn't, um, he's actually going through it a little bit to figure out how stuff works. And he goes into the source code for MAME itself and the source code for like the VDG driver and a bunch of other things here, Coco related. Um, I won't play anything here for it because it's pretty technical and we're going long, but uh, definitely go check it out if you have any interest in how emulators work or how MAME in specific works as, as, as it relates to the Coco. A lot of cool, interesting stuff in there. There's more coming for that series. Uh, George Jansen, uh, we covered the fact that he started a 6809 beginner's tutorial on YouTube now. And of course, he did a bit of a sequence with us as well. So he put out two new episodes this last week. Uh, and it's basically a two-parter is the reason. Uh, he's he's concentrating on Cobo 3 palettes and attributes, like how to access the text screen, control the colors, attributes like uh, blink and underline, etc., and how to do you know, like 40 column and 80 column stuff. And uh, he's not programming the gimme directly for all of this. He's actually calling some of the super extended basic ROM call routines for, for this as well. So he kind of shows you how to do that as well. 
uh, and then it gives you some examples and you actually you can run very small, you know, not not much typing to do in, in your editor assembler. And this is a perfect time to go grab the free 609 EdTASM that Robert got uploaded last week on the archive. If you want to give these a shot, um, he shows you how to do it in LWASM. I think it's what he's using. But uh, like here is just showing you how to, you know, write onto the 40 column text screen on the Cocoa 3. So this is a bit of a more Cocoa 3 focused one in this particular case. So part one is about 20 minutes. And then part two is another 15 minutes. And I'll just play a little clip from the middle of this one. We was kind of showing you doing some of the attribute stuff. You can see some of the source code here just before the actual little demo starts. We don't have a basic version of this. You can build one if you want. I didn't. Okay, it comes out and it puts, uh, again, our message zero up there. We hit that, it gives us a different message with different attributes and colors. Same as before, again, different background, different attributes. There's one with blinking and underline, then it asks us a question, what do you want? And that's what screen width you want, three, four, eight, or Q to quit. It's in eight is the default, we press four, it comes up in width 40. We can do the same thing, same thing. Now let's try three. Oops, I don't look too good. Three doesn't use locate or anything like that. So it's just taking whatever we, whatever's in the attributes on its side of the world. You know, you hit them and it just comes like that and it's just show you that it, they don't correlate back to the, the uh, high res. So we'll go back to... Anyway, so that's a little snip showing the difference between using the new Cocoa 3 uh, 40 and 80 column modes which if you enable attributes is basically two bytes per character, one's for the ASCII value, or not quite ASCII, but the character itself. And the other is uh, three bits for your foreground color, three bits for your background color, plus a blink attribute and an underline attribute, which makes eight bits for the second byte. And the old 32 column screen, which is what he's showing here, which is traditionally green, if you want to be nice and calmed, uh, you can change the palette. So you have some control you did not have on the Coco one and two itself. And you can turn upper lowercase on, full border on, off, inverse video on, off. But you can't do blank, you can't do underline or that kind of thing. So that's kind of what he was demonstrating here. But source code for all this is there. He's actually got download links. You can actually download disk images with the source code if you don't feel like typing it all in. Um, but yeah, he's going through with quite a bit of detail. But this time he's, he's basically doing a lot of stuff for the Coco 3 because a lot of the assembly language tutorials we've had in the past, whether they've been web pages or videos on YouTube, et cetera, have usually been pretty Coco 1 and 2 centric. I think just because there's more of them out there. There is also the fact that the Coco 3 is backwards compatible, so that makes your audience you know, wider to begin with. But I'm liking the fact that he's actually pushing on the Coco 3 side of things because that's the one that's a little bit harder, but probably one a lot more people might be interested in because you can do a lot more with mm. it. So it's it's cool that he's actually concentrating on the Coco 3 stuff right now so you can see some of the cool stuff you can do there. Since Nick doesn't really source code for any of his stuff. I'm just bugging you, Nick. And he's asleep already, so he wouldn't even notice I said that. Uh, next up, we have Mikey who put up an, uh, another uh, part of his vlogs. Uh, and this is uh, one Rick might be a little bit familiar with. Um, so he posted a video of using Rick Ulan, um or Connect, as he's also referred to, as you can see in the upper left corner of the envelope here, uh, the Ethernet card. So this is the upgraded chips you were sending out. This is what, a Gal or Pal or something? What is it? Yeah, it's, it's a replacement Gal chip. Um, 
I didn't realize that hand canceling meant please take four weeks for delivery. <laughs> um, so now I'm shipping them in a box. So if you wonder why Amazon puts crap the size of your thumbnail in a box, I do too, because you'll get it in two days, not four weeks. So um, we And this is the that. one that fixes it to run in all the Cocoa 3s, because that was the issue we were having before, correct? Well, now it runs on everything. Yeah, we had... The, the problem was the tool I was using couldn't quite handle putting a couple of complex statements on one gauge. And it was not doing what I asked it to do. And I didn't realize that. And I tried all these other alternative solutions um, when really I just had to delete the serial port code and it worked fine. <laughs> so what, you want to know what else is ironic about this, uh, Rick? That's not a hand cancel. That's a machine cancel. Well, yeah, I know. They don't listen <laughs> to anything, but it still takes four weeks. I don't know why. Um, so they didn't I, I did want to, <laughs> I do want to play the beginning of the video here. It's, it's 12 minutes and it, a lot of it goes into the testing and running software, which is probably the stuff that's going to interest people that are, you know, are fans of the, of the uh, ethernet card that uh, Rick's using. But I do want to play the little intro where Mikey's trying to figure out exactly what he got shipped here. Cause I thought it was amusing. So we'll just play a little bit of that. <laughs> About a month ago, I got this letter in the mail, and it says that it's from Connect. I'm assuming that's Coco Connect, and this letter has something to do with the Coco ION Ethernet adapter. Let's see what's inside the letter. I'll skip the little intro here. He opened up the letter, so we'll take a look. When I first opened this up this way, I was a little bit confused. <laughs> Why this would this letter have a piece of cardboard in it? Why would somebody send me a piece of cardboard? And then I turned it over and I saw these squares. I'm like, hmm, I wonder what that could be. So seemed to be something underneath this tape. So I pulled back the tape and oh. <laughs> That looks an awful lot like a GAU chip. This must be for the Coco ION Ethernet adapter. Interesting. All right. So I have an adapter here, and we can take a look at it. But to see that, you'll have to go watch the video. There you go. That's called a tease, folks. <laughs> yep. I thought it was cool, though. You actually sent the thicker cardboard kind of hole to fit the gal chip in it, so it actually is cushioned from getting well, crushed. Because the, the reader squishes through some rollers to put a little pressure to line everything up to the scanner, and it can squirt things right out of the envelope yeah. if you don't sort of taper your way in and out. So, yeah. But it doesn't really work because whatever it does, it doesn't go right through. It takes weeks to actually be delivered it's faster to put something in a six by five by five box and ship it and it will go in two days by uh the same rate as an envelope under whatever that new general postage general ground so weird thing i guess that's why is. i got a cr 202032 20, battery in a one cubic foot box by amazon <laughs> well yeah well that's the other thing is the post the price of the box I, I i have a little ebay arm on the side and six by five by five box i can get for a certain price 
and anything that will fit in that down to, you know, a molecule of sand, it's cheaper to put it in that box than do anything else. I've got that box. It's a standard thing. I can throw a piece of tape on it, slap a label on it. It won't get lost. It's big enough to actually go where I sent it. And it's just weird. I didn't mean to get all the show derailed here, but uh, that's... <laughs> That's it's what we thing. do here, Rick. That, that's why we don't send things in envelopes. It's better to put it in a big old box. It's like if you're driving in America, you need a big old truck. You can't drive in a passenger car. You get squashed. You need a big old truck. I don't want a big old truck. I don't even have one, but I might need one. Unless I can look under them. So. Yeah. The good thing is, though, is that after months of trying to figure out why this was not working on all cocos, and it was like it worked on some cocoa threes, but not others, and you know, and then a lot that's of people all solved now. Had hardware that didn't work, and they didn't complain, so they didn't realize how big the problem was. Um, thanks for the support, folks, but complain, you know, so we can fix these things. So, what was the issue? Well, because the tool I was using was unable to process two complex um, statements where you have a lot of ors and ands and it just wasn't working right. And so I was trying all kinds of alternative solutions that would work on some cocos and but not on others and come to find out all I had to do was just simplify. Well, now I've changed tools and I could make one that worked but the serial port isn't available anyway, so there's no real point in readdressing that. Mm. Um, we've moved on to boot ROMs and stuff. So, oh, I don't know. But but it's nice to get all this old hardware going. Well, you, the sixteen five fifty ain't ever coming back. It was available before the thing that happened that killed everything that we shouldn't say on YouTube. Um, but. Now that it's gone and it's been emulated and it's not in anyone's products anymore, we're never going to see it again. So there's no point in supporting it. But uh, we've gone on to support other things, like I say a ROM or EEPROM. So um, anyway, life is good. And uh, I'm really happy that I was able to fix this thing so everyone who bought one can now use it. And if you can't use yours, Content. Yeah, and there's there's some software out there now, like Henry Strickland and Michael have both written utilities and stuff that actually use it, so you, you can actually test it out and run it usefully. We don't, we don't need no stinking real-time clock. We got NTP. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you that watch Cocoa Tech with uh, G-Shell, actually, at the very end, before we started you know, going into the history of Cocoa 3 prices, uh, Rick was actually demonstrating his Web Wrangler Basic 9 program, which is using this card to actually hit some uh, local... Uh, Websites that he had made to, to run on so that you can actually hit the web with this sucker. It'll be fun. Yeah. Anyway, go check out the rest of the video there because Mikey demonstrates some of the software he's written for it and it's all functioning now. So that's good. Uh, next up, uh, Tear City Retro Programming, who I noticed is in the chat again, though he joined a bit late, so he's going to have to rewind later and, and watch the other three or four hours of content. Um, this one, he kind of did a, a bit of a double update. So he updated the... Uh, Tales of Suburbia game he's working on, and he goes through the programming and, and uh, how he came up with an animation to do here on Tales of Suburbia for the rocket launch, which is the ultimate goal of the adventure game. And then he also did a bit of a, a chat at the very end of it, talking about his plans for Coca Ultimate, which is kind of an Ultima style game he's doing on the Coca One and Two as well. 
And uh, we're still waiting for him to join our Discord here because uh, we can definitely dump a lot of other projects on him as well to, <laughs> to do. And uh, also he can hit us up for help on a lot of them because it's – he was mentioning like he's been getting comments and stuff disappearing from YouTube. I've had a bit of that even on my page where it'll say there's a three comments and I can't see them. I know Tim Linder has mentioned something about if you viewed it once, it disappears afterwards – which might be part of the problem. I know Facebook kind of has that by default. That might have been what I was hitting wrong, actually. Um, or if you've seen something already, it kind of hides it from you seeing it again. Or sometimes, no, I want to go back to that. So I always click the little uh, down triangle and put, you know, view all newer posts, you know, in, in date order, which will put the ones I've seen already mm. back into the, the queue here. But maybe that's something that YouTube's doing on comments as well, because mm. I've hit that as well, where people have commented and I can't even see them on my own page. So... Anyway, you can definitely go check that out. Uh, hopefully, he'll join the Discord here in the next while, too, so you can join in the wider community. Uh, next one, this is uh, Retrotech Dan, and he did a Tandy Coco keyboard repair. And this is just a little 2-minute and 40-second video. I didn't get a chance to get a hold of him, but I'm hoping he's okay if I play a chunk of it here because it's a kind of an interesting way to solve a problem if you have uh, the, the, the surrounding plastic here for the keyboard is actually broke. Um, so this is on the space bar he's fixing up, but I thought it was kind of an interesting solution. All right, so I just want to show you this uh, keyboard from a Coco. Uh, I took the keyboard apart, obviously, and the, the reason is the problem right here is that uh, you see that little little uh, nib right there that's there to... Uh, oh, great, YouTube. Put the metal... Oh, there's in. only one. Yeah, the stabilizer, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I get this right here. This little piece for the space bar, the stabilizer bar. Um, it like slips in underneath that right there. Then it holds it there. If I can get it in there. Anyway, that's what it's for. Problem is, is that this one's missing. It was broken. Now I've, I've kind of made the hole a little bit bigger because I have a, a fix for that. Um, so, so you see right there, the bar needs to go underneath that stabilizer. So I mentioned, like, at first glance, the only way to fix that is to fix that whole whole thing. And you'd need a pretty decent-sized, you know, 3D printer to do that. Plus, it would take a lot of time in plastic. So he's got a, a much simpler solution. There's a bar, and that has to hold it down. Um, one baking enough, sugar? I tried it, so this one has to be there. Um, what I ended up doing is I printed, uh, printed this out, which looks very mm. um, complicated. Um, because I, I wanted to do something that I could just press fit in and not, and, and everything, the backing and everything would hold it on. So nice. basically, like, uh, here's the one that, that works here. That's good. And then this is the, the bad, bad area one right here. Okay. So then I'll take this and then I'll just put this in here like that. Hold on. Yep. That's the right one. Kind of hard to do with the camera. Now well, you got to do this. Mm. All right, and it fits in there, and I have it. Oh, nice! So that it presses up against that, and it holds it. When once the backing is on here, it's not going to go anywhere. And um, <clears throat> now, if we go back and look, so here's the one that is good, and here's the new one. The other mm. one that is good. Genius. So mm. yeah, that was pretty. I tested it. Okay. It works pretty good. It holds a, the a pretty bar. cool way of, of fixing that, actually, with you know minimal, and it's gonna be quite stable with that little arm that you know hooks up with the rest of the the molding of the keyboard itself. So I thought that was really cool. Right, and he's changed nothing. 
if this yep. doesn't work, you can do it again, or if it works. Yeah, you you're not like you know modifying the existing thing so much that you know if you do it wrong, it's it's useless. It's so I would have probably done the old um, super glue and uh, baking <laughs> soda, which makes and grease the bar so that it doesn't stick. That works for a little while, but this is so cool. Yeah, and it's it's not like is he on our Discord? I don't recognize the name, and it just could be because I'm getting old and I have a terrible memory, but I don't recall seeing him in the Coco community before. So I'm kind of curious if anybody else knows him. He's only got 81 subscribers, so he's fairly new, I'm guessing. But uh, could be, yeah. But if he comes up with the genius things like this for fixes, I we think we should to... have him on the show and get him to I'll join the Discord in. and stuff. You know? <laughs> So I will try leaving him a message as a comment. I didn't get a chance to yet on his YouTube uh, video here, but uh, hopefully we can get him in, involved in the wider community. That'd be awesome. Oh, and yeah, you should put that uh, file up. STL. I think he mentions that he did do that did or is going to it do is that. Somewhere? Yeah, one of the two. Okay, cool. Probably on Thingiverse. What was that, Frederick? Probably on Thingiverse. That's where yeah, everybody might be. puts everything. It's right. a great place to shop for all kinds of just, nifty yeah. 3D things. Pick them. <laughs> yeah, I've seen like fixes for the deluxe joysticks and all kinds of stuff on there. So, uh, Next up, um, Simon Jonasson, who we mentioned last week, is working on an online web-based uh, graphics editor. Now, we've seen ones like this done before for semi-graphics, so he's starting to work on one that works with the actual full graphics modes. And he's got two updates he did this week. So the first one is he just, it was a minor cosmetic tweak where he's actually got the file menu now has icons, not just the words. Minor, but, you know, it looks it makes it look more professional. But his second one here is he's actually got it so you can pick what color mode you want and what resolution. So you can pick mono. So you can do 128 by 64 all the way up to 256 by 192 mono. And you get your two color sets. So you'd get the green and black or the white and black. And he's got the four color modes from 64 by 64 up to 128 by 192. You know, 120 by 192 is P mode three. And then you get to pick from your two color sets, whoops, your two color sets there, which would be the green, yellow, blue, red, or the white, cyan, magenta, uh, orange. And then it'll actually dynamically resize the grid here to be impressive so that you can actually fit the whole thing at once. You lost your mic. Yeah, I just saw that. Sink. Oh, you just got to love that. <laughs> and you output it to some sort of uh, data format to display it on the Coco afterwards? Yeah, it's got. it's going to have the options of exporting it both as data statements for like a machine language program so that you can incorporate it as actual code um, or save it as a bin file with the actual, like you just load Emmet as a screen type thing. So, yeah. Maybe does allow it. He also allows you load into this here. You can actually load in screens that you've got already existing. You want to modify as opposed to from starting from scratch. Hmm. So that doesn't zoom it up too much, but kind of see what it looks like there. So if you're trying to design like screens for games or even characters like sets of uh, you know sprite cells or something like that, you can use this for that online and just run it in your browser. Next up, Neil Blanchard is mentioning that uh, he finally caught up on all the back orders for his Gamester, which is his premium level uh, joystick for the Coco. And uh, this is actually made out of real wood. And he's got a bunch of different woods and finishes you can do, but it uses real arcade sticks and real arcade buttons. 
And he's got three left in stock as of November 19th, but now he's actually finally taking orders for new ones since he finally cut up the old orders. So if you want to get one of these, I will mention these are premium. Like they're not cheap, but they're very well made. To emphasize, that is not a plastic box. And they're actually heavy enough they don't wander around the table if you're trying to press buttons and stuff. So That is not a plastic box in that picture. That's wood. Yeah. Finish that nicely. Is that another view? So at any rate, if you're really into playing games and you want like the arcade experience style feel, like with a you know full joystick and the actual arcade buttons, the ones actually used in arcade games, that's that's what this has. And uh, I've tried these at the Fest because he's been selling with the Fest for a few years and uh, they actually work really, really well. So if you're heavily into the games, then I would definitely uh, recommend taking a look at it at the very least. I will also mention that these also work on the Tandy 1000 series, which uh, I mean, even you know Tandy's deluxe joysticks and stuff worked on both the Coco and the uh, Tandy 1000s, and the same with this one here. So if you are collecting Tandy computers in general, and you want an arcade experience on both your Tandy 1000 stuff and on your Coco stuff, you just have to buy one. You just move it between the two machines, and uh, it works. So you can hit them up on uh, Facebook and the Tier City Color Computer Group, and he also has a, a direct link in the Facebook Marketplace too, which has got a link to it from the Tier City Coco Group you can take a look at. An interesting side project I could do also. <laughs> uh next up this is an italian site and um the channel on youtube is called 65co2 movies or c02 i should say uh, they did a 15 minute video here about the dragon 32 and 64 a little bit of the history um they go through a couple of dragon user magazines they go through the basic manual they also go through one of the third-party books um now it's in italian and it's uh basically you know slideshow style with some uh, spoken text um so you have to turn on the you know closed captioning then turn on the auto translate from um italian to whatever your native language that you're most comfortable with is i think french is included there for frederick if he wants to do it um i will mention i from my watching it unless some of the translations a little bit off i think they do have a few errors they're not huge but i think there's some minor errors in the history and stuff here that uh, you should be aware of. But if you want just a general quick 15-minute overview of the Dragon 32 and 64, it's actually not a bad little primer for it. So you can catch that on YouTube. It's actually been a pretty busy time for the, the Dragon side of things here. So the first one here on Facebook in the Dragon Users Group is from David Gisbert. And he received a catalog. I, I would call it more a brochure than a catalog, I think, but it's um, the disk drive, the actual Dragon data disk drive for the Dragon. The... Uh, spec sheets and kind of the promotional brochure for it in Spanish. So I'm assuming this was possibly done after it was starting to get manufactured in Spain after Dragon Data folded and went bankrupt. Or it could be this is a, like a second source they were using. I'm not quite sure on that. So he also has this cute dog in the pictures too, but I thought I'd show some of the, the brochure stuff here. So there's kind of the technical side of it in Spanish. The actual picture of the drive itself, so it's kind of a half height long style, so it's kind of like the, well, that'd be the FD500s, I guess, on the Coco. But here's the actual specs, it's a 40 track drive, etc. Uh, it looks like to be, it's the exact same specs as the original one Dragon Data themselves sold, so if this is, is done later in the Dragon's life when it was getting manufactured by, uh, why am I blanking on the name in Spain? I took it over. Uh, you are hard. Yes, thank you. You're hard. 
Oh, comment from uh, Tom Eric Gunderson. The person that actually posted these photos here says, David Gisbert has the only Dragon MSX that I know of because they actually were making a clone of the MSX console really? uh, being made by Dragon. He's actually got one. So that's cool. Next up, we got a couple of updates from Julian Brown, who, of course, is doing the Dragon 32 new motherboards, while Karen is doing the Dragon 64 new motherboards. So he mentioned here in this, this particular post on November 21st that he has a few more revision 2.1 Dragon 32 boards left if anyone wants to buy them as a Christmas holiday project, as he calls it. And it's 17 pounds plus postage for the boards by themselves. And if you want all of the components, and he includes the 64K upgrade. So this Dragon 32 board is capable of going up to 64K, you know, built the way it's designed. Uh, it's 170 pounds. But he did mention there's a, some of the chip sockets are getting to be a bit rare at the moment at least when he wrote this. So he said, if you order the one with all the components included, you may have a bit of a delay where you can get it. But if you have some of this stuff lying around or if you have you know sources where you live to get them, you can get this. And that basically is the Dragon 32 with the 64K RAM upgrade. And of course, he's working on his brand newer version here that's actually adding 256K RAM support. And he's starting to add some extra stuff too. So he's kind of doing it. The Dragon 32 Plus, I guess you call it. I don't know what to specifically to call it. That's kind of weird. Problems with chip socket supply. Usually it's chips, the problem. Yeah, I thought that was strange too. And I, sometimes he's in our chat. I don't know if I haven't had a chance to check to see if he's in it today, but I was hoping he might be able to clarify that a bit. And the other one he actually posted this morning, well, this morning to us anyway, um, he's been working on trying to get the uh, quality of the NTC, NTSC daughter board to work better because uh, the first tries he did, and we, I think we covered it last week, he was getting an, you know, a, a readable screen, but it was pretty fuzzy. There was a lot of jail bars and stuff through it. The colors were off, et cetera. And I'll just read the post here, especially for the audio listeners. He said, that is a definite success. Even on my terrible cheap upscaler, the video is really clean with just very faint hail bars on the screen. Black is definitely black before he was getting kind of a grayish dark gray uh some ghosting but from prior experience this is the upscaler not the video itself coming out from his new uh ntsc daughter board yeah, yeah. what was that i was just agreeing yeah this is oh, okay. this is just a crappy uh upscaling yeah it's just currently running with a bypass on the v clock signal into the 6847 as the prescribed resistor destroys the signal also skipping the ferrite bead on the same line as there's no practical information on the required rating that i've seen so this is looking pretty pretty decent, especially we saw last week. So he's even got artifacting working. Uh, he has it reversed here. And actually, I'd asked him about uh, you know the fact that our artifact colors, you had to catch the phase by hitting the reset button to get the right ones. And I was asking how that's handled here. So I just wanted to see if his, what his reply is. Um, he was in chat earlier, by the way. Oh, he was? Okay. Okay, so he mentions here that I haven't tried, although I've noticed my upscalers don't produce artifacts at all. Okay. No. Uh, I always assume the Cocoa Solution was switched the bit zero, one to one, zero, and vice versa. Nope. <laughs> there was a few games that did actually program. <laughs> ah, stupid mic. Sick here. Is the sky blue? <laughs> so uh, the Cocoa, some games did have it, so you could do it under software control. Uh, Sailor Man's one. Some of the Owlware stuff is another, but most of them, you had to hit reset until you clawed it on the right clock face. So you'd get the red, blue, or the blue, red. It's kind of like the Apple, you program that one bit to uh, switch between the green magenta yeah. and the uh, blue, red. It's so, a hit and miss type of thing. That's kind of weird. Yeah, they would say, it's the sky blue, and you'd hit reset until it was, and then you could yeah. go on. And it would show up <laughs> orange until you hit it. 
I mean, there's some other visual cues you can tell, like the, the characters look thinner on one phase and they look thicker on the other phase. So you kind of got to recognize this after a while. So you could even like, you know, turn the computer on, hit reset even before you loaded the game to get it right the first time. Because some mm. games crashed if you tried to reset in the middle of it, especially if they were um, distributed backups. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, he said it's not perfect yet. He says still work to do the artifacts. Like, he knows the S looks a little bit thin. And I kind of agree that here it looks almost like a our candy menu yeah (laughs) that's what i thought too um but it's much much better if you remember last week when he did his initial version of it this is a huge improvement yes so we'll be keeping up to date on that and uh, mark if you want to let me know if he's got any further comments that he puts in the chat if he's still there i haven't seen him for a couple hours so okay might be sleeping um could be Next up from Sixie, Kieran, and I don't know if he's still in chat. I know he was earlier too, but he's been working on a replacement for the SAM chip. Uh, I think I mentioned that a little bit earlier that this was coming up. And he says, working on a SAM replacement, not as a product, really more to prove the concept and work out the bugs so it can be used in future designs. So basically once it's done, I think it could replace the SAM. And here's kind of a zoom up of his little replacement for SAM here. Now, as mentioned before, uh, uh, Rick, you were mentioning to Frederick, that the uh, SAM chip was a custom chip that Tandy got Motorola to make to combine the function of a whole bunch of other chips. And it stands for synchronous address multiplexer. So it handles the sharing of the VDG and the CPU with the RAM. And it actually adds some extra semi-graphics modes that don't exist on a normal VDG. And you know, there's you know, dynamic RAM refresh is handled by it as well. There's a bunch of things handled by it. And it's one that because it was a custom chip for Tandy and Drag Dragon got it too, because it was a Motorola part. Uh, but it's not a standard "quote unquote" Motorola part, uh, like the sixty-eight hundred nine itself is, for example. That yeah. it's really hard to start getting these. You can't get them new anymore. But th- this was the secret sauce behind the whole Motorola six X oh nine architecture. This is how you got the video and the CPU to use the same RAM at the same time. Now you had to use really fast RAM, which Tandy ran into that wall several times. <laughs> yeah. No, one fifties are fine. No, they ain't. No, you can't just hang a capacitor on a on a RAS line to make it. No, you can't do that. <laughs> but uh, it almost worked. So, if this is the same, will they be able to run the Coco one and two at double clock speed? Will it be well. Brendan Donne already has Ooh. Sam Doubler that's doing that, and I think his, if I remember, that has a Sam sitting in a a socket on this little board, which allows you to use static RAM and, you know, mm. steal back those cycles for dynamic RAM refresh. And then you can run, because the other thing is when you run full double speed RAM and ROM, the original SAM quite can't handle that along with the VDG. So you could just get a garbled screen. It doesn't do the screen mm-hmm. updates properly. You just get a mess. And uh, Brandon Donahue SAM doubler fixes that. So you can run full double speed, 1.78 megahertz with yeah, video should, still working. This should be fast enough to do that too. Well, because yeah. this is a Xilinx chip, I think basically whatever you program that, you can set it up to do whatever you want. You should be able to do yeah. double speed and all that other Usually. types of things. So, What size um, uh, video RAM is uh, necessary for those machines? There's no separate video RAM. It shares the RAM with the main computer. So you use whatever up to a mode. I think the biggest mode is 6K. But you can you know yeah. page flip between a bunch of them at different addresses in the RAM. You just tell it where to start right. at. So. So anyway, there's a nice good picture there. Sort of the audio listeners can't see it. Nice zoomed up here. And he's actually running it on his Dragon 64 reproduction motherboard. So he's got two new things in here you're looking at. Um, 
But he also mentions um, he's got a, a picture of it running a diagnostic heart to make sure that it's working properly. And he said, still not finished to figure out the glitch glitch, but I figured it tested with Phil's diagnostic heart. And at first it completely failed, but once it removed the special casing of the FF3X page, it uh, works. It's passing all of the uh, diagnostic ROM checks. So this is a compatible SAM at this point. Now, the only glitching he's got right now is that the if he's using some programming trips we've shown on the show like a year or two ago where we actually figured out how to fool the, the SAM and the VDG to do a smooth hardware vertical scroll by changing modes in the middle of, uh, you know, during, you know, the scan lines is going down type thing, but you can kind of fool it into thinking it's drawing lines taller than it is or shorter than it is. I can't remember which order that goes in, but basically he's fooling it into doing smooth scrolling on a, you know, text or graphic screen. And uh, currently it's it's warbling a little bit. It's not perfect rock solid like it is on the actual hardware, but just to give you a kind of a look what it looks like. So you can see it's actually doing a smooth scroll. And that's in hardware. You're not having to redraw everything from scratch. That's actually using a programming trick on the SAM itself. Uh, which Ooh. does work in the real SAML. We've covered that before about a year ago, like I said, but uh, he's almost got it close enough to be a complete SAM replacement. So uh, that's one of the unobtainium chips these days for Cocoa 1 and 2. In fact, that and the Salt, I think, were the only two real ones that we couldn't get. And now mm -hmm. that uh, Rocky Hill slash Pedro has actually made a Salt replacement called the Pepperboard, and we've got this uh, SAM replacement here from Kieran, um, that shouldn't be a problem anymore. You should be able to buy like Pedro's Cocoa 2 board. And if you can't find an actual SAM chip to put in or an actual salt chip to put in, we've got replacements now. Um, Karen's still working on the finalization of this, but that should be a, a replacement. So now it's just a matter of getting the gimmies and we can actually rebuild all the Cocoa line. Mm. And then the last one. So Richard Harding, who's kind of a historian of the dragon community, and he's been collecting documentation and all kinds of stuff. He's He's found a lot of stuff. He's actually been finding some of the old news reports from Wales TV back from when, when Dragon was struggling, and they were actually were talking about it on the news. And this is the first of three news reports that uh, he's got from Brian Moore's personal recordings here. And uh, I'm going to play the whole thing because I think it's quite interesting. And this is back when it was still rumored that Dragon Data wasn't doing too well. And we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Hello, good evening. We open with both positive and negative industrial news for South Wales. There are serious doubts this evening over the future of Bridger and home computer firm Dragon Data, and another Mid Glamorgan firm has announced 125 redundancies. But there's also good news for Bridger and, and for Cardiff, which will bring 350 new jobs. Paul Starling reports. Doubts have been raised about Dragon Data for some time. It's been known that they've been struggling in a fiercely hostile home computer market. But those doubts took a new turn following strong rumours today. My information is that there was a meeting in London yesterday and that an announcement was due to be made on Monday. I understand a decision is to be made on whether to call in the receiver. If that happens, it will send a shudder throughout the home computer market, a market which has become highly volatile and unpredictable as several companies have battled it out to be the first with the new microchip developments. It will also be a serious confidence blow for high-tech in South Wales and for the Welsh Development Agency, which has given substantial backing to a company which was hailed in its early days as the fastest growing company in Wales. That title owed its success to the Dragon 32 home computer, researched and developed by the Swansea toy company Metoy, which ironically has also since gone under. The Dragon was launched in August 1982, and from the start its success was staggering, selling tens of thousands to home computer nuts all over the world. World. 
but problems set in with meeting orders, with reliability, and eventually with short-term funding. No one from the Dragon Data Management was available for comment today, but the public relations company which handles Dragon Data business denied the receiver was due to be called in. So that's the first of three he's planning on doing. So I like how he did you see that computer dragon, nuts. dragon pizza. Did yeah, you see it? <laughs> did you see that gal solder that forty pin chip just straight down the side? Right, solder and iron. Didn't even stop. Didn't check. It's done. It's perfect. I know it. Skills. <laughs> and they were wondering why they had reliability problems. <laughs> well, no, the, the, I'm sure she laid twenty good traces there. That's someone who. Uh, never mind. At least she was holding it from the right end. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, no. Well, no, I was she did. Say I drag solder like that quite a bit on both the twenty-eight and forty-pin sockets, and don't ever have any issues. The key is lots of flux. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> no bugs. Cool. Anyway, I found it interesting because one of the historical contexts they said, which I was not aware of before, is that Dragon Data at the beginning when they were manufacturing the Dragon 32 in 1982 was the fastest growing company in Wales. Like, that's pretty darn good. And they were manufacturing, like I said, they, they I, we covered it before, but that first year they were out before Christmas, they were sold out months in advance. Like, they couldn't keep up. Like, they were generating, like, thousands and it wasn't enough. And uh, looking at some of the old, uh, there was a couple of weekly magazines in the UK for home computers that were covering, you know, what the best-selling computers are across. And the Dragon was usually in the top two or three. I mean, it was beating the Sinclair on occasion. It was beating the Commodore 64 regularly at that time. They were actually doing very, very well. And then they kind of uh, fell a bit too far behind. They had some of the, you know, warranty problems. And then when the Dragon 64 came out, they were expecting sales to go past Christmas at Christmas rates. So they bought a whole bunch of chips and everything else ready to go. And of course, after Christmas, sales slowed down because a lot of people bought them for Christmas, right? And then all of a sudden, they had this extra inventory sitting there doing nothing. So they kind of did the same thing the Osborne did. But that was a pretty fascinating bit of history. I'm really looking forward to the other two because he's got two other ones that this particular reporter covers covering the Dragon that he's going to be releasing over the next little bit of time. So... We'll cover those in future episodes. And that's it for the news this week. Oh, oh, oh I'm awake now. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Thank you, Curtis. That was very informative. Okay. Ready for the outro? Yep. I'm hungry. <laughs> this concludes another episode of The Coco Nation, the world's leading live interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. For all things The Coco Nation, visit us on the web at thecoconation.com. We'd love to hear from you. Send feedback, suggestions, even segments via email to show at thecoconation.com. The Coco Nation show would not exist without the community and its cast and crew. The Coco Nation theme song copyright. 2022 D. Bruce Moore, mixed, mastered, and produced by D. Bruce Moore. The Coco Nation is over. Join us on the Coco Discord server. Coco forever. Okay. Set. And it's custom and no we're longer back. available. Oh, we're back. So I wanted to mention one thing in the chat that was mentioned here earlier. We're talking about, you know, 
the, the missing sockets that Julian was talking about. And Franklin Harris is saying, as most manufacturers are walking away from PLCC package, socket manufacturers are starting to do the same. So that is a happening thing. I mean, yeah, but Drag is not using any PLCC, right? So is he talking about no shortage? Yeah, but that was article that was article was on the uh dragon board. Yeah. The kit was on the was on the dragon board. Oh, that's so true, yeah. That yeah, applies to some of the non PLCC maybe coming a little short occasionally. Yeah, maybe that's what Julian hit then. <clears throat> so Okay. Uh, but anyway, to fi uh, finish your question there, uh, uh, Frederick. <clears throat> so Rocky Hill uh, developed a, a replacement for the salt chip, a modern day replacement. So it covers the five volt regulator as well as the level translation for the cassette and analog and that sort of thing. Serial yeah. too. So, and with his board, you can um, eliminate the transformer and actually feed the cocoa off of straight DC. Hmm. Okay. So it's called the pepper board. Yeah, eliminates the uh, the regulator or the the pass transistor that was in there. That gets real toasty. And, right. Uh, right. You don't have to you don't have to feed it with AC anymore. You can feed it with with uh, like twelve volt DC. Mm hmm. So there's been somebody that ran basically a USB USB C uh, uh, power supply for those. Oh really. Um, let's see. Uh, well, yeah, because the, the problem was we had the, the five volt pass that fed almost everything, and then that little AC feed, yeah, because you had the eight volts for the modulator, um, and other weird things, yeah, plus and minus voltage yeah. for the RS232. Yeah. yeah, it did that all internally in the uh, in the salt chip. Um, in fact, there's one, uh, and I can't remember his name. They the Portococo. Yeah. They built an adapter. And, they, uh, yeah. So you plug a, uh, a cordless drill battery into the Coco, and run it off that. <laughs> <clears throat> so. Okay. They have their own full website uh, okay. describing yeah. that. <clears throat> mm -hmm. In fact, yeah, there's a picture it, on the screen right now. <laughs> I guess you could put also a buck boost converter and put whatever you want uh, DC voltage and. Right. I have mine right here that's running off of it. It's a PD supply, not just five volts USB, but uh, I used a 12 volt trigger. Well, that's where we've seen that before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it uh, fits right where the original power supply comes out on a on a non-PAL unit. Right where the original cord oh, was. The, yeah, that's right. You snuck a USB-C connector where the cord is supposed to come out right yeah <laughs> yeah you nice. could go back to factory with no extreme uh holes cut out or anything yeah i got porta coco site with a couple pictures of their porta porta kits here so i'll just share the screen here there you go that's an isolation all the battery load balancing and crap is done because it's a drill battery that's that's really funky yeah, one of their design goals on this one, because I know there's another person that's been posting about uh, doing one as well here, but I think they're actually modifying the case to to, to hold the batteries. So this actually doesn't modify the case at all. It just clips on 
stays on. So if you don't want to, you know, destroy your case because you're a collector and you want to keep it pristine, this actually doesn't mm -hmm. modify the cases at all. And you oh, have options of getting it with a screen that you know attaches to it as well, all powered off the same battery and wireless uh, connections and stuff too. So, yeah, that's an interesting concept. So, if you use like the uh, uh, Sloopy's uh, drive wirelessly to link inside directly off the PIA, and then of course oh, right. like, uh, wireless. Uh, um, uh, video, which is what uh, the one on the far right does, wire-free, then you can link and download stuff yeah. directly to it. And, and uh, Wireless HDMI, really? Yep. Mm -hmm. And what's used for the wireless HDMI? Uh, basically, it has like a, a so basically it's just the uh, SCART converter. Um, so the RGB inside, then goes upscaled, and then goes to HDMI, and it has a transmitter receiver pair. So I don't remember which one it is, but yeah, it's pretty cool. If you want more details on that, we actually had the person that created it, as well as his enthusiastic son, helping uh, demonstrate there uh, not too long ago. I think we actually interviewed him, and they were actually outside running around with this wireless cocoa. Hooked up to a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the, the the monitor was actually sitting on a bench, and they're like sitting on a different bench, you know, way ways uh, broadcasting straight to it type thing. So, wow. what were they using? Laura, they're from what? Canada too, by the way. Oh, wow, we're a pretty uh, crafty bunch. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> I don't know, Mark, if you have a way to figure out what episode that was, but uh, yeah, I actually have it stored locally. Uh, it's episode three thirty. So 330. Yeah. You want to see that? Yeah. Refax in your car. But yeah, they were at the fest this last year and they'll, they'll be there again this next year. So if you can make it down for that, Frederick, you can actually meet and talk to them in person. Yeah. They're from Quebec too. I'm trying to remember if they're Quebec or Ontario. No, they're from Toronto. They live just up the street from Frank. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. Retro Rewind Frank, for those who don't know. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, I think we all need to go get some food. Yep. <laughs> right. Grab I promise Reality. next week's show will be shorter because we don't have any long interviews. So. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for coming. This has been fun. And we'll see Always. you all next week. Bye. Yep. See you all Bye. next week. Bye. Bye. And on Game Ooh. On Challenge. Bye,